It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way Welcome to the mop up for July 26, 2021. I'm coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a pot parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 87 degrees and sunny. I'm David Feldman bringing you first world problems on a third world income. Coming up on today's program, if all goes well, and it usually doesn't, comedy writer Dave Cyrus will be with us shortly and the return of Jackie the Joke Man Martling. Here's what I think is the news. Donald Trump's best friend who headed the inauguration committee for Donald Trump, Tom Barack, appeared before a judge this morning and pleaded not guilty to charges of acting as an unregistered foreign agent for the United Arab Emirates. Prosecutors say Barack used his friendship with Donald Trump to illegally lobby on behalf of the UAE. The Department of Justice also suggests that Barack was illegally lobbying on behalf of Saudi Arabia. Barack was arrested last week and posted a $250 million bail bond. So it's nice to know that one of Donald Trump's friends actually has a little money left. Tom Barack, do you realize if Tom Barack married Barack Obama, he would be anybody, anybody, Tom Obama. If Tom Barack married Barack Obama, his name would be Tom Obama. Hey, it's summer. Uh, as I said, uh, Barack is, you're lucky I didn't say Ehud Barack, who used to be the prime minister of uh, Israel. Okay. Uh, Barack, as I said, has been charged with violating the Foreign Agents Registration Act, or FARA, which they don't enforce. I think I've violated the Foreign Agents Registration Act. It was a law passed in 1938 in the lead up to World War II, and it required that any lobbyist representing the interests of a foreign power like Russia, Germany, or Japan, they had a, uh, uh, 
disclose their relationship with the foreign government uh, before they did any lobbying. You just can't lobby for a, a foreign country without registering with the government first. Uh, as I said, FARA is rarely enforced and one can't help but assume the federal government is squeezing Barack in order to get him to flip against Donald Trump. It shouldn't be this hard to lock up Donald Trump. It just it shouldn't be this difficult. Uh, I don't understand why he and his family aren't already behind bars. By the way, Don Jr. now is doing well on straw polls. He and DeSantis are the front runners in a, a recent uh, Republican straw poll of future presidential candidates. So Don Jr., if you think your father hates you now, he completely despises you, Don Jr. Of course, Don Jr. is doing drugs. If you had Don, Donald Trump as a father who used to say in front of you to his friends, I can't believe this idiot has my name. Of course, you would turn to to drugs and, and Kimberly Gargoyle, who is, I think, 10 years older than Don Jr. Well, uh, as I said, the big news is uh, what I talk about. And on Tuesday, there is a runoff in Texas to fill the vacancy in Texas's sixth congressional district that's been left by a Republican congressman who died earlier this year from, uh, what did he do? Oh yeah, COVID. A Republican congressman died from COVID in Texas. So they've had a, they're having a runoff election for the sixth congressional district on Tuesday. The two candidates are Jake Elzey. He's a Republican. He's running against Susan Wright. She's a Republican and the widow of the dead Congressman Ronald Wright, who died on February 7th, 2021 from COVID-19. Uh, anti-masker. And uh, Donald Trump has endorsed Mrs. Wright and Elsie, who's also a Republican, was endorsed by the idiot former Texas Governor Rick Oops Perry, who served in Trump's cabinet as the energy secretary. He was in charge of our nuclear weapons, Rick Perry. So there's a runoff on Tuesday because they do like a jungle primary kind of thing. So 23 candidates, Democrats and Republicans ran in the special election on May 1st. It's such a red district that the two candidates in the runoff are Republicans. Wright, the widow, got close to 20% of the vote. As I said, she's been endorsed by Donald Trump. Elsie, who is no different from Wright, a Republican, he got 13.8% of the vote. Wright, the widow, is expected to win on Tuesday. 30 million Americans will be living in a heat wave with triple-digit temperatures this week. It continues, and it's going to get worse. Here's something interesting. Philip Morris. It's getting out of the tobacco. It's getting out of the tobacco business. Yes, it can be done, Exxon. It can be done. Philip Morris, who has murdered hundreds of millions of people with its product, says it's no longer going to be selling cigarettes. The chief executive of Philip Morris 
They're the company that makes Marlboro cigarettes. They gave us the Marlboro Man. The, the, the CEO of Philip Morris told Britain's Mail, their newspaper Mail, that his tobacco company expects to stop selling cigarettes by the end of this decade. Then again, judging by the way climate change is going in 10 years, if you want tar and nicotine in your lungs, you just have to take a deep breath. But they're getting out. They're getting out of the cigarette business. Jasik Olzak, the CEO of Philip Morris International said, quote, I want to allow this company to leave smoking behind. I think in the United Kingdom, 10 years from now, maximum, you can completely solve the problem of smoking. They asked him if that meant Philip Morris would stop selling cigarettes. And he said, absolutely. He said his company, the Marlboro brand, would completely disappear, at least from Britain. And uh, they've been testing new ways to get nicotine into your system. They're, they're switching to elect electronic devices. We'll be talking uh, about electronic devices and Juul later on. Uh, Henry uh, Hakamaki has an interview with the author of a book that talks about Juul and vaping. But Philip Marlboro, Philip Morris, makers of Marlboro, they're switching to uh, electronic devices. Might not be the worst thing for Shell, BP, and Exxon to switch to electronic devices. You've got a lot of money, start selling electronic electric cars. President Joe Biden said Monday that America's combat mission in Iraq is done. It's over. It'll be completely over by the end of 2021. So he's pulling the troops out of Afghanistan before September 11th of 2021, and he's removing all soldiers from Iraq by the end of 2021 as well. Of course, we all thought President Obama did that, I think, in what, 2011. But nobody's been following Iraq. Nobody really pays attention to what's going on in Iraq. we got a couple of thousand soldiers still stationed in Iraq. You would think most Americans would at least know who the prime minister of Iraq is. It's Mustafa al-Kadimi, and he was meeting with Joe Biden in the Oval Office on Monday. And Joe Biden said to him, you're on your own. Great. COVID is back. Did you miss it? COVID is back. I hope you're wearing a mask. And uh, COVID is back. And we only have the unvaccinated to blame for that. New York City is ordering all its municipal workers, including police officers and teachers, to show proof of vaccination or go home. New York State is planning a similar edict. And in California, which, which you know, we thought California was out of the woods. It's spiking in California. And California will be demanding that all state employees and on-site public and private health care workers be vaccinated and get tested. On Monday, the Department of Veterans Affairs became the first cabinet-level agency in Washington to order that most of its employees get vaccinated. Ron Klain is Joe Biden's chief of staff. He was the Ebola czar under Barack Obama, did a pretty good job 
making sure Ebola didn't come to the United States. And uh, this morning, Ron Klain, Joe Biden's chief of staff, said that more and more Americans are terrified of the Delta variant and vaccinations are picking up. If you remember, we have more than enough vaccines. We just don't have enough Americans who are smart enough, who care enough to get the vaccinations. So the number of vaccinations are going down and the number of people infected is going up. But Ron Klein says, quote, vaccinations are picking back up about 800,000 people got vaccinated in the past 24 hours. That, he says, might be the biggest 24-hour period of vaccinations since the beginning of this month. He says the United States is in, uh, in an unnecessary predicament. He's saying just get vaccinated. Just get vaccinated. 99% of anybody who dies from COVID in America wasn't vaccinated. So I don't know how, how clearer they have to make it. Get vaccinated. America's top infectious diseases expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, warned on Sunday that the Delta variant is going to make things a lot worse by fall. He says we're in a predicament that is unnecessary. All Americans have to do is get vaccinated. He says we're going in the wrong direction. He says he's very frustrated. Dr. Fauci also said on Sunday that the vaccinated should probably wear masks. He's holding back. He's, you know, there was that big ceremony at the White House where Joe Biden and Vice President Harris greeted each other without wearing masks. And they're now looking into the possibility that the official policy for the federal government will be all federal employees have to wear masks again. I don't know why they're not doing it now. How many people have to die from the Delta variant for the federal government to expect people to do the right thing and wear a mask? Fauci also said on Sunday that booster shots will be in the cards for those with suppressed immune systems who have already been vaccinated. So if you've already been vaccinated, but you're older, you have uh, some kind of problem with your immune system, expect to get a booster shot. Louisiana Republican Congressman Clay Higgins has COVID again. Louisiana Republican Congressman Clay Higgins has COVID again. This is a state. He represents a state that has the lowest vaccination rates in in America and the highest rate of infection in America. I wonder if the two are related, not getting a vaccine and getting COVID instead. I wonder if that could be related. Uh, Congressman Clay Higgins, a Republican from Louisiana, as I said, has COVID again. He is a critic of mask mandates and he is against public health restrictions during the pandemic. He's a borderline anti-vaxxer. Republican Congressman Clay Higgins, a Republican from Louisiana who has COVID again, said he, his wife and son have contracted the coronavirus again. He said he and his wife were infected last year 
But this time around, he says it's much more difficult. And he has not said whether he has been vaccinated. Gee, Louisiana Republican, I wonder if he's been vaccinated. The Republican congressman said, quote, this episode, it's not an episode. You have COVID again, that's not an episode. He says, this episode is far more challenging. Your wife and son and you have COVID again. He says, it has required all my devoted energy. He said, we are all under excellent care, of course, because you're a, a congressman. You have excellent care. The people in Louisiana, you didn't take Medicaid expansion. Most Louisianians don't have excellent care. Higgins is the second member of Congress to announce in the past week that they've contracted the virus. Vern Buchanan said on July 19th, he's a congressman, he announced that he has tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, let's see, Congressman Vern Buchanan, Republican from Florida. Uh, did I mention Clay Higgins, Louisiana Congressman who tested positive, who has COVID again? He uh, doesn't support mask mandates or mandatory vaccines. This is what Clay Higgins wrote in May on Facebook. Quote, if you want to get vaccinated, get vaccinated. If you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. If you don't, then don't. That's your right as a free American. It's your right as a free American to kill your neighbor, either with guns or coughing on them, because that's what freedom is all about. Freedom to be irresponsible and drive without your seatbelt on, free to not wear a helmet, on your motorcycle so that when you go to the hospital, you cost the federal government hundreds of thousands of dollars to get fixed, right? You don't wear a seatbelt and you go to the hospital, to the emergency room, and that comes out of taxpayer dollars and it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to fix your bones because you didn't want to wear a seatbelt, you didn't want to wear a helmet, or you think everybody should be allowed to carry a gun or cough on one another because that is what freedom is all about, being able to be irresponsibly stupid and kill your fellow American. J.D. Vance has written about some of these people. He wrote Hillbilly Elegy. He's a venture capitalist. I think he went to Yale, right? And he's now running for Senate in Ohio. He's a Republican running for Republican Rob Portman's seat. Rob Portman, Rob Portman is giving up his seat. And uh, I won't even go into Rob Portman. Uh, but uh, J.D. Vance, the Yale graduate venture capitalist, uh, decided that he would make political hay over the fact that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez doesn't have any children. He's now attacking Cory Booker. He says Vice President Harris never had her own children. He is going after, quote unquote, the childless left for their lack of, quote, physical commitment to the future of this country, quote unquote. And now he's suggesting we need to change uh, voting rights in America. 
to combat the childless left. You think he's joking? Do you think I'm joking? He was speaking before a conference on Friday of Christians, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, a group of Christians. And this is what J.D. Vance, Yale graduate, author of Hillbilly Elegy said. He said, quote, why is this just a normal fact of life for the leaders of our country to be people who don't have a personal and direct stake in it via their own offspring? The left isn't just criticizing our country, he goes on to say. It's trying to take our very sense of national pride and national purpose away from us. He goes on to blame Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Pete Buttigieg. He says they're stoking cultural wars and they don't have kids. And so what J.D. Vance is suggesting is if you have children, the children should be, shouldn't be allowed to vote, but you should get an extra vote for every child that you have. That's what J.D. Vance, Yale graduate, author of Hillbilly Elegy, Republican congressman, Republican candidate for Senate in Ohio, is suggesting that we need people who have skin in the game. If you don't have kids, you don't care about the future. And Republicans, we know, have kids and they care about the future. They're, they're obsessed with climate change. They're worried about what kind of planet they're going to leave their grandchildren. So we really need to listen to people who have kids. The, Repu the Republicans have proven how, how much they care about the future. Florida now has the highest rate of COVID infections in America. That's going to be a problem for Governor Ron DeSantis, who is, uh, they say, right, right behind Donald Trump in terms of getting the Republican nomination. And the real estate bubble has popped. Sales of new homes fell for a third straight month, hitting the lowest level in more than a year. That's according to the Commerce Department. And evictions start next month. They've actually started the CDC's eviction moratorium. It was the eviction moratorium said you cannot evict somebody for failure to pay rent, but you can evict them for any other reason, which means evictions are going on in this country and it's going to get a lot worse. We will be back with Jackie the Joke Man. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way It's time 
You ready? No. Don't be nervous. From New York, from beautiful Bayville, on the glorious Gold Coast of Long Island's North Shore, let's all welcome our old friend, Jackie, the Joke Man, Mardling. See the Joke Man, 9 p.m. Saturday night, August 14th, with Shuli Egar at the Fair Oaks Drive-In in Middletown, New York. Ticket link on jokeland.com. You'll love Jackie's autobiography, The Joke Man, about a stern true bliss if you enjoy syllables follow, <laughs> follow jackie on twitter at jackie martling a great joke every day personalized videos of course you want personalized videos go to cameo.com forward slash jackie martling jack jokes and jacks laughs 24 7 you want laughs 24 7 of course you do call jackie's dirty joke line use your finger 516-922-WINE that's 516-922-WINE for more show information go to jokeland.com hello jackie mommy mommy what circumcision <laughs> shut up and hand me the pinking shears <laughs> 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 hey, when did they realize that Tarzan was a pervert? When? When they caught him feeding Cheetah a pink banana. <laughs> oh, nice. Nice. <laughs> so a guy sits at the bar and the bartender says, you've been married a long time, eh? The guy says, yeah. Yeah, so how is it? Uh, you know, some mornings I wake up grouchy and some mornings I let her sleep. <laughs> hey, how do you say gonorrhea in Russian? How do you say gonorrhea in Russian? Rachikakov. <laughs> Rachikakov. So a guy walks into a bar with an octopus and he says, drinks on me all night if this octopus can't play any instrument. So the bartender hands the octopus a ukulele and the octopus plays it. A musician sitting at a table, he hands the octopus his trumpet. The octopus plays it. A waitress hands the octopus a set of bagpipes. The octopus fools around with it for a minute and then sets it down. She says, ha! Ah! You can't play it? The octopus says, play it. As soon as I get those play pajamas off it, I'm going to fuck it. (laughs) 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 So an altar boy says, Father O'Reilly, I'm always on time and Harry's always late. How come he gets the best assignments? The priest says, He's a better kisser. Oh, oh, come on. Be nice, Jackie. No, that never happened to them. (laughs) So Schmidlap is an innocent virgin, not to be redundant. He's in bed with a girl for the first time. They're both naked. He has a raging heart on, but he has no idea what to do. She spreads her legs and says, climb on top of me and put that thing in here. And he does it. She says, now pull it out a little. 
Now I'll put it all the way back in. Now I'll pull it out a little. Now he just will you make up your fucking mind? <laughs> <laughs> the bartender says, man, were you drunk last night, Harry? Harry says, you're telling me this morning I was so hungover, I pissed on the dog and took the fire hydrant for a walk. <laughs> a guy says to the bartender, not me. Nope, not me. I ain't never getting married. Bartender says, why not? He says, because when I wake up in the morning, I don't want to know who I'm not going to fuck. <laughs> so Jethro, our friend Jethro walks all the way into town to get a physical. The doctor hands him a cup and says, I need you to go pee into this cup. Jethro goes in the bathroom and he comes out in a few minutes and says, Doc, I can't do it. Doc says, all right, Jethro, that's a common problem. Just go home, drink lots of fluids, and bring me a sample tomorrow morning. So Jethro goes all the way back to the farm, downs a case of beer, grabs a goldfish bowl, and fills it to the brim. <laughs> the next morning, he walks into the doctor's office with his goldfish bowl full of his specimen. The receptionist says, oh, my God, did you walk all the way here carrying that bowl of urine? He says, well, hell no, ma'am. I done took the bus. <laughs> a chicken and an egg. Yes. A chicken and an egg are lying in bed. The egg is fidgeting and looking annoyed, and the chicken smoking a cigarette <laughs> with a big smile on his face. The egg says, well, I guess we answered that question. <laughs> <laughs> wow. An Irish, guy, an Irish guy walks past the bar. It can happen. <laughs> <laughs> so a guy picks up his friend and he goes in. He, a guy picks up his friend and he goes into audition for a job as an announcer at a radio station. He comes out and his friend says, well, did you get the job? He says, "No, I, I think I think they found found out I I I was Jewish." <laughs> hey, why did Jewish mother cross the road? Why? To get to the other side. <laughs> <laughs> hey, did you hear about the leader of the Shinnecock tribe who drank 50 gallons of tea? No. <laughs> they found him drowned in his teepee. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so a lady next door says to the little old lady who just moved into the neighborhood, I hear you're 80 and you just got married. The little old lady says, he, 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 he's, he's a funeral director. He's my, my fourth husband. <laughs> Four? Yeah. Hey, yep. Yep. I married a banker when I was in my 20s and a, a circus ringmaster in, in my 40s, uh, a, a preacher in my 60s, and, and now I just married a, a funeral director. Neighbor says, Wow, that's what I call variety. The old lady says, yep, 
<laughs> one for the money, two for the showers, three to get ready, and, and four to go. <laughs> <laughs> great, great, great. Hey, what's it say in a blues musician's tombstone? What? I didn't wake up this morning. So <laughs> 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 husband walks in dead drunk carrying a half full bottle of scotch. <laughs> His wife is standing there tapping her foot and she says, Look at you! You're a disgrace. You've been drunk for 15 years. Give me that bottle. She grabs a bottle out of his hand. She takes a big swig. She spits it out and goes, yeah, that tastes terrible. He says, and all, all this time, you thought I was having fun. <laughs> Oh, these are great. A guy says to the bartender, you know, sometimes I amaze myself with my ingenuity. I amaze myself with my ingenuity. Last night, I filled my inflatable doll with helium so she could ride on top. (laughs) (laughs) So a guy says to the bartender, hey. I heard your girlfriend told you if you wanted to marry her, you had to lose weight, stop drinking, and stop smoking pot. Bartenders, yep. I lost 20 pounds and have a drink, and I haven't had a drink or smoked a joint in over three months. You guys are saying, ah, so you're getting married? The bartender says, fuck no, I'm a great catch now. I can do a lot better than her. <laughs> Hey, did you hear about the new Jewish online auction site? No, I did not, Jackie. Oy bay. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like eBay, but it's oy bay. So a guy's in a museum and he says to the guard, hey, how old are these dinosaur bones? The guard says, 66 million four years and six months old. The guy says, geez, how can you be so precise? Well, the bones were 66 million years old when I started working here, (laughs) and that was four and a half years ago. That is uh, amazing. So That's the an amazing joke. That's an the amazing yells, Shut up. The wife yells down from upstairs. Do you ever get a shooting pain across your body? Like somebody's got a voodoo doll of you and they're stabbing it? Her husband says, no. She says, how about now? <laughs> <laughs> Wow. A guy says to the bartender, man, oh, I went home with a nasty one last night. The bartender says, that bad, huh? Yeah, are you kidding? A fly landed on her twat and threw up. Jesus, it was going so well, Jackie. I was so proud of you. I was so happy. I was, aw. Three guys are in front of St. Peter's podium, and he says, fellas, please tell me your sins, and we'll see where you belong. First guy says, well, I cheated on my wife twice. I cheated on my wife twice, but otherwise I've lived a clean life. 
St. Peter says, all right, my son, go through that door on the right. Second guy says, I only cheated on my wife once. St. Peter says, all right, my son, you go through the door on the right, too. Third guy says, well, I cheated on my wife once, but St. Peter, I had a really good reason. I was at a Dallas strip club when I saw a girl with huge tits. I mean, really huge tits. They were real tits, too. And then she sucked a golf ball through 50 feet of garden hose. On a break, I struck up a conversation and, well, yeah, you know, we wound up back at her place. St. Peter steps out from behind the podium and says, head towards that door on the left. But wait, St. Peter, why am I being singled out? I wasn't any more poorly behaved than the other guys. St. Peter says, fuck them. Me and you are going to Dallas. (laughs) (laughs) Hence the name Peter. (laughs) Hey, what's the best way to get even with the guy who's trying to steal your wife? How? Let him have her. <laughs> hey, who was the <laughs> Who was Alexander Graham Belsky? Who was Alexander Graham Belsky? I give up. The first telephone pole. <laughs> <laughs> it's an innocent joke. So Ravelli and Mozzarella are side by side on two ladders. Mozzarella. Ravelli and mozzarella mozzarella Ravelli and mozzarella are side by side on two ladders putting siding on the house Ravelli can't help but notice that mozzarella looks at each nail before he uses it and he's thrown away about half of them he says hey I'm mozzarella why you throw away our those nails you throw away like a half of the nails why you throw away a half of the nails Mozzarella says, because the points, the points are down the wrong side. <laughs> you stupido, those nails are for the other side. <laughs> Mozzarella. Hey, how do you find a worm's asshole? How? You put it in a bowl of flour and wait for it to fart. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> nice. That's good. So the wife has been in the bathroom getting ready for over an hour. Finally, she says, Harry, come in here. He walks in. And she opens the door wide and says, tell me the truth. Do I look fat in this? He says, yeah, but to be fair, it's a small bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what's the best way to get to a Chinese restaurant? What? Walk. Walk. Okay. <laughs> so a cowboy's just home from a cattle drive. A cowboy's just home from a cattle drive. He goes into a restaurant and sits at a table. The lady at the table behind him says, Waiter. I'll have a breast of fowl, virgin fowl. Make sure it's virgin, waiter, even if you have to catch it yourself. Please garnish my plate with onion and celery and bring me a cup of coffee. Not too hot, not too cold. And waiter, please open a window. I smell a horse. There must be a cowboy in the house. The waiter says to the cowboy, and for you, sir, 
Well, hell, I'll have a duck. I'll have a fuck duck. Make sure it's fucked, even if you got to fuck it yourself. Harness <laughs> my plate with horse shit and mud. Then bring me a cup of coffee, strong as Texas mule piss, and blow the foam off with a fart. Wait a Knock down the whole wall. I smell a cunt. There must be a whore in the house. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so a guy walks into a bar and he's all out of breath. Bartender says, What's up? He's I was I was just walking along when I heard help, help coming from an alley and I looked and two thugs were trying to steal an old lady's handbag and oh man, she was putting up a hell of a fight and she just wouldn't let go and I wondered if I should keep walking and Pretend I didn't see anything, but then I decided I'd help. And you know, with the three of us, it didn't take very long to get the handbag. <laughs> All right, I'm doing one more. I'm doing All one right. more. One more. Harry goes to hell, and he's face to face with the devil. Devil says the punishments are changed every thousand years. You have three choices. The devil opens up the door of the first room, and there's a young guy strapped to a pole being whipped and whipped and whipped. The devil opens the door of the second room, and there's a middle aged guy being tortured with fire. They're burning him on his arms and legs and chest and ass, burning him and burning. The devil opens the door to the third room, there's an old guy chained to the wall. He's getting a blowjob from a pretty blonde. He says, are you kidding? I'll take the third room. The devil taps the blonde on the shoulder and says, all right, you can stop. This guy's replacing you. <laughs> Go see Jackie the Joke Man, August 14th. Jackie the Joke Man, Saturday night, August 14th. He'll be performing with Shuli Egar at the Fair Oaks Drive-In in Middletown, New York. Ticket link is over at jokeland.com. And you'll love Jackie's autobiography, The Joke Man, bow to stern. True bliss, if you enjoy syllables, that's what they're saying. Go buy Jackie's autobiography, The Joke Man, bow to stern. Follow Jackie on Twitter. It's a great, great feed on Twitter. At Jackie Martling. A great joke every day. You want personalized videos? Of course you do. Go to cameo.com forward slash Jackie Martling. Laughs 24-7. All you got to do is call Jackie's dirty joke line. Use your finger. 516-922-WINE. For more show information, go to jokeland.com. Thank you, Jackie. So Stokowski can't make it home for his father's funeral. So he calls his brother and says, listen, please do something nice for Pop and send me the bill. A few weeks later, he gets a bill for $200 and he pays it. Next month, he gets another bill for $200. So he pays it. Next month, he gets another bill for $200. So he calls his brother and asks him what the hell's going on. His brother says, well, you told me to do something nice for Pop, so I rented him a tuxedo. <laughs> Great job. I'll Thank talk to you next Thank time. Thank you, Jackie. <laughs> I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have 
have a plan to get there by and by As long as I stay healthy and I never die Fifteen bucks an hour, five days a week Fifty-two weeks a year and thirty-two thousand years I know it's a long time, honey, to thirty-four thousand and twenty But when I get there, babe, I'm gonna be in the money I'm on my way to be a billionaire Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care Dave Cyrus is standing by. You've seen his work on SNL. He writes for SNL. He's written the hit movie, The King of Staten Island, starring Pete Davidson, Marissa Tomei, and Bill Burr, directed by John Apatow. Fox's Let's Be Real. And I don't know, you're working on a million things right now. Thank you for taking time to be with us. Thanks, David. How we doing? I'm doing pretty good. Always glad to see you when you take time to be with us. So Michael Flynn, he was national security advisor for Donald Trump for about 16 days. And then they found out that he was talking to Kislyak, the Russian ambassador, violating, I think it was the Logan Act. He was talking to Kislyak before he was allowed to talk to him. And so he was had a he had a step down. Not a good guy. QAnon follower. Is that a fair statement? Oh, yeah, I think he uses their language. My understanding is that he openly uh, endorses QAnon theories. If if I'm wrong, I apologize. But I I was pretty sure that he didn't hide that. Him and his son, uh, I believe, were pretty open about their belief. I mean, he has supported the idea of a violent coup in the United States to Mm -hmm. take power. I'll be honest about Michael Flynn. This is just my opinion. I think in the case of Michael Flynn, as a, I think there are people like Michael Flynn and Rudy Giuliani on one side, and then there are people like Steve Bannon and Jared Kushner and Roger Stone on the other. I think 
Roger Stone and Kushner and Bannon, those are morally bankrupt people who are trying to take advantage of the Trump phenomenon. But then there are people like Flynn and Giuliani, who I think are genuinely mentally ill. Yeah. And I think are and Giuliani, I mean, allegedly, I have to say, but allegedly everyone he's ever met says he's a falling down drunk. And yeah, it's in the new book by Wolf. We've been hearing that a lot. But I mean, we've heard that. Flatulent yes. drunk. And we've been hearing that from a lot of people. I mean, my uh, I believe it was Michael Cohen over a year ago said the man gets high school drunk on a daily basis. And right. uh, I think Flynn, honestly, if it's not drugs, if it's not alcohol, I think it's some kind of mental illness because to compare who he is now to who he was, much like Giuliani, you really have to say a person can't just devolve that far without something causing it. I mean, I would I wouldn't even be surprised if he had a stroke that we didn't know about right. because he is he is endorsing ideas that are so crazy, so craven that it's like it, you can tell the Steve Bannons of the world must be looking at him like, dude, what are you doing? This is working. Stop screwing it up. Mm-hmm. I mean, the guy, national else? security advisor under Trump, would be in prison on trial now, if not, but for a pardon. Right, he was convicted. Correct. Yeah, for lying to FBI agents. Right, and of course, that's part of the phenomenon of the Trump administration, which is that a lot of people were taking money from foreign governments, apparently, uh, to influence policy. But in a Donald Trump administration, it makes sense that he's he's not denying that. He's just being like, "Oh my God, really? That's a crime right. now?" Because right. if you're Donald Trump, you're thinking, "Well, we're going to make policy." anyway shouldn't we make a profit off it right if we're gonna make policy and we can make policy for free or policy for profit what kind of idiot would make it for free right. you know that's their attitude it's like well, why not just say uh ukraine uh has no right to sovereignty and uh Qatar should be able to invade whoever they want you know the uae should be able to do whatever they want whatever it is like there's no sense of why that's wrong to them because to the to, to someone like trump it's like well what does it matter which country benefits Shouldn't it just be which which country benefits us? Yeah, as long as it's benefiting me. Let me show you a clip that has emerged. This happened two weeks ago, but it came out over the weekend. Uh, Michael Flynn, General Michael Flynn, was speaking at the Church of Glad Tidings in Yuba, California. This was on July 16th. So this is a this is the audience we're about to hear is a church. This is a church. Well, who better to speak at a church than the vice president of rifle manufacturer, Colbat Kinetics, Cobalt Kinetics. Is that a guy's name? Or, no, oh, it's this. The oh, his name is Jason Parker. He's vice president of the rifle manufacturer Cobalt Kinetics. Because that's, Cobalt, who, that's, who, that's yeah, who you yeah. speak. That's who you ask to speak at a church. Cobalt right? Kinetics does sound like a very popular name in Wisconsin these days. Yes, <laughs> it's, it's, it sounds like a perfect middle American white name. So he was given giving uh, General Flynn a gift, a camouflaged rifle made by Cobalt Kinetics at the church. And this is what uh, Michael Flynn said. That's awesome. And tell us about your gift. Left hand is lifting. So 
we were trying to come up with a rifle that we thought was appropriate for a general. So we went with a old school woodland camouflage. So anyhow, this is uh, one of our top quality guns. And maybe uh, I'll find somebody in Washington D.C. <laughs> This one's unbelievable. So just a joke, right? He's just fooling around. See, that's what I mean when I say that I think he actually is mentally ill because anyone else would know why you don't say that even for that crowd and those people, because that you he you know that you it's a bad idea to openly talk about murdering the president or you know other it's people in the White law, House. It's yeah, it's actually law. a crime to do that. Yeah. Uh, and I'm pretty sure he knows that. But Michael Flynn has been repeatedly acting like someone who wants I, I, and I, I, I say this with a little uh hyper hyperbolic, you know, uh, uh ghoulish overkill, but I feel like he's someone who wants to die by suicide by cop. <laughs> he acts like that kind of personality right. where he just I feel like he's constantly like he wants to die, but he wants to die doing hurting people. Like, I know that sounds crazy, but it's like he acts like someone who doesn't think he has a future, who doesn't think he's going to be around for much longer. He really I mean, he's the guy who said we should start killing soldiers and put Trump in power permanently. We should have a coup. We should mill it. And it had nothing to do with whether or not an election was fraudulent. He just thinks his side should kill people. And I just, I really think Michael Flynn has lost his mind. Um, or he, or, more, or he, we're underestimating what we're up against, that there are people who are, who, who don't understand why we're not taking power. We have the weapons. We have the passion. Why are we putting up with this crap? Let's go. Don't you think there's a certain segment? Well, well, I mean, think of it this way. That is a church that applauded murdering the president. Well, they because didn't murdering. Know, there's the, a lot of churches. They, out there. He just said taking it to They knew exactly. Yeah, it was more they like what he meant. Uh, insurrection. They knew what he meant. Is that what he meant? Well, he said the White House. He didn't say. Did he say the White House or Washington? He said Washington D.C. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Then, then he but, meant you know, so he meant more killing like cops and stuff than the president. Right. right. But uh, the point is, he's just. I feel I, like if he's he, not, uh, if it's not pure mental illness, then it is about him thinking he's so much smarter than these people, and this is what they want to hear. But that's sort of the. The underlying problem with a lot of Republican news people right now is they're frantically trying to uh, pander harder than everyone else to these people who the harder you go and pandering them, the closer you get to saying, well, do you want a civil war or not? It's kind of like Charles Manson. I don't know if you know the story of like the real story of Charles Manson, which was that Manson was a fraud. Manson told a bunch of acid using teenagers that they were going to be these revolutionaries. But in reality, he was just a shit talker con man who was just trying to take advantage of a bunch of girls and do and make them do what he wanted. And then some of his followers took it too seriously and started killing people. And then Manson had to act like he was that cool, too. So you remember the story about Sharon Tate after they killed some people, Manson, who was not there, then got in a car and said, OK, I'm going to go kill someone, too, and then drove around for five hours and then came home and said, I couldn't find anyone. 
<laughs> so like that's the truth of what really happened it was well it wasn't an idea he was he's a, he's a producer he was pretending he was right. just trying to whip people up and then the I people see. started doing stuff which is exactly what michael flynn is flirting with you know there's there you know you a lot of these people a lot of people who applauded will applaud the idea of doing it but you put a gun in their hand and say go kill the president they're not going to do it just like a lot of people at the insurrection were there as yahoos and were saying yeah let's kill pence but most of them if given the gun wouldn't have pulled the trigger on pence but they also wouldn't have stopped the other people with them who they were helping do it because they were the useful idiots in that situation anyway that's a longer story but i do think that that's what's really happening here we're talking about people who are trying to manipulate their it's just like with trump they're giving the monkey a gun right and assuming the monkey won't shoot them Right. They are whipping these people up and telling them you need to start murdering cops, murdering politicians because you had your country stolen from them just because they're sore losers who think this is a good marketing campaign. And that's the worst thing about this. The majority of Republicans who are pushing this idea that you need to start killing people. You need to get a gun and go to the White House. It's it's it, they're acting like Frank Luntz because they think that's what people want to hear. And this is just a good strategy to get people to vote for you in four years. So you don't have to sell your house. That's Why the scary thing. See, the problem is he can find cover in humor. He can say, I was joking. It, was it wasn't a, a joke. joke. I was, well, we've had this, you and I have had this discussion before about why people laugh at Trump rallies. And it's the exact same situation. They're not laughing because what this person said is funny. They're laughing because they are feeling a sense of titillation at the embracement of something so wrong. It's the idea. It's like shoplifting. They are experiencing a giddy thrill of of embracing a feeling they've lived their whole lives, never actually allowing themselves to go all the way with. It's the way serial killers feel. They become obsessed with the they become addicted to that feeling of anxiety like a roller coaster of doing something evil and that's what this is when they're saying when they laugh because it's one thing to applaud say yeah i want to kill the person but they're laughing out of a sense of tension and it's like i said with all those trump rallies when you see people laugh they always turn to the person next to them to see if it's okay right you know what there we're up something against? different here this is this is what we're up against there is a home that trump flynn tucker carlson fox news they just want to set fire to the entire home they want to raise the entire home and the problem with our side is we'd be okay if maybe the living room got burned down or right. maybe, maybe, you know, if I don't like the kitchen, it needs to be remodeled. If the kitchen got remodeled, we'll collect the insurance and we think we can defeat the other side. Who, but it's so much easier to burn the entire house down than well, to yeah, selectively yeah. set fire to the rooms you don't like. Well, That's the problem with our side. Well, the problem more is we that can't agree on which shit. rooms we and we can't agree on which rooms right we wouldn't mind saying burn but the problem is the republicans are playing chicken and the republicans are willing to die they're 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 driving the car toward us and they're saying you know what i don't mind if everyone dies and i feel like right now there's a certain there's a certain level of like if you had the choice between all human life no longer existing or Trump getting another term, I would let Trump have another term and then hope that over time the world would heal. The Republicans really would let the world die. 
rather than lose. And they yeah. made that very clear because they don't care about life. And that's why people call them a death cult. Anytime right. anything prolongs life, Republicans oppose it. Right. So supposedly they're libertarians. They they believe in getting government off our back. And Fox News is now having a tough time on the vaccine. They really don't know what to tell their listeners. They say I'm getting the vaccine, but it's up to you. These mask mandates are horrible. Nobody should be forced to get a vaccine. And people then they don't dying. work. They constantly, they constantly tell people the vaccines don't work enough and they're not worth getting. They constantly are alarmist about the side effects and they and they have lied and lied and lied to make people believe that the side effects are even close to the damage that COVID itself will cost. And honestly, this is all the result of years and years of the Republicans being the party of rejecting nuance and detail and always oversimplifying things because a disease will never adhere to that rule. So as diseases are nuanced and they're complicated and Republicans have long said anything nuanced and complicated is a lie. Right, right. They're they're in trouble. Well, they're never in trouble. But Fox News is backtracking. They don't know what to do. Hannity is saying they are in trouble. No, they are in trouble. This is the stupidest. This is one of the stupidest pills they've ever chose to die on, honestly. And because and and it shows what happens when you have a transactional ideology. Republicans have no ideology at all anymore. It's all transactional having to do with how they think it affects Trump. So. If the vaccines they thought would help Trump, they'd be they'd be all vaccine. They'd be they'd be telling everyone to get vaccinated. But because they don't think it helps and because he doesn't have to be in power, they just want everyone to die because that's that's all that matters. Sarah Huckabee now calls it the Trump vaccine. She's right. Which is their which is the sad which is the sad centrists attempt at trying to somehow salvage a way to both support Trump and not kill tens of thousands of people. But that's the problem. It's slightly nuanced, so it won't work. The right. dumbest argument is always going to rise to the top in the in where the Republicans are now. And it's it's just inevitably going to explode. Yeah. The people like Sean Hannity, the people like Tucker Carlson, the people on Fox are saying, hey, I got vaccinated, but it's up to you to decide. And we're just giving both sides of the story. And by both sides, they mean 99 percent of the time we're telling you vaccines will kill you and that you shouldn't wear a mask. And one percent of the time we're telling you that, hey, I got the vaccine, but it's up to you. That's their idea of fair and balance. And they're trying to appeal to the egos of the people at home who think that every doctor is lying. I mean, what we've seen over and over again are people saying they just they just are telling you this because they want their. And I've seen this many times. They want you to get vaccinated because that's their agenda. And I found it fascinating watching someone say that because you could tell in the way he said it that he doesn't even really know what agenda means because he was saying like, well, getting us vaccinated is their agenda. But the problem was that's where the argument ended. And it's like, right. But why do they want you to get vaccinated? And the answer was, well, because it's their agenda. Like, Oh my God, you have absolutely no idea what you're saying. It's the same thing with the swamp. All those people cheering drain the swamp. None of them had any idea what it meant. 
Right. If you ask those people, like, what's the swamp? It's someone I don't like. Right. None of them knew it had to do with lobbying. Let's look at Fox and Friends, especially the end. Brian Kilmeade, who he's a sportscaster, right? Brian Kilmeade. Brian Kilmeade. Um, I don't know much about Brian Kilmeade. I just remember he was in a little bit of controversy once when he revealed that he thought that interracial uh, children were sicker and less healthy than what he called purebreds, like Norwegians. So, so he's a sportscaster, I believe. And that's who you want to get your medical advice from, a, a sportscaster. A, eugen- on- a, a sportscaster who believes in eugenics, yes. Yes, that's who we want. So this is... Fox and Friends tripping over themselves to get the talking points right on the vaccine. They really don't know what to say. They're getting from, you know, from down from uh, from hell. They're getting their talking points. And let's watch them stumble through this and then pay attention to what Kilmeade says at the end. And remember, these are libertarians, right? So that person guess what there are a lot of people thinking but, if, but listen if you didn't get a vaccination that's your choice and if you did like I did and and they did and maybe you did then you should not wear a mask and if you didn't if you want to go cliff diving this weekend you don't have to check with me it seems a little dangerous but I'm not going to judge you and if you go ahead and put yourself in danger if you feel as though this is not something right. for you don't do it but don't affect my life 90, 99% of the people who are dying from COVID are unvaccinated. That's so their trying, choice. They don't want to die. Uh, so they are, uh, the administration and the government is saying we need the mask mandate to protect the unvaccinated. That, that well, is not, oh, that's not their job. It's not their job to protect anybody. Well, they're pushing, if you read any... It's not their job. Yeah. The one no. thing, the one thing libertarians, the one thing Republicans can agree on is that the government is there to protect you, to keep you safe. Now we don't even, according to Kilmeade, we don't even need, he doesn't want the government keeping us now, safe. That, what, what was great about that clip, and I know most of these people are listening, they don't see it, but if you can watch that clip, I think you should because there's a lot of, there's a lot to see in that clip. Number one, whenever Kilmeade's not speaking, he looks like a deer in headlights. He has the most we he has the weirdest blank expression whenever he's not speaking and i and i mean this this was a perfect example of someone panicking that you you and i both work in entertainment you know what it looks like when someone panics on stage and can't stop talking because their job is to talk that was such a great example of someone improvising a lie and freaking out in real time you could see it on his face you could hear it in his voice that was a man who had no idea what to say but he's trying so hard to say what he thinks the people at home want to hear and then the best part is Ducey and the other co-host i forget her name i'm sorry because they keep changing her uh looked really uncomfortable looked scared looked they looked upset as Kilmeade was speaking because you could tell that they're just like okay here's what we have to say certain things and Kilmeade is interrupting with the dumbest most irresponsible th- and that's the thing i don't think Kilmeade even thinks any of this i don't believe it. i think he's an idiot who's really bad at improvising and is on and is does live tv all day and was that was one of the best examples of bad improv you'll ever see because he had to end it. He he backed himself into a corner and said something he would never in a million years have said until until he had no choice to say, hey, government's not supposed to protect you in any way. You know, that's why we shouldn't have a military. 
Right. Or the police. We like, don't need police. Military and police. Let's defund the police. There. He wants us to defend the, po- the military. The police. He wants the government to have absolutely no hand in protecting you whatsoever. Right. Because that, I mean, it's, it's just so funny to have to sit there and be like, you know, Steve Ducey is the smart one because he realized how stupid it would be to push this idea. But I mean, Brian Kilmeade is famously dumb. I used to write. Uh, co-write though a lot of Fox and Friends sketches on SNL. That was one of the things like a lot of writers will collaborate on. And it, you're in, you're always entirely focused on Kilmeade because he's he's so unaware of how dumb he's coming across that it's truly adorable. Here's where I disagree with you a little bit. I think they believe it. I think what they do is they find idiots like Steve Ducey and Brian Kilmeade and they're given talking points to spout. And these idiots like Brian Kilmeade and Steve Ducey read the talking points as though it's true. That's their education. And so they begin to believe what they're being told to say. The same way Rush Limbaugh began to believe the talking points he was given. That's what happens. Glenn Beck, this is the first time they've been exposed to any quote-unquote critical thinking. So they read what's put in front of them and they go, oh, that must be true. Why why would these people lie to me? They're billionaires. I think it's very likely that they're more like Teddy Ruxpins who say things without ever having a thought in their head. They just mm-hmm. the only thoughts they have are are the act of trying to properly pronounce the words they're saying. Now, what is Jesse Waters? Jesse Waters is not a journalist. He was hired by Bill O'Reilly to torment people on the street, as I remember. Right. Yeah. Jesse Waters was just a really, really bad version of a man on the street comedian, which, of course, I've done myself. So I can say he's the worst one I've seen. And uh, Jesse Waters only job ever has to be obnoxious that's all he does that's that's his role in his jobs is to just be one of these he he just he looks like uh he looks like if ross from friends was raised in a nazi compound (laughs) he's just one of these people who just says dumb things but i mean jesse waters also though even in republican circles is kind of known as a dummy He's just kind of known as like, I, I know he has a show. Yeah, he is. He, he's the host. I've, of heard, the I've, I've, I've heard Republicans no. make fun of him. Like doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They have to show, show respect to somebody who's got a bully pulpit as powerful as Fox news. And the people who I promise you, Fox Jesse news, waters, get, I promise you everyone behind the scenes at Fox news thinks Jesse waters is really stupid. It doesn't matter. I promise you. It doesn't matter because he is out front and he follows Brett bear. He follows their, their respected journalists and the millions of people who watch Fox news, see him come on. They put the, the suit and tie on this chimp. Most of the people watching Fox news think he must be legitimate, that he must be a reliable source of information. Yeah, but he's also there to appeal to a very specific kind of audience member, which is the halfway to getting drunk guy who hates everyone. Okay, you know, we all know this. But but nobody would put they wouldn't be so irresponsible to put a fool on Fox News. That's what the Fox News viewer thinks. He he must know something because he's on Fox News. This is him on the five. Pay attention. 
Just right there, that's more than like a city's emissions if you just cut out the... He's talking about John Kerry's climate czar traveling around the world in a private jet, which isn't necessarily true. I've seen pictures of uh, Kerry, and he travels commercial. Yeah, he's like, maybe he's sometimes he uses a private... Huh? You're right, I've seen him take it. Like, he takes, you know, commercial but flights. Jesse yeah. Waters is saying, look at what a hypocrite our climate czar is. He's flying around the world on a private jet and causing massive amounts of carbon dioxide to go into the atmosphere. But he specifically said more carbon emissions than a city. And in that, and it's very important to concentrate on that exact line. Well, let's because, play this and then. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead and play it. Just right there. That's more than like a city's emissions. If you just cut out the jet flights. And do you really think the Chinese and these Middle Eastern oil kingdoms are going to listen to John Kerry and stop fossil fuels? <laughs> Come on, man. He's just in it for the luxury travel. If you want to stop climate change, you don't fight climate change. If it's getting warmer, you adapt to it. Let's just say the sea levels rise a c- couple inches over the next century, Harold. Okay. It's a great civilization we have here. I think we can adapt to that. The Netherlands, 25% below sea level. They're like a powerhouse in Europe. They didn't just destroy their economy to fight the rise in the sea levels right there. They built reservoirs and kind of adjusted around the coastline and they're fine. They didn't have to break the bank to do it. Now, now, what's really important about that is there are very, there are several moments there where you can, this is what, it's, unlike Kilmeade, who, you know, is an idiot, but, you know, and he's also saying things that you can tell he doesn't mean this was more stark because there were several specific lies in that statement that, you know, that there's no way he believes the thing about it's more emissions than a city. There is no universe where Jesse Waters has the slightest idea how many carbon emissions, how much emissions come out of a city compared to a plane. He made that up off the top of his head, just like he lied about the kinds of flights Kerry's taking. And of course, he's lying about the way the Netherlands was already below sea level did not suddenly Netherlands, and he's comparing that the Netherlands is terrified of climate change there are already plans to relocate about 10 million Dutch people because of climate change they're going to they say in the next 25 years Holland is going to have to move 10 million people yeah but nobody corrects them there's a difference between Kilmeade and Waters here Kilmeade is a panicked person trying to pander and pushing himself further and further into a hole that he can't get out of waters you can see he thinks the people he's talking to are so stupid are so simple that he can just make up anything off the top of his head and they'll believe it because he's a very good example of someone with a huge ego he hasn't earned i think that waters here is is his lies are so much more ridiculous and laughable and like obviously something that he doesn't have anything to back up whereas you said like Kilmeade he got he definitely got talking points that he was sort of regurgitating Waters is improvising a ridiculous bullshit stream here and people and you, and people love him for what he said oh we and more, more importantly said, more, the, said the guy who doesn't believe in evolution right but he also said that Kerry is only doing these trips for the free travel Right. Now that that is the biggest example here of a real example of someone who thinks that he's talking to 
brain dead idiots. Even the people who like Jesse Waters are not so unintelligent that they really believe that John Kerry pretends to believe in climate change for free flights. That's that is what someone who is not good enough at this job makes up off the top of his head. Because there's people like Hannity or Tucker Carlson who are at least a lot smarter than him and can come up with much more believable lies. Carrie's married to the Heinz heiress. Right. And by the way, let me give a good example of that. Carrie's wealthy because of his wife, right? I remember Fox News when Carrie was running for president arguing, well, the Carrie's a hypocrite on climate change because he owns 50 cars. And they said, well, think about all the emissions from those cars. Like, really? And how many of those cars is he driving at once? Right. 50 cars <laughs> creates just as much emissions as one car if they're only operated by one person. You goddamn lying idiots. Right. In fact, Actually, buying 50 cars, buying a car you don't drive is the best thing you could do for the environment. You're helping right. the economy and then not using it to pollute the earth. Instead of 50, you should have 57 cars in honor of the Heinz fortune. Nice. Nice. That's this is. Yeah. So let's talk about Tucker Carlson, shall Tucker we? Carlson. Yes, please. OK. Tuesday, Nancy Pelosi's select committee on the Capitol Hill riot will take testimony from an African-American named Harry Dunn. He was a Capitol Hill police officer who has gotten uh, a little political because of the insurrection. You agree that it was an insurrection. Have you seen the videos? That oh, of course. Oh, oh, yeah. I've, I've I've poured through those. I I find the whole thing fascinating. It is one of the. Yeah, I, th I think it's everything that we know it was. It was a bunch of morons trying to take over the government. Just because they're bad at it doesn't mean it wasn't an attempt. Right. So we have a, a network that denies vaccines, denies COVID. They, they denied that COVID was a problem. They denied that vaccines work. They deny climate change, man-made climate change. And now they're denying that January 6th was an insurrection, that we have Republicans saying they were just tourists. The guy who barricaded the doors, the Republican congressman who barricaded the doors, is now saying it was just tourists. This is uh, Tucker Carlson talking about Harry Dunn, who will be testifying before the House Select Committee. On Tuesday, Pelosi will call a Capitol Police officer called Harry Dunn. Dunn will pretend to speak for the country's law enforcement community. But it turns out Dunn has very little in common with your average cop. Dunn is an angry left-wing political activist whose social media feeds are full of praise, not coincidentally, for Nancy Pelosi. Here's a picture of the two of them together. Racism is so American, Harry Dunn wrote in one post, that when you protest it, people think you're protesting America. Hashtag, leave it to whites to tell blacks what is racist. Hashtag, I stand with Elon Omar. Hashtag, squad. Those hashtags aren't on Harry Dunn, tweet. ladies and gentlemen, just another fact-based witness to the insurrection. He just, just said another fact-based witness to the insurrection. He just read a bunch of hashtags that were not on the tweet. I noticed that, too. I noticed that, too. By the way, do you think if it was a white cop, he would have been named Harry Dunn instead of called Harry Dunn? Do you notice yeah. that? He's yeah. called Harry Dunn as if we're supposed to not believe that. He said it like he doesn't believe it. Really? 
Yeah. Like, where's I mean, the pettiness, the sheer pettiness of Tucker Carlson. You know what this is? This is Tucker hates Harry Dunn for the same reason Kanye West hates Taylor Swift. They didn't actually do anything. They just stood there while you did something wrong. And mm-hmm. their existence itself, when you're a narcissist egomaniac, is unacceptable because you are embarrassed because they are the because they were in some way a victim of your mistake. Therefore, they must pay. And the real problem is what Tucker really thinks is, well, if you were a good cop, you would have let them kill Nancy Pelosi. That's his real attitude. That's why he deserves the lie that he's telling about Harry Dunn. But I mean, this this really shows how far just the mainstream right has gone in terms of embracing bullying and just being a petty ass. I mean, did you see like what Megan Kelly said about Naomi Osaka? No, she's been like harassing her for saying that she has anxiety lately, posting these disgusting attacks, saying that you don't really have anxiety. You just want to be in control. And by not letting me interview you, you're just you have no right to be a professional athlete if you're not going to let us ask you whatever you want. And what a hypocrite you are for doing a magazine cover six months before you said you're feeling anxiety. And it really shows that they're all it's not about the target. It's not about the ideology they're fighting. Their fans just want to see them hurt people who are in some way vulnerable. They yeah, just cruelty want to see is the, Adam Sewer had a piece. Yeah, they the, just uh, want cruelty. They just want bullying. The, the cruelty is the point. They love. Yeah, exactly. Being it doesn't cruel. matter who it is. The act of cruelty is strength to them. So here you have the the right wing saying, don't defund the cops. We love the police. But who's attacking the police? The insurrectionists and Tucker Carlson is attacking the Capitol Hill police. They only like the police. They'll only defend the police when they've shot an unarmed black man. Yeah. Well, they they like the police when the police are an arm of their ideology. When the when the police are part of what they want, they're good. And the moment that they don't endure, I mean, it's the same with the military. General Milley is a hero until he tells the truth. Every every general that worked for Trump was a hero until they told the truth about him. I mean, it's it's a pretty long line when you look at it of uh, how many people were, I guess, terrible decisions by Trump for who to hire. And uh, but yeah, they just they're empowered by cruelty. They're turned on by it, which is the part you really have to. They're turned on here. They're titillated by watching. I mean, that's why a lot of people out there saw Trump mocking a man with a uh, physical disability. Yes, yes. uh, Serge, he and they loved it, even though they won't admit that he did it secretly. They look at it as that's what having balls is saying. I don't care if you're a woman or a guy in a wheelchair or a or a 16 year old. If you are not, a, you will destroy them and say the most petty, childish things to them, because that's to a simple person what strength looks like. Right. 
Well, Tucker Carlson has a place in Montana. He likes to fish. And he was at a sporting goods store. I think they also sell guns, but he was buying bait. And he got confronted over the weekend. Look at Tucker's reaction. Look at how he laughs, how he finds everything so funny. So why can't you just leave say, I guess I, Go ahead. Okay. That, I I know exactly what's going on there because Tucker, we've seen this lately, has been having this really weird thing where he just starts cackling with laughter when he's mm-hmm. uncomfortable. And I've done that personally. That's a weird, involuntary thing. It's only happened to me a few times in my entire life when I'm in a situation that is so uncomfortable, that is so bad. Like, and it usually honest, I'll be honest, it, it had mostly it happened with previous relationships when I was interacting with someone who was experiencing a very bad episode with their mental health and they act in a way that is so scary it it it, only a few times in my life i started laughing and i I wasn't laughing at them there was something involuntary in my body that was making me like vibrate with the vice president does this the vice president what i had tucker's doing that tucker when he laughs like that you can feel it he is it's his anxiety bubbling out of his body because a part of him knows how wrong this is. I really believe that because I've had that exact moment, but but it wasn't something I was doing. Tucker's girl, when he does it, he's good. It looks like he's in on the joke. Like, oh, I get it. This is just a joke. This is just gamemanship. Uh, I'm okay with this. That's how his laugh comes across. I promise you there are butterflies in his stomach when he does that. That is, that is what I really, because it looks so much like that. And you're right. There is a part of it that is the pretend to laugh whenever you don't have an answer to, to pretend something is absurd when it's not. But the way that but you saw him with the uh, with the, the military, I forgot. I'm sorry, I apologize for forgetting who it was. But that a few weeks ago, he started hysterical laughing at someone defending. Oh, no, it was it was a police uh, chief defending uh, Black Lives Matter. And he just started laughing in this just truly maniacal way. I don't think it's a choice. I think he just doesn't know what to do in these moments. And he I think when someone says that to him, he knows that people are dying because he's telling them not to get vaccinated. He just doesn't care because he thinks, well, uh, it, it's the greater good because I'm still pushing other good things and whatever. You know, who cares about these people? They're, they're just probably old and going to die anyway. I think he rationalizes it to himself, but that I app, I think just like with Ann Coulter, I think that these are people who are way more aware of how wrong they're being than they ever come across. They're just committed to it. You are projecting your humanity onto monsters, I think. I think we all do that. I think monsters have that voice. They've just learned to lock it up. Okay. Tucker Carlson, fair enough, is responsible for 
people getting beaten up. There, there were riots yeah. outside this massage parlor in L.A. because he drew attention to a transgender person. Yeah. Disrobing allegedly in front of a child. And now there have been riots and people getting beaten up. He gets he gets black people and the LGBTQ community beaten up, if not shot. Tucker Carlson. Is that a fair statement? Yes. Right. Jesse Waters, as we just saw, is responsible for climate refugees. Just that one little statement about you evolve. Climate change is no big thing. So he's responsible, not personally, but by trivializing it. He has some blood on his hands, doesn't he? Yes, absolutely. And not just for that. And Brian Kilmeade being cagey about whether or not you should wear a mask or, or get a vaccine. You definitely are responsible for the deaths of thousands of people. If you're if you have a pulpit and you're telling people it's up to you to decide whether or not to get a vaccine, they're not safe. I got one, but it's a personal choice. That kind of caginess that gets people killed. We're seeing this now. In I mean, we've seen it like now, but this is not new. not new, but it's not but new. I mean, these are the exact same people who were saying cigarettes don't cause lung cancer. These are the exact same people who in the 80s said, don't make people on motorcycles wear helmets. Remember Reagan, Ronald Reagan said, don't make people wear helmets. It's wrong. It's personal freedom. Same with seatbelts. They do this every time anything makes anyone safer. They go against it because they're just pandering to a drunk on a bar stool saying, you can't tell me what to do. And that doctors are all making it up. They're being paid to say that. Because they cultivated an audience that wants to hear that they could have cultivated an audience of Republicans who cared about, you know, like a different time could have been all about the stock market and making money and and staying out of people's business and being a bunch of Mitt Romney's. And they could have had that audience and they wouldn't need to do this. But they threw that audience away. They threw it in the garbage and they said, we want these people. We want the yahoos, the violent. We want everyone who would join a militia if they could just lose a few pounds. So they're catering to the audience or are they trying to brainwash an audience to cater to a specific sector of the ruling class? I think that now they are 100 percent simply catering to the audience that they already cultivated and that that and that it is a feedback loop that keeps getting worse and worse because they're just telling people at home who they cultivated with their, you know, pretty disingenuous ideology. Now they're just trying to tell them what they think they want to hear. But that's what Trump was before Trump. There was an there was an attitude that you can get the people who don't have the wherewithal to know you're lying to them and you can manipulate them into voting against their better interests, voting against their own health care, voting against their own tax cuts. And you can use them. But then Trump came along as a product of that side. He grew out of that. So it was no longer a manipulation. Now it was just those people in and of themselves are the end game. Just getting their approval wow. and attention so it went from using them to worshiping them and just and now we tell them what they want to hear we reinforce what they want to hear and then it gets fed back so there's no room to improve well I, you know I, it's interesting I, I don't think that i've never thought that way before i've always thought that they were in the service of some deep dark they were Billion, yeah. And they now, they're just, now they're now just they now they're now they just want they just want those people's money and attention. 
and because that's all they have left. They don't, they can't, they can't double back and become Mitt Romney Republicans now without a whole bunch of purging. But I think a lot of smarter Republicans, a lot of the people that you would consider probably the more intelligent, we we don't like them, but we know they're smart. We know Mitch McConnell's not stupid. Paul Ryan's not stupid. They know this is doomed. You know, I don't, I think, you know, Liz Cheney is not the, uh, is not the the angel we're making her out to be right now. Right. She's just better than them, and she's right. really just, she may not be morally better than them at all. She just may be smarter than them. And recognizing, you realize we're all going to stop existing within ten years, right? Like if right. this doesn't stop, right? If we don't Dave go back Cyrus. to John McCain, we're screwed, right? Dave Cyrus, are you performing stand up? Do you have time to perform stand up? Uh jeez, I just did a. I don't think so. I just I've I've been avoiding. Trying to do shows. Uh, I think the, I just booked something for August 15th. So that's a far ways away. Aside from that, I'm honestly trying to just concentrate because I got a few deadlines. I got to I got to meet up. I'm a busy man. Yes, you are. I'll let you go. Dave Cyrus. Follow him on Twitter at Dave Cyrus. Oh, Thank by you, the way, sir. one thing I wanted to just tell you one thing, a little inside joke between me, me and you. you. You can cut it if you want. But I just saw a commercial for something called Tardive Dyskinesia. Do you know what that is? What is it? Tardive dyskinesia. It's a, I saw a commercial for a pill to treat tardive dyskinesia, which is apparently a disease, a neurological disease that can cause symptoms similar to Parkinson's even. And I looked it up. I was just curious what it was. And I saw it is a disease that is caused by long-term use of psychiatric drugs. And there's a new drug to treat it. And I just knowing the conversations you and I have had about the pharmaceutical industry, I thought you'd appreciate learning that there's a big drug now that is exclusively to treat a disease caused by other drugs. Taking too many drugs. We have a drug for that. Yeah. Yeah. We have a pill for people who take too many drugs. Thank you, Dave Cyrus. Right, later. show that's his beat say hello to dan frankenberger we have professor jonathan bick i hope coming up hello my pretentious douchebag there's uh, jonathan bick hello jonathan bick professor jonathan bick we're gonna do a very quick community billboard and we're looking at dan frankenberger with a what are you wearing today 
Oh, I have a, a purple checker, purple checkered shirt with a multicolored scarf and a pastel newsboy cap. It looks wonderful. Thank you. It, I know. Yes. Well, we have a, a fantastic community this Friday night, office hours. Now, that's not office hours and hours, correct? We do office hours the first. Office hours and hours is the first Friday of the month. This right. is the last Friday of the month. So the week after that, we go 24 hours. Is that correct? Correct. That is correct. Okay. Nothing happens here without Dan Frankenberger. And we have uh, a community here. Tell us about Tell us about them. What are they up to? Well, uh, first up today, we have uh, the community David Feldman show celebrities Andy and Sarah have gotten married and they're off and about on their honeymoon. Yes, we, so, uh, we, and we, we've, and we've had pics, pics of them. We, we've shown video of their their honeymoon, right? And the pet, the pet that Sarah sent you, Leonard. And the pet, Leonard, yes. <laughs> yep. So what are we looking at here? This is their honeymoon night. Uh, the lights are off and all you can hear is the crying. <laughs> you, you can't see anything. It's just the lights are off. What is this? Wow. I, I know what that, that's the Badlands, right? Well, that is the Badlands. And uh, yeah, he said he's con contemplating uh, conquering the Badlands of South Dakota. I've been to the Badlands. It's been a while. They are amazing. They're, to me, they're more interesting. I, I'm not going to say more interesting than the Grand Canyon, but there's, they're just, they're incredible. It's a good way to start your first marriage, right? Yes. <laughs> if you can, yeah, go ahead. All right. I'm not saying anything. That's bad. Yes. Congratulations to Andy and Sarah on their, on their first marriage. Congratulations. Is it their first marriage for both? I believe so. I'm good. not 100% sure, but I think Congratulations. so. Congratulations. All right. Oh, my God. Look at that. Yep, this is uh, Andy becoming best friends with a prairie dog. Wow. Now, do you know the term prairie dogging from Rat Race? I've heard the term dogging in porn, but no. There's a great expression called prairie dogging. It's from Rat Race, and my friend Andy Breckman came up with it. He wrote Rat Race. And somebody has to go to the bathroom really badly, and they say, I'm prairie dogging. You've never heard of that expression? I have not. Andy Breckman <laughs> came up with prairie dogging. Your kids have used it. Pull over, I'm prairie dogging. Uh, so that's decide, Andy decide with a prairie dog. Too bad Dr. Jennifer Vertolin isn't here. And because she's an expert on prairie dogs. And behind him, is that a real buffalo? What is that, a bison? Uh, by how uh, relaxed the woman in front of the buffalo looks, I'm going to guess not. Right, right. That <laughs> buffalo is anatom anatomically correct. I mean, if it's a fake buffalo, you could have made it a female buffalo. We don't need to see that. Maybe maybe uh, from a few shows ago, maybe he's trying to find water with one of the, the, the divining rods. Yes, he's a doodle bugger. <laughs> Yeah. Andy looks very happy with the prairie dog. Yes, sir. That's a great shot. That, did Sarah take that? I'm assuming so. Her best photography since we saw Charlotte's 
arse. The cow, remember the cow, the cow's ass? Oh, yeah, Mil- milking. There's Andy. Uh, so in this picture, he's having a, a good time watching the NBA Finals at an Irish bar in Sioux Falls. Uh-huh. E- eating a vegan meal? Yeah, looks like it. That looks fun. <laughs> I guess his team yeah. didn't win. Oh, look at them. In the last picture here, uh, we are on the other side of the state in Deadwood at the bar where Wild Bill was killed. Speaking of Deadwood, I have to go pick up my Viagra. Thank you for reminding me. Hang on. Pick up Viagra. <laughs> Deadwood. Pill. Where is Deadwood? Uh, it's in South Dakota. Wow. So uh, Andy and Sarah help a ton with the David Feldman uh, community. So if you want to send them uh, a few bucks to uh, buy him a drink on their honeymoon, uh, you can. Uh, yeah, how do you do that? You do a uh, PayPal.me PayPal. What is it? PayPal. PayPal.me slash Andy and Sarah Brown, and Sarah has the H at the end. We should do a uh, a thing, a Saturday yeah. night. Oh, we could do a Saturday. We night. could do like a bachelor party for them. The Brown. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that looks depressing. Well, this is Joe in Norway, and he's been traveling around the Arctic the last few weeks. And he writes, uh, after a grueling 10-kilometer hike along the glacial lake, I made it up to one of the arms of Norway's second largest glaciers in the Salt Mountain and Black Ice National Park. And here's a photo. Yeah, but it looks like it's... Cell phone for perspective. Looks like it's receding. It looks like... They yeah, need, it looks like there used to be a lot more ice. Looks like we need ice plugs or do a comb over. Yep. This is the world's worst. No, I'm not going to do the joke. Go ahead. <laughs> what is this? This is from uh, Professor Marianne Cummings. She sent in a couple of pictures of the new splash pad. And it's uh, solar powered in the Fox Valley Park District's newest uh, park. Oh, we'll ask her. She's going to be on later. And she was in Chicago for the Medicare for All March. I see a little rainbow. I'm glad I didn't do a dirty joke. (laughs) And this, I would assume, is more of her park. Yep. She sent in two pictures, and those were the two. I'm assuming this is the entrance. Parks Commissioner, Marianne. Welcoming sign. Yes. And uh, lastly, today, we have... I know what this is. Desi Arnaz's wet dream. Whoa. No. Okay. <laughs> what is that? This is uh, from James Carraway, who we saw a few uh, weeks ago, where he had built his own plane. Right. And this is uh, drums that he built. He said these drums are curly maple, California walnut, and English walnut, uh, and African zebra wood. And he said he also made all the hardware. And the, the conga drums are some of the many I made from 1960 to the year 2000. Wow. And he made so he's, his he's own... A real craftsman. Yeah. It's amazing. amazing. And he made his own plane. Uh, yep. Okay. I'm I looking... to make a sandwich. I, I, I can't find the wolf. I will find the wolf out. We got to wrap it up. Well, uh, yep. We got to wrap it up. And I kind of thought this might happen. <laughs> Very nice. So I, lo- I, I loaded up on my phone. If you want to get anything on to the um, community billboard, go to denfeldman at gmail.com. Check out David's YouTube channel and um, hit David up, David up on Patreon, uh, patreon.com backslash David Feldman Show. And get, 
Thank you, Dan. Let us now go to Connecticut, where Professor Jonathan Bick, sorry to keep you waiting. We were uh, we were talking about fascism and you did a great lecture. And I, I hope you'll keep coming. I want to have you and uh, Professor Ann Lee on Mondays. I have to set something up when I am uh, have a little more energy. We're going to talk a little bit about fascism because we keep getting warned that this is what we're up against. Did you have a chance to see what Dave Cyrus said about Fox? I thought that was an interesting take. Yes. So which uh, which point in particular are we referring to? I always look at Fox or anybody who's a right wing tool. I always think of them as catering and manipulating the audience in order to serve a, a paymaster. But he's saying that the paymaster is the audience, that they're feeding this beast that wants to be told what it wants to hear. And that it's not really about serving the Koch brothers or whatever, you know, dark forces are trying to control our economy, that the audience is the beast. That's interesting, isn't it? Yes, I I think it's a a self-reinforcing model. Right. You know, Fox News sort of created this beast or, or helped to create it. And then um, part of their mission is to satisfy the beast that they created. So right. I think it's a self-reinforcing cycle. Right. But is Rupert Murdoch pushing an agenda that benefits the people who meet in, in Sun Valley, Idaho, every year? Or is he pushing the agenda just to keep the ratings up? I guess he's doing both. And they just happen to be symbiotic, right? Yes, I, that would be my view that he's doing both. Who benefits from telling people not to wear a mask? That's catering to the audience that doesn't want to wear a mask, right? There's no financial benefit to telling people not to wear a mask, right? No, I don't think there's a financial benefit. Uh, I, I think there is the benefit of creating this uh, group that has an identity. And, you know, not wearing a mask became politicized and part of this identity. So in, in that sense, it helps to reinforce and strengthen that identity. Uh, and and they're able to manipulate those people uh, more easily when when there's that kind of cohesiveness. This is worldwide. We're seeing, I was looking at anti-vaxxers over the weekend in Greece and Great Britain, anti-science, anti-doctors. People who listen to this show send me articles to read. Somebody was kind enough to send me an anti-Fauci, anti-vaccine, uh, article from Substack written by somebody who has an MBA. That's his, is an MBA, and he's writing about why we shouldn't trust Dr. Fauci. And I'm thinking, is it asking too much to get your 
vaccine information from scientists? Isn't that doesn't that make sense that the scientific community should be the first person, first people you trust on vaccines, not people with MBAs? Yeah, that that would be my go to. Um, But, you know, it may be slim pickings among actual scientists to find someone who agrees with them. So that may be the issue. Okay, we had talked about fascism. Was it last week? Yes, I believe so. Uh, Howie, uh, we have to. Okay, Howie Klein is coming. We have a hard seven. Uh, I wish I had a hard seven. Uh, Hello. So last week uh, we have uh, he comes up at at seven o'clock. We were talking about how fascists like democracy, you were saying, but only so far as they can manipulate democracy. They like to take power under the cover of democracy. But then once a fascist has the power, they get rid of democracy. What else? Can you tell us about fascism, please? Sure. Well, another another characteristic is that they reject socialism, they reject trade unionism, and they reject uh, feminism. Uh, you know, it is fascism is a movement and an ideology of the extreme right. It's actively hostile to all groups on the left, you know, whether they be socialists, communists, liberals, independent trade unions, feminists, gays, uh, all of these groups and others become the targets of fascists for scapegoating, persecution, violence, and terror, uh, partly because they prioritize class, gender, sexual orientation, rather than the nation which is really at the heart of fascism. It's this ultra-nationalism. Right. And the nation must always be uh, of greatest concern to uh, to fascists. So So let me, just so we have new listeners or people didn't hear your last segment, when you say this is what fascists do, nobody, Orban in Hungary or Bolsonaro in Brazil or Donald Trump would never say they are fascists, as opposed to the 30s, where Mussolini and Hitler, and maybe Franco, did Franco say, yeah, I'm, I'm a fascist. They celebrated fascism back then. Is that correct? Yes. Now it's discredited. Nobody would dare run as a fascist. It's a bad brand. It's a bad yeah. brand. So we see them under different names, the alt-right, Le Pen in France, Marine Le Pen, would the front, they would call themselves nationalists more, right? Right. Um, but they yes. wouldn't, would they admit to being fascists? Uh, I don't think so, at least not yet. Right. Uh, they, they, they would use dog whistles to appeal to those who are outright fascists, uh, neo-Nazis and people like that. They'll use uh, dog whistle uh, terms to, you know, to tell those people, we're on your side, don't worry about it. Um, but, you know, fascism is definitely something that uh, most people see as a negative 
and they are still aware of the disastrous consequences that came from it uh, in the 20th century. And I think that's an important point that you raised, David, because some people, when they define fascism, they define it so narrowly that they confine it to the 1920s to the 1940s. They say, you know, this is fascism, and it was really only a period of this, uh, it was only an artifact of this time. Uh, You know, it's not something we have now. I think this is a mistake uh, because we could get there and there are indications that we are moving in that direction in a number of ways. And we should take advantage of the fact that it is a bad brand, right? It it is not well received uh, to label people who believe this ideology as fascist. So we we see a scapegoating of women. You just said they, they, they don't like feminists. They don't like socialists. They scapegoat the other. It is conceivable that this is what Hitler and Mussolini and and Franco did. but now they might make exceptions. You might see an iteration of fascism where uh, maybe they're not so anti-Semitic. Maybe they're making nice with Bibi Netanyahu. Like Orban in Hungary makes nice with Bibi Netanyahu, the ex-prime minister of Israel. So that's not... How can you compare Orban to Hitler? Hungary loves Israel. So they, they tweak it a little to make it... Oh, definitely. Right. Yeah. They can, the groups that are targeted uh, can change. And, uh, you know, for example, Mussolini didn't, was not particularly anti-Semitic at the beginning, uh, but he received a lot of pressure from Hitler to introduce that into his version of fascism. And what is the end game for fascism? What, what do they ultimately want? What is their utopia? What what they say they want, or or what the what they really they actually, want? What but you know behind closed doors, what is it that they really want? I think they want power. I think they want to be able to impose their vision on the world without having to listen to anyone else. Right? Because these are uh, uh, fascist parties and movements are totalitarian in nature. That is, they want to control all aspects of society. And they want to, you know, whether it's the, you know, the psychotic uh, anti-Jewish venom that Hitler had, or, you know, whether it's um, the uh, anti-immigrant position that that other fascist leaders have had, um, it, it can be specific to the individual uh, leader, the people who go along with it, the the people at the top who go along with it, have a vested interest because if they're in on the ground floor, then they get power and money, or they already have power and money, they get more power and money, and they protect the power and money they already have, and they don't see it as that big a threat. Right. Yeah. They're, they're not as terrified of it as 
people who have who might not want a fascist regime. So they go along with it. They keep their mouths shut. Yes. If the choice for, let's say, the conservatives is a choice between fascism and communism, they're going to pick fascism because uh, at least in that way, their property, their control of business, their control of wealth is protected. Um, and this is what we saw in Germany. The conservatives in Germany, the traditional conservatives, uh, felt that they could go along with Hitler, that they could control him. Um, they were wrong about that, certainly. But the fact is that most businesses remained in private hands. Workers were still exploited. And um, capitalism went on. Uh, you know, other things that conservatives value, say the, the family, particularly the patriarchal family, that went on and was sort of supercharged. The man was definitely the head of the Nazi family, right? And that, that's quite common in, the, in most right-wing ideologies. And religion uh, was used to legitimize uh, the rule of the leader and to control the people. I don't know if you've ever seen Triumph of the Will, uh, which was um, directed by Lenny Riefenstahl uh, for Hitler to create a propaganda film. If, if you recall the opening scene of that film, liter Hitler is literally descending from the clouds. And you see the shadow of his plane on the ground that uh, creates this the shadow of a cross. So, you know, this imagery is, and there are other things in that film as well, is saying, you know, th this is somebody that's sent from God to save the German people. And on the belt buckles, like, right. uh, God is with us in German, that on all uh, members of the, of the German military. Was Nazi Germany anti-religious, though? No, I, I, I mean, it certainly was anti-Judaism, right? Uh, and, and it was not friendly to Catholics, to, uh, Catholicism, uh, right. either. Uh, but for you know, Protestant um, uh, Christians, uh, it used that uh, to control people. Yeah, right. But uh, Hitler didn't wear religion on his sleeve. No, he would he would take you know some of the uh, he would try to take some legitimacy from saying you know that he was sent from God. Right. So he but was not, he wasn't explicit about it. He was the religion. He, he or at least he would prefer to be the religion. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. So we have you have to come back on Thursday. Do you mind? Not at all. Uh, I apologize. Uh, well, I think it makes sense to, you know, give people doses of fascism in small amounts because it's <laughs> not the most pleasant topic. Uh, yeah, we had Frank Schaefer on and he was talking about a theocracy and 
I wonder, you know, if everybody has a hammer, they say, then everything's a nail. So if your expertise is evangelical Christians, then you say, okay, our biggest threat is evangelical Christians. If you're an expert on Orthodox Jews, then you're the biggest uh, threat to this country would be APEC. Uh, I think there's not one grand unifying threat to the world. I think it's a host of things. Uh, interesting. Uh, yeah. You'll, you'll come back Thursday where this is a, uh, I think fascism is a perennial. It's something we can uh, always discuss. What are you reading these days for enjoyment? Oh, for enjoyment? Well, I, I was reading up on fascism, but I wouldn't call that enjoyment. Well, what, so. do, you, what do you read when you're trying to read uh, about fascism? Well, I'm, I'm uh, going to start uh, soon a, a book called The uh, Code of uh, Capital, which was uh, rec to, recommended to me by a member of the Felzo universe. Um, I, I am interested in um, political economy and um, issues related to, uh, to economics and, and politics. Great. Thank you. I hope Howie Klein is coming up. Uh, he should be. Howie Klein is coming up. So thank you, Jonathan Bick. And uh, thank you for indulging our scheduling issues. Jonathan Bick, I'll see you Thursday, I hope. And of course, Friday. Thank you, jo thank Professor you. Jonathan Bick. Thank you. Let us now go to Los Angeles, where Howie Klein is standing by. Are you there, Howie? I am there. Did, did you say Congressman uh, Jonathan Bick? No, no, Professor Jonathan Bick. Okay. I was thinking, is there a congressman that I've never heard of that was hiding all this stuff? You, you don't know Congressman Jonathan Bick from Connecticut? I do now. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I've always wanted to create a fake congressman and just have him walk through the Capitol in a suit and tie and the, the, the flag pin and videotape him. A little, a little congressional pin. It's not a flag pin. Yeah, and just have him walk around. And how many Congress, were there 435 Congress people? If we had a Congressman Jonathan Bick from Connecticut walking around with a pastor's haircut, and well, you bet. I don't know about Connecticut because there aren't that many congressmen in Connecticut, so people tend to know them all. But if you take a state like California or Texas, where there are so many and no one knows them all, that might make more sense. Uh, although, I'll, and I'll tell you something: I have heard members of Congress, some who have told this to me, that you know that they've never spoken to many of their uh, colleagues, that they don't know them, and uh, you know would know, would know them. Wouldn't know Congressman Bick one way or the other. You could do it. Is it Although, the, on the other hand, you know, like me, I, I would assume they know the names of congressmen. So when you when I thought you just said Congressman Bick instead of Professor Bick, I thought to myself, I know the name of every congressman unless there's a brand new one that I know about, and which is impossible. And there is no Congressman Bick. So you'd have. So I, I don't know. I mean, and there'd be some like that who who would know right away. Certainly, uh, you know, someone like Mark Savasco would know. Right. But other, yeah, I guess others wouldn't. Other staffers and other members of Congress might not know. You could get away with it. Now, is but it against? Of, is it against? Why the, don't you do Congress? 
Feldman. Congressman Feldman and making deals like I would have an entourage. I'd get like I'd get like people from office hours. To, we'd all meet in Washington and I'd have some photographers and they'd be my, you know, have an entourage of people. And I'd try to like make deals with uh, some of the Republicans. You yell, hey, Ted, Ted, come on over here for a photo op. <laughs> <laughs> that isn't against the law, is it making making deals no i and i meant ted cruz by the way not yes. ted Lou. right right Ooh. of course well howie klein is the founder and treasurer of the blue america pack they raise money for progressive candidates and he writes down with tyranny which everybody should read it's it's a must read and there's some great there's some great art that you have over there i have some questions that i wanted to ask you about go ahead say about that about the art um, that's great. Because oh, I, you know what? I just got a I just got a text. Did you hear that text go off? Yes. Okay, so I, I want to uh, read it. I'm so happy. Hi, Howie. The PET scan showed no concern of lymphoma and a recurrence at all. That's great news. My doctor, just just a second, just reporting because every year I have to go and get a uh, a PET scan. And I just got it last week, and she's just telling me just now that uh, it's all all clear. That is... Yes, I feel good. I mean, there was no reason to think that, I mean, it was very routine, but uh, I feel good about it. Yes. Anyway, sorry for interrupting. No, let's, let's, no, hang on. That's great news. Let it wash over, and we continue. (laughs) Uh, uh, That's great news. the hearings start on Tuesday. The, the, well, they've already started. Wait, wait, wait. It was one of the, <laughs> you mentioned something about the great art. Yes. And, and I just want to acknowledge that and, and say thank you for saying that. I have like uh, some really good artists working for me or working with me. And one of them and I are about to publish a book uh, with, with her art and uh, my babbling. Right. I'm showing everybody the Chris Christie on the beach. That isn't not one of that's my other artist. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's not that's not going to be in the book. Okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, so let's talk about January six. Yes, and I love talking about January six. What a great day in American history. Yes, the public hearings start on Tuesday. Manana. Well, should. Congress be conducting an investigation when they themselves are the crime scene. They are the victims. Shouldn't this? Oh, 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 I see. They're the victims because some of them are the perpetrators as well. Right. Uh, And Pelosi uh, barred some of the people who would either be perpetrators or witnesses uh, from being on, from being on the committee, but now you're saying that they were the victims. That's an interesting perspective. I, I hadn't thought of that. And but it's going to be. I mean, I don't all, know how else you could you could uh, you could do this. Can you trust Congress to look into this? They they didn't do. The, would you agree that the that both impeachments showed that as an investigative arm of our government? Congress, at least when the Democrats are in charge, they're woefully inadequate. They're not willing to call witnesses. They weren't even willing to call witnesses during the second impeachment. 
Right, they wanted to just rush that through. But th- this one, they don't want to rush through. In fact, they want to slow walk it into the uh, 2022 midterms. Because? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think this is going to get such, such gigantic uh, media scrutiny, and they want it to get uh, gigantic media scrutiny, that they will, um, that they're going to do their best. Uh, what can I say? Uh, look, Pelosi already named not the uh, the best possible person to run the thing. Uh, but there are some good people on the committee. Uh, you know, Adam Schiff will be, do a good job. Jamie Raskin will do a good job. And, you know, um, I really believe that, um, I'm, not a, I'm not a big fan of hers, but I really believe that uh, um, Liz Cheney will do a good job. And I have some faith also in the other Republican that Pelosi just put on there, Adam Kinzinger. I think that these people are, are uh, patriotic. They're all patriotic, uh, and I think that they will do a good job. Now, she put some real stiffs on there as well who are worthless. I mean, really, really bad. There's a uh, coke, uh, coke addict named uh, Pete Aguilar who she put on the committee you know, for political reasons. Is he from New and Mexico or, or California? No, no, he's from um, California. Southern California. He, right. He's a a corrupt piece of crap that, uh, you know, again, for political reasons, she stuck him on the committee. He's just terrible. He, if he comes on, just shut the TV off for five minutes. Well, if he's a coquette, is this the who? Not the underage. He didn't have the problem with the underaged person, right? Oh, that was Matt Gates. You said what you're talking about? No, there was some other Democrat. But go ahead. We, we, um, no, no, no. That no. You're talking. I know who you're talking about. That's a friend. It's actually a very good friend of his who who had the problem with the underage girl. Right. Uh, no, uh, Aguilar is. Um, he's he's a very very conservative, very very corrupt Democrat from Southern California, and Pelosi put him on the committee, and she always does that. She'll always put a certain number of people on the committee for no reason at all except politics, and that was what this was about. And he it, it just he just defiles the committee with his presence. He has nothing to offer at all. He was like a, uh, you know, a slimy oil industry lobbyist or something before he slipped into Congress, just as bad as it comes. And but so the the slow walking, you kind of laughed because we know why they're slow walking it. Be, they need something to grab the headlines when the bipartisan infrastructure bill falls through and then the four point five trillion infrastructure bill falls through. They're going to need something to run against the Republicans on and it will be the insurrection. You don't see it. Do you see anything that the Democrats can run on in 2022 other than we're not as bad as the Republicans. Do you, in our lifetimes, have you ever seen them run on something other than we're the lesser evil? That's what they run on. That's what the, the Democratic Party is. They're the lesser evil party. Well, I'm trying to think. Yeah, LBJ. Right? Uh, yeah, I know. I don't want to admit I'm that old. Uh <laughs> so I'm gonna play dumb. I don't. I, uh, yeah. So, I mean, are there what numbers have they put on the board so far? The, the the child tax credit, I guess, which is big, but it runs out. They some people say in a year, some people say in six months, and some people say it's not getting to the people who need it. So, other than the the child tax credit, what what have they done? Well, 
You know, I mean, I think the plan was to run on, uh, you know, curing COVID or something, and that isn't working out. So they really don't, they haven't accomplished anything. Uh, so, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, yeah, they, 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 so they will have to run on the insurrection, I guess, unless they unless they somehow manage to uh, to accomplish something, which I don't see. I mean, there's a, they can, if they want to, pass a, uh, you know, some great stuff through reconciliation. They should, but I don't think they've got it in them. You say, you write over down with Cherney that Biden is asleep when it comes to voting rights, that getting rid of the filibuster should be his chief priority. And he gave an interview with Don Lemon. He says nothing will get done in in Washington if we get rid of the filibuster. Nothing. He's just very old, and you know he's living in a in in a in a time that you don't want to admit you were born in. Right. What are you going to say? I mean, did we not? Did we know this before he was elected? Yes, we knew. I mean, I I, I was just happened to go upstairs uh, this morning to put my socks on, and I was sitting there, and MSNBC was on, and there I was looking at this the scene of him signing some executive order. And um, everyone on the stage was seemed like they were a hundred years old. I mean, it, it was really like scary. I mean, everyone was could anyone on that stage could have just sort of, except for one woman who in a in a wheelchair, who actually looked vibrant and alive. Everybody else on the stage looked like they could like keel over and die within a second. <laughs> right, and maybe we'd be. I don't want to say better off, but uh, yeah, don't say it. I'm not going to say that. But they are old. Yeah. Pelosi's 80, right? And she's a spring, yeah, she seems like a spring chicken uh, compared to some of these other people. My God, I mean, they, they were just like sort of like crawling along the stage and it was just uh, just painful to watch. And I, and I keep thinking like, you know, I mean, you know, in, in other lines of work, there's, there's a, uh, you know, kind of a cutoff point when you right. retire. But, you know, I mean, they're talking to Chuck Grassley who's already like, you know, into his, uh, I, I don't I, I mean, he's so old already and, and losing it. And they're talking about getting him to run for another six year term, which will, you know, I, I mean, you know, they put up with Strom Thurmond, who was, you know, people didn't want to sit near him because his diapers would be filled with, say, I'm not joking. I mean, I know it sounds funny and you have comedians on all the time, but I'm telling you the truth. Uh, and, you know, the, the poor guy would get lost, you know, coming back from emptying them out. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and he just felt like, you know, it was, he was entitled to die in office. And, 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 you know, long after he could make any sense or even, you know, uh, talk coherently. Right. What do you anticipate these public hearings on the insurrection? What do you anticipate is going to come out? I am spooked. You know, I want Medicare for all. I want Bernie's infrastructure plan. Uh, I want voting rights. I if if you want Medicare for all, then you're going to have to put up in a big way. And you're going to have to get everyone who listens to your show to really not just cheer 
to get more progressives in Congress by re- and replacing conservatives, whether they are re- Republican conservatives or Democratic conservatives. But the only way to get Medi- Medicare for all is to support the campaigns of people who are running on that issue. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. And it, right now, it is not going to happen. You know, I was talking to a guy today who's going to run against Julia Bra- Julia Brownlee, a kind of middle of the road, crappy Democrat in Ventura County, California. And I said, "Well, what made you decide to run against an incumbent who's going to probably beat you?" And he said, "You know, she's not for Medicare for all. People in this district voted for Bernie, and they want Medicare for all. And we are we are um, we are going to fight her on that on that issue." She refuses to, um, to to co-sign the bill. And some of the co-signers of the bill, by the way, they're not really for Medicare for all anyway. They're just putting their names on right. it to help them not get primaried. But this one won't even put her name on the bill, uh, Julia Brownlee. So, you know, we really have to support these people, which means, uh, you know, getting active in their campaigns in some way, following closely who is and who isn't for real, Donating if you can afford it, um, and it, it's not easy. It's really not easy, and, and, and I'm not saying it's going to be. It's going to be hard. Well, but why is Chantel Brown? You want for all, right? I'm sorry. You want Medicare for all, don't you? Yes. Why is Chantel Brown? I don't want to embarrass you, and, and I don't mean to, but um, you need you need to donate to candidates who have who 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 are, who are fighting for that. Candidates who not who just mouth it, but the ones who who are basing their their campaigns on it. Who are that's why they're running. I mean, you do you do a service by having them on your show. I'm really not trying to embarrass you, and and that's that's more than most people do. That's a lot. Um, I didn't go to the I I, I didn't go to the march on Saturday. I felt bad. The Medicare for All march. I feel like I everybody has to do what they can do, you know. Uh, and going to going out into a crowd during this uh, what's going to be some horrendous uh, uh, wave of a pandemic, where lots and lots of more people are going to get sick and people are going to die. I don't blame anybody for not going out right. into crowd. Uh, on the other hand, like I just said, you have these people on your show. You expose them to to new. Uh, to new, new supporters, and that's that's a really big thing, and, that, and that's important. Nina Turner, the yeah. a good example, perfect example. Nina Turner, Medicare for all, all the way, Green New Deal all the way, fighting for uh, for working Americans all the way, and 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 the, the all of the enemies of those things are lined up. They are pouring their sewer money into her, into the campaign of some you know opponent. Random opponent of hers, Chantel they, they Brown, just, right? It, whatever her name is, it doesn't matter. It could be John Smith. It right. doesn't matter who the person is. It's just not Nina Turner. They don't care who, who's who's running. They just care it not be Nina Turner. And everything that they did uh, in 2018, the same exact people, the same exact groups, everything that they they did to Marie Newman, they're now doing. And uh, in her campaign in Chicago, they're now doing to. Nina Turner in Cleveland, and they and they won. They close a close election, but they won in twenty um, eighteen against Marie Newman. Just last minute, like pouring money into into the district, and but then two years later, 
Marie Newman was more aware of what was going on and how to fight it, and she came back and beat Dan Lipinski, a blue dog. And hopefully Nina Turner will do the same now. Right. And India Walton in Buffalo, is, is she going to be the mayor or is the incumbent? We have a, a, a female socialist who won the Democratic primary in Buffalo. Against incumbent mayor, Democrat. Right. And he's going to run as a write-in candidate. But that says a lot when, when a city like Buffalo elects a, a African-American woman who's a socialist. Is yeah, well, Buffalo uh, is is different from <laughs> Greater Buffalo. <laughs> greater Buffalo is is a little bit more conservative, but the city itself is not really conservative. So they have a lot of young people. They have a lot of minorities. Uh, it's a it's a pretty cool city, and you know, and there wasn't a, a giant turnout. Uh, certainly, his supporters were not. You know, they well, what are they voting for? Status quo. Go out and vote for the status quo. Right. Why? Not making anybody happy. The status quo is crap. So they didn't come out and vote. Her her uh, people were voting for reform. They came out in greater numbers. It was a low turnout election, but progressive turned out turned out more than conservatives. So she she won the primary. So you're asking, will she win the general? Hard to say. Again, it's going to be a, it's going to be all about turnout. She's got momentum on her side now. Uh, he will have uh, big money on his side. Alan Grayson, I think he had a guest column over Down with Tyranny. I think that's where I read him talking about the filibuster. Val Demings. It wasn't a guest column. It was, um, it, it, he, was, he was one of the people who we talked about the filibuster with at, at Down with Tyranny. There were two others uh, as well, all, all of them running for the U.S. Senate. One in Wisconsin, Chris Larson, and the other in North Carolina, Erica Smith. Alan had some incredibly wonderful quotes so because of that, uh, people tend to remember. And Val Demings, the Democratic Congresswoman, looks like she's going to be anointed by Schumer, right? That Schumer wants anoint her. She she's nothing. She's she's literally nothing. You know, she I shouldn't say she's nothing. She's a black woman. Period. End of story. That's it. And that's for some people, that's enough. Hey, you know, we need more black women in Congress, whether they're a great one like Nina Turner or nothing like Val Demings. Val Demings has, has been in Congress for some time now, has accomplished exactly zero. I, I mean, zero, nothing, absolutely nothing. Whether she was there or not there would have made no difference at all to anybody, so let alone her, her constituents. She is just nothing. And, and now nothing, they want nothing to be in the Senate because they want nothing. They want lots of nothing. And they figure, hey, better nothing than, than uh, someone like Alan Grayson is going to make trouble. And Rubio is going to beat her. Rubio, Rubio is going to wipe the floor with her if she's the nominee, which is probably likely. And this is what Schumer wants. Schumer would rather have nothing in there than, than Rubio. But he'd rather have Rubio in there than Grayson. He doesn't want the kind of headache that Grayson is going to bring him. Grayson is going to make trouble every single day in every single way for the establishment. That's, that's what Grayson does. And Schumer hates him. And Schumer does, is petrified of Allen. Allen you know, Schumer's very smart. Allen is smarter. Schumer only has one degree from, uh, from Harvard. Allen has four degrees from Harvard. right. Right. So what happens in October? What happens to me? 
when, you know, they don't get it done, when the infrastructure bill doesn't get passed, neither infrastructure bill gets passed. We see some executive orders and they start running against the Republicans, but they don't get rid of the filibuster. What, what, what do we what am I supposed to think? Am I supposed to just completely stop voting for Democrats and just completely give up on them? What do you do? Yeah, should have long ago. I mean, you you can vote for progressives, but voting for Democrats? I mean, come on. Why vote for Democrats? Yes, we vote for progressives who we believe in and who are going to do things. People like Nina Turner. We do not vote for people like Val Demings. There is no, you know, look, between Val Demings and uh, Marco Rubio, obviously Marco Rubio is the greater evil. She's the lesser evil. Evil is evil. Are you, am I allowed to say uh, the F word on here? Or Go you ahead. Not? Go ahead. Evil is fucking evil. Right. I don't care if it's lesser evil or the greater evil. Evil is evil. No way should anybody vote for Val Demings. No, there is no reason to vote for Val Demings. None. You know, the other day, I'm embarrassed to start talking about this yet. It's going to make me more enemies on your show. But a woman called me up. I don't know who gave her my phone number. I didn't ask her because I was already screaming at her before I, I could have asked her. Uh, and she's, she wants uh, Blue America to support her. And, and she gave a reason. She, is, she will be the first Filipina in the uh, California state legislature. And I said, what do you mean? What about uh, Bonta, the new, uh, the new attorney general of California? He, he's a, a Filipino. She said, I didn't say Filipino. I said Filipina. I will be the first woman of Filipina, Filipino her- heritage. And I said, and that's the reason why we're supposed to vote for you? I said, I'm not interested in identity politics. I want to know about your policies. I want to know what you're going to do for the people of your district. Tell me about that. Don't tell me that you're a woman Filipina. That's not why I vote for somebody. And she started fighting with me and kept insisting that how important that is. She finally agreed that she would tell me about her, her a long time it took, but she finally agreed she would tell me about her policies and never did. Instead, she said that she voted, she voted for Hillary she voted for Biden in the, no, she didn't vote for Biden. She voted for Kamala Harris in twenty, <laughs> wow. and she voted she voted for um, Hillary in twenty sixteen. I said you voted for Hillary in twenty sixteen. You're telling me you're a progressive. You're insisting you're a progressive. How is voting for Hillary instead of Bernie? How is that progressive? Please explain that to me. Well, it's because I'm a woman. And I said, I, I, I can't talk to you anymore. I started yelling at her. <laughs> on her. Right. And you're the bad guy. Oh, I'm definitely the bad guy for something like that. You know, the Titanic is sinking and there are no lifeboats. And you look up and you go, wow, it's a uh, <laughs> it's a female captain going down with the ship. Isn't that great? <laughs> The captain is a female. It's fantastic. I I feel so much better. Not only a female, but a a Filipina. (laughs) So, and I wanted to say something, by the way. Like, when I think about, like, how I um, was cured of cancer, I I, I think there were were a few people on my team, but the the two most important ones are the one who, first of all, the one who just... um, who just uh, texted me in the beginning of our conversation today, uh, who is uh, a woman from China. 
she's my chief doctor. I, I you know, uh, uh, I don't want to say how much money I contributed to, to her research, but it was a lot. Because I, 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 I not just because she saved my life, but because the work that she's doing, I mean, the doctor who was supposed to be my doctor, uh, he was in another hospital. He's the president of the lymphoma. He was the president of the Lymphoma Foundation of America. His, the treatment that he planned for me, I wouldn't be on the phone with you right now because I would have died a couple of years ago. Right. And that, that was the standard treatment that they were giving to people who had this com, com, uh, particular kind of lymphoma. Nobody lived. You, li- you live for a year. Then you have to get it again. You could live for another year if you were lucky, and that was it. It was over. Uh, and she inv- she came up with another way to do it, which is now becoming uh, somewhat standard. Um, and and I was one of I don't want to say I was a guinea pig, but I was one of uh, one of the early uh, uh, people that she used this on. In any case, the other person is a Filipino woman who is my chief nurse who was the one who was doing everything for me all the time, who I rejoice so much to see, so much that she wound, she wanted to, and, and I know she feels the same way about me, by the way, and, and you might think, oh, they all you know act that way. No, she had her husband come in to meet me when I was getting treatment one day. I mean, I feel like I've grown up with her family and know her children. Uh, so, uh, I, I mean, anyone who's thinking that I have some kind of animus towards women or towards right. Filipino women uh, is completely wrong. I'm just saying that isn't the reason to vote for somebody. Right. That's a, you know, Blue America is doing everything we can for Nina Turner. Blue America is doing everything we can for Erica Smith. Guess what? Both of them are African-American women. The fact that I'm saying that, that uh, Val Demings is nothing, it has nothing to do with her race or her, her gender. It's, it has to do with her record in Congress. Right. And our vice president, who's a disgrace. <laughs> An absolute. And how about our president-to-be? Because in, in 2022, we'd have to pick between her and uh, Ron DeSantis or, or Mike Pence or Donald Trump Jr. or God knows what. Yeah, Donald Trump Jr. is winning the stri- Like he outperformed his father in a straw poll. No, no, no. It's if Trump. No, it was. First of all, it wasn't a straw poll. It was a. uh, If we're talking about the same poll that came out today, it was a. It was a popularity poll, just a a favorable, unfavorable. Wow. And this was if the father isn't isn't in it. Uh, You know, he he came in first by one point in in a poll that has a three uh, three and change point. margin of error. So really, he and, and, and DeSantis were tied at the top, and nobody else came close to the two of them. And so I would I mean, they're both so awful. I mean, what, how, are you gonna, how do you distinguish between Ron DeSantis, who's responsible for, for probably more, more deaths than any governor in America, uh, and, 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 and just a nothing burger like uh, Donald Trump Jr.? I mean, Donald Trump Jr. makes Val Demings seem like Einstein. <laughs> But, you know, his father, Don Sr., must be so proud of his son, right? It just that's, you know, maybe well, he, I, the son is, is a fucking moron. You, you don't yeah. think you don't think Donald Trump Sr. is going, wow, maybe I should step aside and let oh, my I think Donald Sr. is lying and saying, I can't believe these rooms are even worse than I thought they were. <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, we're uh, we love you, and uh, we're uh, that's great news, uh, and uh, 
who should we be giving money to this week? Nina Turner, right? Yes, and but Nina Turner immediately. And the reason I'm saying immediately is because it's coming down to the last week, and it is the last week, and, and they need that money for the get-out-the-vote effort, and that every cent will be spent immediately. Don't send a check. Uh, you have to go on Act Blue and give it to Act Blue. Okay. Um, and she, and she needs it, and because the money is just pouring into the district now from the worst uh, corporate sources. That frackers, are. right? The the intercept writes that that a frackers absolutely, sure. and um, uh, the the uh, the Zionist lobby, the anti Palestine lobby, is, is is pouring huge amounts of money in. They're doing everything they can to defeat Nina Turner, and she needs that money to have her team on the ground bringing people to the polls. That's the most important thing right now. That's how she's going to win. And that's how she's going to beat all these, this, this, this onslaught of t- horrible TV ads that, that, are, that are being just lie after lie after lie. And people are going to say, wow, I've seen that so many times. And, you know, subconsciously, going to, they, some of them are going to think it might be true. Yeah. All right. Next week, we, is, the, is the election in Ohio, in Ohio right? The congressional election. California, uh, Ohio 11, that's right. Yeah. Cleveland. Yeah. And in Texas, on tu- this Tuesday, we find out if Wright's widow, the the idiot Republican congressman who died from COVID, if his well, widow. Yeah, I like to think of him as the idiot Republican who died from not wearing a mask. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so is the wife going to run or, or someone, you know, a little bit further to the right than her? Right. Right. And they're both so horrible that you can't say which one is more horrible, except you can say Trump is supporting her. So she must be more horrible. In, in Texas, a moderate is somebody who wears the mask over their mouth, but breathes through their nose. That's a, a, <laughs> Repub- <laughs> a Republican moderate. I love you, Howie. I'm glad. Uh, great news. There's good news uh, out there. There's good yes, news. There is. I, uh, I'm going to call you tomorrow just to fill you in on some nonsense that will uh, make you happy. Howie Klein oh. is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack. They give their money. Uh, they, they donate money to only good candidates. And if you're not following it too closely, go to Down With Tyranny and Howie will tell you how to spend your money. Five dollars, ten dollars. It makes a big difference. Nina Turner needs it right now. Go to Down With Tyranny. Read Down With Tyranny. Blue America Pack. Thank you, Howie. Thanks, David. See you next week. Okay, see you next week. Thank you. Howie Klein. That's good news. Well, let us now go to, is it Humboldt? Are we in Humboldt? I am in Humboldt at the moment. Howdy, David. Howdy. Let me do this. Let me just run a bumper So, for editing reasons, and we will be back with David Cobb right after this. Did I come back? Am I back? What? Hang on, hang on. I try to be fancy, and it didn't work. Hang on. Oh, hello. Can you? Can you see me? Hang on. I can see you. How? There we go. Okay. okay. Now I'm back. David Cobb ran for president on the Green Party ticket, and he also managed Ralph Nader's. 
campaign in 2000 in Texas, and he is an activist, a good lawyer, and he joins us today from Humboldt. How are you, sir? You know, I'm mighty fine. Thank you for asking. Although I'll tell you, uh, David, uh, like I am. Uh, so personally, I'm great. I'm happy. I'm healthy. I do meaningful, productive work for which I am uh, appreciated by people I respect and hated by my class enemy. Uh, I, I have a loving relationship with uh, my high school sweetheart. I got a great four-year-old yellow lab that makes my life joyous. Like on a very personal level, every single box is checked. Right. And I am terrified at the global climate catastrophe. It's not just coming, it's here and getting worse. I am terrified as I watch late stage capitalism uh, uh, just turn on the American people the same way we've exploited and oppressed our, our, our capitalism used to do it just to the global south and brown and black skinned people uh, across the world. It's happening in this country. And I wanna name it, I am terrified to watch that the ecological and economic crises together are creating a political crisis in this country because the political system can't solve any of the problems that we're facing. To be clear, our political system was never designed to solve white supremacy or solve the uh, uh, gender injustice or solve uh, environmental problems. I'm actually saying something even deeper, David Feldman, I'm saying that our current political system can't do what it's designed to do, which is maintain order, which is why the ecological crisis and the economic crisis are literally creating a political crisis, which is why absolute fascism is literally emerging in this country. And I'm terrified to watch the Republican Party basically embrace a fascist ideology. And... I'm watching the Democratic Party, for the most part, the leadership of the Democratic Party fail to understand what that means, fail to articulate the kind of genuine progressive populist vision that would be able to counter that force, and they are fumbling the ball. So that's how I am. I am, I am in a profoundly schizophrenic state. My personal life right now is beautiful. I look at the big picture and think, Oh, my fucking God. So how's about that for an honest answer? Uh, I agree with you 50 percent. I just don't have the relationship and the four year old Labrador. So I'm just completely theft. <laughs> <laughs> it's just in fact, you know I'm hey, so listen, everybody. I I'm going to interrupt you, Feldman. Let's all take up a donation. <laughs> like, let's do a little crowdsourcing. Let's buy Feldman a puppy. I could I use a puppy. Feldman needs a puppy. I could use a puppy. I, I can. Uh, nothing. You cannot be in a bad mood. You cannot be unhappy if there's a puppy. Yeah, but yours is how old? Four years old. Four years old, but, but it's a yellow lab. So a right. four-year-old yellow lab, like yellow labs are puppies until they're, you know, until you lose them, right? Labs right. are a special creature. So uh, he's so, youthful he's youthful. We'll talk about relationships and having nothing. I'm joking, but if you have nothing, you welcome the apocalypse as the sweet release. You, <laughs> and I'm being serious. Now, there's a tiny little part of me that is just so misanthropic. 
I know it's wrong, but you go, eh, F the the world, bring it on. It's Thanatos, Freud talks about this. It's just like we want, you know, especially if you've got nothing in your life, we have a country where fewer and fewer people have anything to live for. So there's a fatalism that sets in. When you're in debt, when you're dealing with mental illness that you don't have the money to to have it treated, when you're living a joyless life, which so many Americans are because of circumstances, the climate change almost, they don't know it, but there's a part of us that thinks, well, maybe uh, it's time. It's time to shake off the world. There's a fatalism that we cannot fall prey to. So, David, I'm, look, I appreciate that the, that you met my candor with candor uh, and, and sincerity, right? Like, I, like you're a witty guy and you're very quick uh, with a uh, with witticism, right? But what we're talking about now, like, I, I really believe this. Like, if you look at this, like there is there is an invitation uh, to fatalism because it, it is so very dark. Uh, but and, and I, I wish I could remember who said it so that I could give them credit. But I want to be clear. I'm quoting somebody else who said, you've got to act like it's possible to win a new world and you've got to do it every single day. And, and I agree with that. Joseph Goebbels and said so- that. Goebbels. <laughs> And he was right about that. That he got right. I totally set you up. I shouldn't know that. But he was right. I mean, bad guy. But what he said, you know, uh, no, he didn't say. But yes. So, look, so, David, like what I would tell you is this. Like one of the things for me is that I have a spiritual and political practice. Right. And it goes like this. I try to look at things as clearly and courageously as I can. What is actually objectively happening that I see? Then I try to ask myself, how much agency do I have, right? Like, what can I actually do that feels like it would be meaningful and commiserate uh, with what is being uh, what is being called for? Then I try to make plans. I try to implement those plans as I have humility to as I as I do things to engage in real praxis to to acknowledge my mistakes to fail forward, et cetera, et cetera. But here's the kicker. This is the, the spiritual part. I release the result. And I really, I really want to be clear about this to you and your listeners and viewers, because my cosmology and worldview, how I understand the divine, what I call it her, the goddess. The goddess does not demand that I win a new world. The goddess does not demand that I stop the plunder and the pillage The goddess demands that I do my best with integrity. That is all. And when I know that I have genuinely gone to sleep at night uh, and that I have done my very best that day to be in integrity and to meet the challenges that I've seen, then I can literally sleep peacefully. I can cuddle up next to my high school sweetheart and yeah, with our yellow lab because we let that lab sleep with us because we're those people. But I literally, I like to joke, David Feldman, even knowing all that I know, 
I sleep a deep and comfortable sleep because I sleep the sleep of the righteous and the exhausted. Right. I work hard, I do my best, and that's all I can do. Right. See, I, I'm worried about religion. Uh, I think the fatalism and the belief in a higher power is what's going to lead to fascism. There is uh, a part of Western New York that was victimized by cataclysmic forest fires in the early 19th century. The skies in Western New York were just covered in smoke and people turned to religion. That's where we got the Mormons, the, the Millerites, uh, these, well, the Mormons aren't so apocalyptic, but a lot of apocalyptic Jesus is coming, uh, great awakening religions rose from the ashes of the burnt Western forests of New York. And I think as we go into this summer, this and the heat domes continue, more and more people are going to be turning away from Washington, D.C. and to religion. And we have to fight that. We have to fight the, the human impulse to turn to religion to explain what is not inexplicable. Aha, there you go. That's the thing, right? Like, look, I am, I don't think it, I don't think it is inherently contradictory for me to say, I believe in science uh, and science is real. Uh, I believe in uh, objective metrics and measurements and I have a cosmology that transcends that. Now I'm with you. I think it is a tragic mistake uh, to, to just sort of, oh, like I see the smoke, therefore you, you go into a, a, a religious of any type. But, but I do think like, yeah, there's a great, uh, there's a great uh, joke that uh, my mama taught me. It goes like this. You probably heard it, but don't, don't step on my punchline. Are you going to give me a my mama joke? You can do my mama joke? I'm going to give you a my mama. Yeah, it is a my mama joke, but it's a, it's a joke my mama taught me. So it ain't about her, uh, as you can well imagine. So it goes like this. Mama taught me this. So there was a, a there was a, a an old a, an old man in the in the country who was quite religious. He and he grew up on the Texas Gulf Coast where we have hurricanes all the time, right? And so he, but he was very religious, and, and he trusted God. And uh, a hurricane was coming in, and the fella uh, uh, there had been all the announcements like seek higher ground, evacuate. This is going to be a big one. And the fella said, I trust God. Uh, I put my faith in God. I trust God. Uh, and they said, no, no, you got to get out. And the, the, and, and the tide was rising. Uh, and folks came in uh, uh, on a car and said, get in, get in. This is the last car that's going to be able to get through. And he said, I trust God. I put my faith in God. Uh, and uh, the, so the car went off and said, well, that's up to you. Uh, and then a boat, uh, the, it rose up uh, and uh a boat came in. He's on the second story now. A boat comes in and says, you got to get out. The water's rising. The hurricane's coming. It's going to be bad. Bella said, no, I trust God. I put my faith in God. Uh, the boat sped off. Waters rise even further. He's on the roof now, Feldman. He's on the roof. A helicopter comes in, shouts down. Here's the ladder. Get on, get on. 
He says, no, I trust God. I put my faith in God. The helicopter flies off. The waters rise up. That dumb son of a bitch drowned. He went to God and he said, and, and, and he said, God, I put my trust and faith in you. And God said, you ignorant bastards. I sent a, I sent a car. I sent a boat. I sent a helicopter. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So, look, we still have the time to engage in regenerative economics that could literally address the global climate crisis, as horrible as it is. The Green New Deal is there. Public banking is there. Like, uh, and I you were going to talk the, uh, about public banking in a second. I want to talk to you about public banking in a moment. There was an interview with the CEO of Philip Morris. They made the Marlboro Man. And he said yesterday, in 10 years, we are out of the cigarette business. The Corleone family has given up its given up the drugs, the prostitution. Um, I'm thinking of Michael talking to Kay. But uh, sorry, the Philip Morris is getting out of selling cigarettes. Now, of course, they're getting into e-cigarettes, which are questionable. In fact, we're going to be talking about Juul in about an hour. Uh, somebody wrote a book about big vape. I happen to think vaping is still better than smoking cigarettes. I think well, a Tesla. Let me just interrupt you to say that's because the science shows that you're right. Like it's 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 bad. You shouldn't do it. But if you're if you have to choose between vaping or smoking uh, a, a cigarette, uh, then the science is very clear. The cigarette is worse for you, far worse for you. So Philip Morris has killed millions of people. Just like ExxonMobil, they they knew that their product was killing people, but they hid they hid the science. Can you envision the kind of leadership that can convince Exxon and Shell and BP to 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 invest in something else like vaping, which I know is dangerous. Kids should not be vaping. But I got news for you. Electric cars, the batteries are not great for the environment, but you should still be driving an electric car and not one that uses oil. Is there a way to sit down with Exxon and BP and say, now you've got to get out of this business? Can you negotiate with these people? Can you come to them and say... Uh, like, look, uh, the answer is uh, I'm not going to be the one to do that because that does not uh, seem like the best use of my time or energy. And like I will say, like with candor, if there is anybody in the listening audience that wants to invest their time and energy uh, into that approach, I would not negate that. I think that there are better and and more effective uses of my time. Uh, uh, but. Uh, I do think, like, look, I believe in redemption. I believe in rehabilitation. I believe that people can actually see the light, right? Like, but I'm not going to put a whole lot of time on trying to convince the CEO that has a worldview like this to have some sort of, you know, Saul on the road to Damascus experience right. and become Paul at the other end, right? Right. Can it happen? Sure. 
am I going to invest in that time? No, because I only have 24 hours in a day and I got to play with my puppy and cuddle up with, uh, with Ruthie. So in the meantime, I'm going to work on public banking. I'm going to work on Dishkama Humble, this indigenous led community land trust. Like I'm going to work on other things, but to answer your question, could that happen? Yes. Am I going to, to invest my time? Seems like a long shot. Okay, public banking. There used to be public banking, the post office. And then the bank said, that's not fair. We can't compete with the government. Banking should only be done through banks. Well, what is it like? One third of Americans are underbanked? So, David, you you set me up. So I'm going to stop you at the setup because... I'm going to actually tease it out. And I know I only got a little bit of time here. So I'm gonna tease it out to say, you've actually brought two very powerful ideas into the public banking world. And I wanna separate them because both of them are important. Number one, the underbanked. California is, we. the California Public Banking Alliance is uh, working in the state of California uh, to create basically let's think of it as the public option uh, for banking to basically recreate uh, a, a banking services for uh, uh, poor houseless and, and the underbank. So that is underway. It's California assembly bill uh, 1177, 1177. I trust one of your uh, Cracker Jack uh, staffers will put that into the um, into the but, chat but Wells Fargo is from California. They do such a great job for the underbanked. <laughs> they, they have a line of credit that they offer there. You know what? It's really funny, Feldman. I know that you're making a crack, but let me tell you something. They weren't offering any of that stuff until 1177 got started to pick up steam. And all of a sudden, Wells Fargo said, well, gosh, you know, Wells Fargo, we really want to address this problem. Well, where the fuck were you for the last hundred and some odd years of your existence? So right. all I'm saying is underbanked and unbanked people, the need for a public option, absolutely. But wait, there's more. Because that's just banking services. The California Public Banking Alliance, of which I am in leadership, and I got to lift up Trinity Tran. I think I think I'll invite Trinity onto your program, yes. right, so that she and I can talk about this Great. together and really do the whole thing. But uh, organizers in Los Angeles and San Francisco and Oakland and Little Old Humboldt uh, and Santa Rosa and Santa Cruz and all across the country, pre-COVID. Uh, under the Democratic Party leadership, actually passed uh, Assembly Bill 857, which allows the creation of up to 10 local or regional public banks, not just to bank underserved people, but to allow us to actually be banks. And what that does, Dave Feldman, is to allow us to use the power of fractional reserve banking to basically finance public infrastructure projects to strike at the very heart of Wall Street America and the stranglehold that they have on what is allowed to happen or not happen. So imagine treating banking like a public utility and imagine the like literally a bank that exists not to serve the shareholders, but literally under its charter only exists to serve the public interest. 
That, my friend, is democratizing finance in a way that is transformational. So yes, 1177 and, and creating a pool of money for the underbanked, that's great. Like, and we have to address that. That will make people's lives better. But public banking goes one step further and allows us to democratize the financial decisions. Now, right now, 857 is only available, the only depositors, the only people who can create it are governmental institutions. So under 857, the California Public Banking Act, uh, you know, even though I live in California, I can't deposit money into one of these banks that we're beginning to develop. But what the city of Eureka or the county of Humboldt or the city of Los Angeles, yes, exactly, just like North Dakota. By the way, there's one public bank in the entire uh, US right now, and that's in North Dakota. But thanks to the California Public Banking Alliance, and I have to give the hat tip to the Democratic Party that passed that law, we can now have 10 local or regional public banks. And I see uh, Dr. Fraud is- But has that been signed into law? Has Gavin Newsom signed that into law? Gavin Newsom signed it into law. It is the law, and we were it, it. It was signed just when COVID hit, and so now we're having to go back and finance it. But as a lawyer, I'll tell you this: so now the the Department of Business Organization are promulgating the rules for those local or regional public banks. And as a lawyer, I'll tell you this: there are rules, and then there are rules, right? Like I can write, like you can say, okay, there's got to be a public bank. As a lawyer, I could write you a set of rules that would make it virtually impossible to ever create a public bank. Right. I could also write law rules that would make it super easy uh, to do a public bank. And we're working directly with the Department of Business Organization. And I'll tell you, so the, the California Public Banking Alliance, we made the argument, make it super easy. The state legislature says they wanna see 10 local or regional public banks, Is we're democratizing finance, you should make this very, very easy to do for the experiment. Wells Fargo and Wall Street banks were lobbying the Department of Business Organization to say, no, make it super hard because this is public money. This is a disaster. Don't allow this to happen. And to their credit, the Department of Business Organization is playing it straight down the middle. They're saying you can create a bank, it can be a public bank, and we're gonna create all the rules around it we're not gonna make it any easier or any more difficult than what it takes to capitalize a private bank. So- And these would so, be FDIC insured? They would be FDIC insured. And again, it's always straight down the middle, but here's the kicker. Because it's a public bank, the charter itself will actually be about serving the local or regional public interest. So one thing really quickly, uh, and uh, we'll talk about this uh, next time I come on with, with Trinity, but like, and, and uh, you know, Dr. Fraud, I know uh, uh, studies economics, like the, 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 the cost of the privilege to borrow money for public infrastructure projects is literally 50% of the cost of the project, right? Like just the privilege of borrowing the money from Wall Street adds 50% of the cost. So like you imagine a bridge, it's gonna cost you, you know, a million dollars to build that bridge. When you say this is the cost of labor, material, project management and so forth, right? Million bucks. I'm here to tell you the cost of building that bridge is gonna be $2 million. 
because by the time you you pay the present value of money and you pay the interest on the money that 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 you're doing it it literally ends up doubling the cost of public infrastructure projects what i'm telling you feldman is we're going to be able to cut in half the cost of public infrastructure projects as soon as we get these public banks up and going it's exciting stuff and i also want to say this before we come off because i know in the chat a lot of your folks are always you know chastising me for being a green what give money to nina turner like nina turner's a democrat like that is an important election uh and when a genuine progressive uh like nina turner runs for office i get yelled at and screamed at by democrats for being a green and i get yelled at and screamed at by greens when i say democrats like nina turner deserve our support and we ought to give them money uh, so thank you well said I miss everybody off Go to ninaturner.com right now, ninaturner.com. Early voting has started. Vote for Nina right now if you live in the Cleveland area of Ohio, right? She's running basically in Cleveland. And give her money if you're an American citizen or if you have a green card, I believe you can donate to Nina Turner. Go to ninaturner.com and donate because the worst elements of the Democratic Party are trying to, is it Ms. Brown? They're trying to, Chantel or Chandel Brown, they're running her and she's got the backing. She's a straight up neoliberal corporate Democrat of the worst order. She's a friend of the fracking industry, of the banking industry. Like, Like it is, like it is really one of those like, oh my God moments, right? Like. So, like, imagine if, if uh, you had had Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump. That's kind of what you got what you got going in Cleveland. Right? And this is the primary, which means whoever wins the primary goes to Washington because it's Cleveland. It's a deep, dark right. blue. It's, it's like India whenever she she won the Democratic Party primary in Buffalo. Right. right. We got an out socialist about to become a mayor. y'all. India is it India Walton? Is that her name? Yeah. And and is the. But the the mayor is going to run as a write-in, right? That's how that's how audacious the the corporate Democrats and the neoliberals are. Rather than respect the 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 primary result, this a hole uh, is talking about running a write-in candidate, and the Chamber of Commerce and the whole right-wing business class, including the leadership of the Democratic Party, are lining up to support him. Sort of like when Joe Lieberman lost the Democratic Party primary. See, folks, there's a reason I'm agreeing. And y'all should, those of you who are progressive Democrats dedicated to the Democratic Party, you should stop fussing at me. You should actually look at me as an ally and let me be an ally, but also acknowledge the truth of what I say when I say the neoliberal Democratic Party who controls the apparatus are no friends of the environment. They're no friends of the working class. They're no friends of people of color. Amen. Amen. David Cobb, we'll see you next week, I hope. Yes, absolutely. And I'll see if I can bring Trinity Tran on with me so we can, uh, like, from jump go into public banking. And I want to say, Dr. Broad, I loved the the conversation we had last time, but I got, I got to jump this time. So, uh, but I'll listen to you uh, uh, after the fact. Great. Great. Thank you, David Cobb. When we come back, Dr. Harriet Fraud will join us. Good. It's time right now. 
of the David Fellman show. He's talking politics and comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way Welcome back. <laughs> Dr. Harriet Fraud joins us. Let me just do a little housekeeping. Peter B. Collins is coming up in a half hour. And I thought I sent him the link. And if uh, are you there, Dan? Can you send him the link? Because once again, I cannot figure out the software. I just, I just, re I just resent it, David. God bless you, Dan. Nothing gets done here without Dan Frankenberger. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate it. Dr. Harriet Fraud is host of Capitalism Hits Home. It's not just in your head. And we were just talking about faith. There, I know you want to talk about a lot, uh, but uh, the fatalism, when, when we see that 30 million Americans by the end of this week will be living under triple digit temperatures, it almost feels insolvable insoluble insolvable yeah insoluble. yeah what do you say to people who think what's the point you know it's it's over well i think one of the things that's happening right now is the american empire is over and a lot of things are over the idea that if you were white and in a family headed by a male your kids could do better than you economically, that's over. The idea that your job stability will be there for you, that's over. The idea that your marriage will be there for you, that's over. Uh, the idea that if you're young and you get educated or trained, you'll get a stable job, that's over. So I think that people, because they don't have a really organized together movement to give them hope for what to do now that our empire is over have a, a, a level of fatalism that's really sad and they have all the kind of um, symptoms that go with it the celebrity worship because you've given up that your own life could be exciting you could merge with somebody else's and therefore get the thrills of someone with possibilities you could see people fighting for Britney Spears, as I talked about, because she had a hope she could get out of her super exploitation. And a lot of people don't know that they could. You know, there's. Um, so the danger of losing the empire, the danger of losing our personal status, we project that onto the nation 
and say, okay, our country has lost its status. Somebody comes along and says, we're going to bring this country back to its former glory. And with this country's former glory comes your own sense of self-worth. And that's... I'm sorry? And a lot of the lonely people who are Trump devotees go from one rally to another to have somebody to bond with in hope. But I think most Americans don't understand that the empire is over. They don't even know that we lost the war in Vietnam, no less Afghanistan and Iraq. And But it's in the air, a kind of failure and an unconscious realization the party is over. The America hegemonic party is over and we could have a wonderful nation of sharing and possibility without trying to conquer the globe and having 130 uh, nations with our troops and we could have a lot of things if we shared but there is a fatalism until you realize you can do something about it there's There's general defeat there's an inevitability to this because of the more than $1 trillion a year we spend on the military-industrial complex. Mm-hmm. When you spend a trillion dollars that we know of on weapons that don't work, not on the soldiers, not on the VA, on... No, not on the VA, on weapons and camps that are hated and so on. So when, you're, they- when you're spending that kind of money, you have to convince the American people that we have either enemies who want to take us over or that we're the indispensable nation abroad. They need, If we don't spend a trillion dollars on defense, China will take over and That's push and, and we have to we can't allow that. That's so right. so the, the trillion dollars become becomes an act of generosity. It's almost paternalism. I'm sorry? It's also an act of security, that we are secure. Of course, you know, a bunch of hooligans and fascists could take over the capital, which uh, causes some alarm. But that there's a sense we do have some protection somewhere. Right. And of course, we don't. And what you need to do in order to justify that huge expenditure, because we are first in the world only in weapons, is to convince people there's an enemy. Russia's now capitalist, so they're working on China. China has never invaded anybody. They're whipping up the anger at the Uyghurs, or the Uyghurs, however you pronounce it, as a Muslim community, they're discriminated against. After the United States has just killed over six million Muslims in Iraq and Afghanistan, and um, Muslims were banned from the country under our former president, and so on. That whoa, we're hardly got a pedestal to stand on as far as Muslim protection. But you know, they are always bashing China because China is the new excuse for the military even though China has never invaded any other country. It is authoritarian. I'm not saying they're perfect. I don't think so. But well, they've invaded Tibet. Tibet. Well, that was part of their country, just like Hong Kong was theirs. It was promised. It was given to Britain because they lost the opium wars. And as of 1999, it 
back belong. You're back. talking about Hong Kong. I'm talking about Tibet. Okay, I know, but I mean, I think Tibet was once part of their country too, and I, I think that the they, United States has a history of invading everywhere. Right. The Chinese don't. They are. They have their roads and roads and bridges program to to uh, cross China. They have twelve high speed trains. We have none, and so on. But they are trying to build China as an enemy because they have to have an excuse for the reason that the U.S. economy is failing and also that we need to arm ourselves. And they've weaponized COVID from what I've been reading. And I don't know that much about COVID, but the conversation about the the lab leak is yeah. they're they're accusing they're, they want to look into they being the right wing. They want right. to look into whether or not this came from the lab uh, weaponizing COVID. Well, who's weaponizing COVID when you talk that way? You're weaponizing COVID. You're trying to make China the the culprit mm-hmm. in all this so that we go to war with China. The people who support military spending and who support a permanent state of war are the ones who are promoting the lab leak theory, which is a theory, and it's all circumstantial evidence. That's a very good point, because really, the United States is falling behind China in every other area except weapons production and war. And that's what they're trying to push, because, you know, the Chinese people, the Chinese revolution took 800 million people out of poverty. More and more people are entering poverty in the United States all the time. And the way they handled COVID was amazing. They wiped it out in Wuhan. Within a couple of weeks, they built 11 hospitals. Everyone was tested, tracked, and uh, helped. That Shocking that we are being outcompeted on every level except military and so they're trying to push the military and it's sick because you know they have 1.3 something billion people and it's not going to be usually we conquer places that have no air force and they are a powerful country they are fast becoming the first economic power of the world and they are already the second even though in 1949, when they had their revolution, they were decimated. You know, they were decimated from a civil war, from a brutal invasion by Japan, and they've done an amazing job. And even though, you know, I am not a proponent of authoritarianism, they have provided for their people. In the 19, between the 1970s and now, the American workers wages are flat as inflation has gone down so that instead of being able to support a dependent wife and children wage earning men can't barely support themselves and men and women together can't make the living a man did before in terms of the real wages what they could actually buy China's wages have gone up four times since then which is how they could liberate those 800 million people 
from poverty. Henry so, Hakamaki said to me that that we love to say that capitalism in the past 20 years has lifted billions of people out of poverty. But if you take China out of that equation, it hasn't lifted anybody out of poverty. And no, in our country, people are getting more and more poverty stricken. Right. So if you take China out of the equation, because China is not a capitalist nation. No, it is not. So then if you can only say that capitalism has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty if you include China, but China is not a is not capitalism. No, it isn't. It's a highly regulated economy and it's a mixture. They have a capitalist element, but it's like a socialism, not capitalist. Right. It is highly controlled. And so that, of course, we have it. We've how many people have we placed in poverty you know africa was a prosperous nation people farmed they they had a decent life and the imperialist nations came in took their land and forced them into poverty and servitude really that's just a bogus argument that history doesn't support at all right the united states now is in a downward spiral and i think people have a fatalism because they sense that it's all out of control. They don't feel that their voices count in elections because millions of jobs were exported. People came back to the United States and bought our for sale political system. And so they don't feel their voices count. And now some people are beginning to get activated on the climate, Black Lives Matter, Me Too and Time's Up and transsexuals and homosexuals are becoming empowered. But there is no central force. You'd need to have an umbrella where the umbrella stem, the handle, the big long handle is class solidarity. And connected to that are all the other struggles, whether it's climate or Black Lives Matter or women's rights or abortion rights or transsexual rights or homosexual rights or whatever. But right now, those things are like jigsaw puzzles on a table that haven't come together. And so that people can just feel lost. A a prime example, which is so sad, was written up by the Case and Deaton studies, where they found swaths of white women in the South die much earlier than black women. And they die deaths of despair. I think the book on those studies is called Deaths of Despair, as well as all those deaths from ODs, which have gone up 30 percent. And COVID. And COVID. And our life expectancy is going down. Worse than any industrialized nation. And our child mortality is going up as our life expectancy is going down. We're getting to be below Cuba like a third world country because of our profit-driven health care. Capitalism is wrecking this place. And I think some people feel empowered by it. There's much more movement happening now than was 50 years ago. And there are also these, there's also great despair. Look, over the 4th of July weekend, 618 people were injured 
by gunfire being shot, and 230 were killed. They were all killed by men. Now, what's happened to men that they should be so murderous? And I think it's that they used to be, they were the providers if they were white men, and they're overwhelmingly white men doing the shooting. They were citizens in their community. They had a job they could count on. They had a wife they could count on to take care of them sexually and do their housework and bring up their kids. And they had a certain status and they've lost it. And like a microcosm of the country, they don't know what to do about it except to go to the most destructive arms manufacturer NRA solution to be a man to be able to have a gun you know that you can shoot people you have that power to kill which is a you know a last resort and it's very much advertised by the gun dealers you know it's I think I've mentioned before but it really is so startling that ad that they had for the Bushmaster automatic weapon. You know, does your wife or girlfriend earn more money than you? Revoke your man card. Right. Do you prefer tofu to meat? Revoke your man card. And it goes down and then there's a big picture of the Bushmaster automatic reinstate your man card. And what a name, the Bushmaster. Right. (laughs) That's right. Mastering the bushes of all your girlfriends. Yeah. Yeah. At any rate, there is this, what's happening in the United States is on the one hand, there is a despair and passivity. On the other hand, there's more activism than we've known for 50 years, both on the left and also on the right, where people are looking for somebody to blame for America's failure. And they're looking for everyone who's beneath what the white male used to be minorities, women, immigrants. It's, it's, uh, it's a pivotal moment in American history. We didn't dodge a bullet with Trump. He's still there. And that strain of Fascism, per- really. or Peronism, uh, I'm worried yeah. about Peronism because uh, Peron offered something uh, to his people. That is the problem with somebody like uh, Perone, where they recognize that the the people are suffering, and here's here's a city, here's food. I'm going to feed you, and the Democrats, if they don't go big, if they don't do it now with the infrastructure bill and getting rid of the filibuster, if they don't go big, what's going to happen? in October is they're going to be outflanked on the left, what, what the, the faux left, by the Republicans. You have people like Josh Hawley, who is a dangerous senator from Missouri who believes in a theocracy. He's a crazy evangelical Christian who's on record. You know, he came out of Yale Law School and he is on record saying the, the rule of law is what Christ says it is. These are dangerous people. Ted Cruz is part of that. I'm sorry. And rather what I say. Right. What 
our sins it was. Not what Christ says it was, because who knows? Right. But I yes. say what Christ, right. And he's writing books about breaking up big tech. Well, that's our, that's the left that should be writing books about breaking up big tech. And all it takes is the Republican Party to come out in favor, to say, right. to say they're in favor of something like Medicare for all. Free health care. We're, we're going to. But, you know, Trump is a little different from Perona and other fascists. He actually didn't deliver. Right. He said he was going to get rid of the swamp. He hired it instead. Right. He said, you know, that he would stop the forever wars. He didn't. He didn't deliver anything except a chance to hate other people and get your rage out that you're no longer the dominant person in the society. And that was a lot. People loved it. So what we have to worry about is the the Republicans giving to the working class, giving some their version of welfare and food to the working class, or at least promising that. And then and then it's over. Then this country is over and we have nobody to blame other than Joe Biden the vice president, Hillary Clinton, and the Obamas. And the whole Democratic Party. And the whole Democratic Party. The pay-to-play idea. Yeah. And it's right now. If they don't move now, this summer, I think it's over. I think it's over. And what may happen is that perhaps the left will get it together instead of monitoring each other's uh, microaggressions and unite and march and demand change and demand a socialist party because that's also a possibility because you know the republicans didn't deliver all they delivered was a chance to hate which was very compelling and to the richest one the, the tax cuts well, they did a lot for them you right. know that's what did i read 25 American billionaires made 401 billion in during the pandemic when 60% of America at least had some unemployment and therefore some cut in their wages for a while. I mean, but people are desperate and they don't, you know, they hold on to these little distinctions that they were born in the US, that their color is white, that they're male. These are, and that Trump gave them. And, and so, so the the lying that that our leaders do, where they talk about stability and that this fake optimism. Roosevelt said, "I see a nation ill-fed, ill-clad. I see a starving nation." Right. Uh, you know, we, you know, when Joe Biden got inaugurated, he had this she was great. The the African-American Harvard poet whose mother was a single mother and she came from, uh, I believe it was uh, South Central. And, you know, and now she's got some kind of deal with somebody at Netflix. I don't know if I want to hear. That's false optimism to, to hear, listen to a beautiful, brilliant poet who comes from South Central who's going to Harvard. 
I want to hear a president say, I see a nation that's ill-clad and starving. That's right. The one in four kids who doesn't get enough to eat. That's who should be speaking at your inauguration. And whoever should be speaking, he likes to look. He likes to make cheap gestures. But it's delivering that he has to do. Delivering to stop that tax cut to those billionaires and deliver. Deliver the care infrastructure and the infrastructure like FDR did. FDR created all sorts of dams and roads and rivers and bridges in the Civilian Conservation Corps. Because the government hired the people, they didn't have some contractor who is an enormously billionaire capitalist hire people and try to give them the least he can and get away with a big profit. Right. It was the government who hired them and the government would have to hire people. And that is something that Biden is not gonna do because he's corporate. So that there would have to be a powerful movement, a powerful left movement that people could connect to and that could deliver. That would be what we'd have to do because the Democratic Party won't deliver. They have the same corporate sponsors as the Republican Party. You know, Ronald Reagan began this tradition of turning State of the Unions into I don't know, game shows where there'd be somebody in the bleachers stand up and take a bow. This is a security guard who threw himself on a hand grenade at Walmart and saved 20 lives. Isn't aren't they great? And they stand up. And this is a this has been going on for 40 years where the president introduces all these great Americans. We never get to meet. This is a single mother of two who's done it. I'm sorry. Yeah, struggling. This, these are the people that are struggling in our nation. They don't get the invite to no. the State of the Union. Not once. No. How many jobs do you have, ma'am? I have three. And can you afford rent? No, I can't. Right, exactly. It's, exactly. it's that fake optimism you've written about and talked about. Cruel optimism. It's the what? You won't. Cruel optimism, did you say? optimism yes that it's it's a promise that you won't be able to fulfill and therefore you will be a loser right you will be at fault because the idea that your kids will do better than you for the mass of people there are always exceptions but the mass of people that will not be true two people working full time as a, a couple can't afford a two-bedroom apartment in any city state or county in the whole United States if they're working at minimum wage. You need $25 an hour to be able to afford to rent right, an apartment. Right. Oh, that's right. And so I think what you have done is for a long time, America had this optimism. If you just work hard and you're white and in your family, they didn't mention this part, headed by a male, you will do okay, you will be secure, your kids will have more than you. And that's been withdrawn ever since the mid to late 70s. And so people are completely at loss and depressed. And that is why on July 4th, celebration of our nation, 230 people were murdered by people and, it, and 618 
were injured by shots because people were reclaiming their power in that narcissistic macho way where you don't imagine how the people will feel when they're shot or how their kids will feel or the people who cared for them. You're just showing you're a man and you're getting revenge. We're in terrible, terrible shape. And I think a responsible politician would say, look, we're in shit shape. And this is how, and this is what we've got to do to rescue ourselves. Yes. To be and con- then profits for corporations, even in your plans that are noble, that you won't even make sure pass. The, uh, to be continued. Thank you so much. How do people contact you if they need therapy, which we all need? Well, they could email me at hfraud at gmail.com or they could go to my website, harrietfraud.com. Great. Um, we, we love you. you uh, thank you. And I, there were some hands raised. I didn't get to them. Dr. Harriet Fraud is the host of Capitalism Hits Home, and it's not just in your head. Which I do with Max Golding. It's not just in your head. Right. Thank you. We'll talk to you next week, I hope. Yes, indeed. Fantastic. When we come back, we will be talking with Peter B. Collins. Traveling light, got everything I need. Got a little bottle of Rolite and a little bag of weed. Got to saw Bellum novel, cause I really like to read. I'm traveling light. I'm a creature of the road, got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller. Magic kit So I can do my tricks Got my favorite pillow Which I call Mr. Fluffy Four kinds of allergy pills In case I get stuffy A pound of Epsom salts Cause my ankles get puffy I'm traveling light Two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. sedatives and my antipsychotics a high speed parallax motor cause I'm into robotics and my little red speedo I like to do aquatics I'm traveling late got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill a copy of Lolita and my little blue pills a Navajo blanket 
close I get a chill I'm traveling light Got my margarita mix And my rusty old blender A 50 tequila In case I go on a bender My attorney's number In case I want to change my gender I'm traveling light In case I have some visitors For breeze if I'm really stinky A Polaroid in case I get kinky My Jesus bobblehead And my Star Wars bedspread I'm traveling light I got my rabbi costume And my portable dark room My hair plug lotion And my expensive wrinkle cream My Emmy statue For my self-esteem I'm traveling light I got my podcast mixer and a fancy microphone, my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants, my very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of fish heads, a Christmas tree, I like to keep my options open, don't you know, a shoe shine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book, a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read, some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in L.A., and my enemies list. Don't forget about my enemies. Peter B. Collins will be with us momentarily. Thank you, Professor Mike Steinel, for your brilliant music. We don't have him today. He's uh, on assignment, as they say. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. Get us wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe wherever you're listening right now. Subscribe, hit the like button, give us a good review and all that kind of stuff. Peter B. Collins, I believe, is in the Bay Area, and he is no stranger to devotees of left wing media. Please welcome the brilliant Peter B. Collins. You, uh, thank you for coming back. You were a wonder kid. Uh, very young in life. You covered Watergate, I think, when you were still in, I was going to say diapers. <laughs> but we, I, I'm being serious. Weren't you very, at a very young age? You were cracking the Watergate story as a reporter. And is it pronounced Cohen Templo, the FBI's spying on radicals, right? Cointelpro. Cointelpro. What was Cointelpro? And what, what did you well, do? First of all, first of all, thank you for your warm welcome. It's great to see you again, David. And also, uh, I was 20 when I fell into hosting a late night talk show on the ABC owned FM station in Chicago. And uh, the twin uh, achievements there, if you will, were helping to expose Cointel Pro, which was through the investigation into the 
uh, murder by the Chicago police under the direction of the FBI of Black Panther leader Fred Hampton. And we were about the same age. Uh, and as I continued to host the show, uh, Watergate evolved. Nixon got into trouble. And my coverage of that saga uh, scored surprise uh, uh, top ratings. And it shocked the management that uh, this kid who they just, you know, I was there to keep the needles moving, as we say in radio. <laughs> right. And they were shocked that, uh, you know, I had been able to, uh, you know, draw an audience and cover the Watergate scandal. And my secret was that uh, the radio station was located within blocks of the Chicago Tribune and the Sun-Times. And on my way to the studio each night, I picked up the city edition of each paper. And so I would uh, recite the day's progress in the Watergate uh, drama. And people would uh, call in and say, wow, you know, in the morning I get my newspaper and everything, everything you told me is right there. <laughs> Damn Internet. If the Internet, you would have been so prescient. Yeah. Right, yeah. Right. Chicago, Fred Hampton was killed. It's undeniable that he was killed by the FBI, right? Working with Chicago cops. How old was he? The, the bullets were fired by the Chicago police. The FBI inserted a paid informant, and that is the central part of the movie that came out that got Oscar attention this year called Judas and the Black Messiah. And the Black Messiah refers to the informant who uh, was uh, prodded and uh, pressured by his FBI handlers to inform on Hampton's whereabouts up to and including drawing a map of the apartment and it was a communal setting where many people spent the night but hampton and his girlfriend uh who was pregnant at the time were in a specific corner of the apartment and the raiding police officers knew exactly where to go and shoot him and kill him right i'm gonna i i don't mean to be rude your mm -hmm. microphone is scraping against your collar Okay. So, and I put on my Boogaloo shirt today for uh, what we're going to talk about. Uh, not the Boogaloo boys, I hope. <laughs> not, well, yeah. similar similar uh, militias that are aligned with Trump. Yeah. Right. We'll talk about the kidnapping attempt, supposedly, of Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan. We'll we'll talk about that in a second. But a little history here about the FBI. Cointel Pro. Is that mm -hmm. what? Yeah, that was Hoover's counterintelligence program. And I have in my file still uh, a, a fading photocopy of the memo that came out that has Hoover's initials on it, saying that Hampton had to be taken out to prevent the rise of a new black messiah. This was the same year that Martin Luther King was assassinated. Right. There's no question that the FBI was not only breaking the law, but trying to get Dr. Martin Luther King to commit suicide. They were spying on him. The spying on the African-American leadership in the 60s, that's because we had the wrong people in power. The FBI, I'm being sarcastic here, the FBI is only as good as the administration that's in office. 
if, you know, Kennedy were president, they wouldn't have authorized Bobby Kennedy wouldn't have authorized the spying. on. I'm kidding. It was Bobby Kennedy <laughs> authorized the spying on Martin Luther King. So it the well, abuse. Well, let's, let's parse this a little bit more. Uh, Bobby Kennedy has a lot of dark history, uh, starting with his work uh, on the McCarthy uh, Senate committee back in the 1950s. But when he was attorney general, he and J. Edgar Hoover were not allies. And so this was uh, this is where I developed the term rogue, uh, rogue agency to describe the FBI, because Hoover was not reporting to Bobby Kennedy. And so it's possible that Kennedy signed off on some warrants uh, of Dr. King and things of that nature. Uh, but he was not driving Cointelpro. And he did uh, pay for Martin Luther King's funeral. And by the time within five years, he was a different man. But he was Operation Mongoose. I mean, Bobby Kennedy was trying to kill Castro. There, he, he was not a saint when. Oh, uh, indeed. OK, so you call the FBI a rogue agency. Mm hmm. Has it always been a rogue agency from its inception? There was a period after Hoover uh, left and then died uh, where there were reforms. And I would say that uh, the 1980s, domestically, uh, the FBI played more, you know, by the rules. And uh, I'd even extend it into the 1990s. But after 9-11, uh, and, and let's remember who the director was. He's the man I call St. Bob Mueller. And it's one of the reasons that I'm so skeptical of the Mueller investigation into the Russiagate scandal. So Mueller, who had been a U.S. attorney in Boston and presided over White, Whitey Bulger, who was a paid informant who was permitted to carry out mob hits while he was on the FBI payroll, uh, Mueller then went to San Francisco, where he was uh, a, a protege, if you will, of Senator Dianne Feinstein. Uh, she was key in, in his promotion to director of the FBI. And after 9-11, there were a series of uh, these so-called sting operations, where the pattern is just repeated uh, like clockwork. And that is that uh, a paid informant, often somebody who is sideways with the law and subject to pressure and a reduced sentence or uh, a new identity, uh, they are recruited to infiltrate what are considered to be potential domestic terrorism cells. Well, Trevor Aronson is a very talented reporter who wrote a book, I believe it's called The Terror Factory. And he has identified hundreds of cases where the FBI, following this pattern, would find somebody, often through an informant at a local mosque, and befriend them. And these were people who committed, uh, at the most, thought crimes, and uh, uh, they were uh, people who spoke in ways that you and I would not. Uh, recklessly, I would say. They were and, like the guy who b was going to blow up Times Square. I think he was a Pakistani. He and, was real. 
<laughs> oh, he, but the, didn't the FBI kind of encourage it? Didn't they kind of? There was an informant in his case, but I asked Trevor Aronson about that point blank. And he said that was one of the handful of cases where he was a, a serious guy who had watched the uh, Alaki videos on YouTube and was a, a committed jihadist. But uh, but he needed a little just, help. He needed a little help to make the plan go into action. And that's where the FBI came in. Well, and, and let me give you a case from Illinois. There's a, a kid. He, he was 17 or 18 years old. He didn't have any money. He didn't have any car. He didn't own a gun. But he spouted off to his informant that he wanted to do something. And so he said, uh, I want to blow up a courthouse. And the agent said, well, you know, why don't we start with something a little smaller? How about a shopping mall? So the kid said, great. And then he said, uh, the kid said, well, we need some explosives. I don't know where to get explosives. And his informant said, uh, well, I can get you some. And he mentioned a price. And the kid said, well, you know, I don't have any money. And the guy said, well, I really like these stereo speakers. Uh, I know a guy who will trade you some C4 explosives for those speakers. And so they set the guy up, and as he got ready to punch a code into a burner cell phone to what he thought would be to detonate these explosives, the you know FBI swarms in, just like uh, they used to do on To Catch a Predator. Mm-hmm. You ever see that TV show? Yeah. I, I was going to make a sick uh, five years ago. I would have seen it. I was on it, but I won't do a joke. Like that. Not doing those jokes anymore. Uh, so uh, there are hundreds of examples of that. Right. And I want to give credit to BuzzFeed News because last week they published an extensive. It's a, it's a 25 minute read. And I encourage people to read this report because it is rich in detail And it takes us through the sequence of events from the spring of 2020, when the COVID lockdowns were occurring. Governor Whitmer in Michigan, uh, I thought, was showing great leadership. There was a whole lot of pushback from armed militants, uh, some of whom stormed the Capitol at the end of April in 2020. Well, at that point uh, is where, according to this report, the FBI got involved. And reading from the report, the FBI had a hand in nearly every aspect of the alleged plot, starting with its inception. The extent of their involvement raises questions as to whether there would have even been a conspiracy a conspiracy without them. And so they recruited an Iraq war vet from Flint, a guy who is only known as Dan in this report, He was given the FBI code name Thor. Now, he originally approached the FBI to report some troubling action that he had seen on Facebook. And uh, Dan in Iraq had served uh, as essentially a scout where he would go in uh, and locate targets and then call them in either for uh, air support or ground support. And so he was a fairly sophisticated uh, veteran. And they basically turned him from somebody who was making an honorable citizen report into an operative. 
And this report goes on to say that of the dozen or so suspects who were ultimately uh, accused in this Whitmer uh, kidnap conspiracy, each one of them was assigned an FBA, FBI agent. And I, I, I want to do a John Oliver moment here because I know that some of this causes people to glaze over the details and you don't really know who Dan is. Well, one of the lead FBI agents who was in charge of this was arrested uh, in Kalamazoo uh, in the past week after he uh, is accused of assaulting his wife. And they had been to a swinger party. A swinger uh, party? That's right. In COVID, I thought that might be something that people would be, you know, a little askance about. I, I don't criticize swingers. These are consenting adults. And if that's what excites you, uh, I, I don't have a problem. It's not what you expect from uh, an FBI agent. So Richard Trask, special agent, has been charged with one account of assault with intent to do great bodily harm because he... he had been drinking and he and his wife apparently argued on the way home i don't know what it was about possibly jealousy and uh he bashed her head into the nightstand uh so this becomes kind of a keystone cops uh aspect of the fbi right and i'll point out that in the the past 30 years there have been some 150 investigations into the FBI's use of deadly force. That's where somebody died in an altercation with an agent. The FBI conducted the investigations into the FBI and found in zero cases there were any violations of the law. So the agents operated. The, the, the people who were killed had not violated the law. No, no, no. The agents had not violated oh, the, the law. The agents had not violated the law. In killing people, right. yes. So uh, this guy Trask, uh, you know, will face his own music. But to me, it's an example of uh, the level of impunity that the agents operate under, and that is conferred on some of these informants. And Dan, the Iraqi veteran who I mentioned, who was flipped into becoming right. an operative. He was paid over seven months, $54,000. The FBI has an annual budget of $42 million for paid informants. And I've never seen an accounting of that money. There's a line item in the FBI budget that is public, but uh, we're not aware of any auditing that's ever been done. So the, uh, it's to, just so my listeners understand, the issue is... Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, unveiled last year a plot by right wing militia to kidnap her. The case is now going to trial and it seems to be falling apart because the FBI, we, what you're saying and what I'm reading, we're saying that the FBI kind of orchestrated the kidnapping plot as it was like a honeypot to trap entrapment to get rogue elements to agree to kidnap the governor of Michigan. They were kind of led on by the FBI. And you feel that that's unfair 
and the FBI should be either. I don't know what you think about whether or not the FBI should be just broken apart, but app scam. You know, there there is entrapment and then there are honeypots. There are app scam. They the -hmm. FBI dressed up as you know, oil sheiks and offered bribes to Congress people and they took the bribes on tape. And Mm -hmm. I had no problem with the FBI dressing up like an oil sheik and offering bribes to Congress people. Marion Barry, the mayor, was smoking crack in a hotel room. And I I don't think that was the FBI, but it it was it, it was a setup. I think he said, quote unquote, the bitch set me up. He happened to have been a great mayor, actually. Marion Barry was a great man with a, a coke problem. A I, crack I had problem. a couple of I had a couple of really colorful interviews with Marion Barry and uh, with or without crack. Uh, he was a wild man. Yeah. Hunter uh, Biden smoked crack with him, by the way. <laughs> he did. Uh, so the question is, do you have a problem with law enforcement going to people, as you claim, as you said, who are sideways with the law, who might be prone to commit acts of terrorism and kind of seeing what they're capable of. So I'm going to push back just a little because it's a show. I mean, I I can't. David, David, I'm really glad you raised that because as this was occurring and I was watching the coverage uh, Uh, often with Rachel Maddow, um, I said, wow, it's about time the FBI has taken on these right-wing white supremacists, pro-Trump, armed militia groups. Especially in Michigan. I was outraged by the scene at the Michigan Capitol. And so uh, I want to note that some of the real virulent groups that fit that long description I just gave you, white supremacists, Trump-aligned, uh, armed militant groups, uh, include one called Adam Lofton. And I know a great reporter at ProPublica, and he, he also hosts investigations on Frontline. His name is A.C. Thompson. And he went undercover and infiltrated Adam Lofton himself. And Adam Waffen, there's a trial that is supposed to start in Orange County, California. Uh, this month, I haven't seen any coverage of it, of uh, an Adam Waffen member who uh, committed murder. Uh, and so that was one of those cases where, wow, uh, you know, this was a case where the FBI appeared to have no interest. And the investigation and prosecution of Adam Waffen is occurring at the state level not as a federal crime. So, yes, when the FBI uh, announced this, I was saying, well, it's about fucking time. And uh, the, the, the line that gets crossed, though, uh, I can rationalize and approve of infiltration of groups where they have picked up credible uh, information or evidence that they have an intent to commit a crime. But when they organize a group of schlubs and they really infiltrate them with these paid informants who are directed by FBI agents and the BuzzFeed article 
uh, explains some of the communications between Dan and his his main handler, the FBI agent in Flint. And he was told, here are our priorities for today. And in particular, the idea of kidnapping Gretchen Whitmer was introduced by an FBI informant. And then Dan, uh, in this group setting, made everybody say, are you all down with this? Right. We're, we're almost running out of time. And I, I, I would love you to come back next week to, to continue this. The, the the question is, OK, there was no oil sheik. They were trying to find out which Congress people in Abscam could be bought. The, the FBI and I don't want to defend the FBI, but they're going to say, mm-hmm. you know, we haven't really infiltrated the the white nationalists. Uh, the militias before were new at this. We're going for the low hanging fruit cakes. Uh, the 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 good you know the really well structured militia are going to be hard to crack. We're going to go in here and learn the lay of the land and place a seed of doubt in every militia that one of us one of you know somebody everybody now is going to wonder if their fellow militia man is an FBI informant. They're planting seeds okay, of doubt. Let me let me make two quick points, and I uh, I know how to work the clock. Uh, <laughs> number one, <laughs> number one, the difference here is that um, they did not reveal that at the time they busted these guys in October with great drama right before the election. Right. And my concern is that Trump is going to be able to flip this into uh, an alternate narrative of the deep state and that even firing Comey uh, didn't clean up the FBI, which is out to get him. And there's so much denial about what actually happened on January 6th uh, that this will fuel uh, deeper concerns. And if we if we follow up next week, I'll go into more detail about how BuzzFeed connects this to one of the uh, suspects from Michigan who was held after January 6th because he was a three percenter. And they said, well, he would have been at the Capitol uh, if we didn't have him locked up. And so uh, I'm concerned that there may be deeper FBI involvement in January 6th. Now, the extent you mean like they knew that January 6th was going down and didn't try to stop it. And and so we don't know. I want to be very clear. A lot of this at this point is speculative and the Democratic led uh, inquiry in the House will start tomorrow. Uh, Will they even examine no uh, issues related to the FBI? No. Will will Liz Cheney bring it up uh, as a way to try to uh, resuscitate her her Republican cred? and, and so, you know, number one, I object to the pattern of FBI behavior that is extra legal and that does entrap people who otherwise would not have attempted to commit a crime. But even with the people who I consider loathsome, uh, they have rights and uh, the FBI should not be crossing that line where they create a crime and then hang it on the necks 
of these people who are clearly unpopular right. with a large segment of the public. It is conceivable. Again, I don't want to defend the FBI, but I, I had the same reaction that you had when Rachel Maddow was talking about the FBI infiltrating finally the, the white nationalists in this country. There, it is conceivable that the FBI did know that something was going down on January 6th. I do know that the Capitol Police did get intelligence that something bad was going down on January 6th, a week before it happened. It is conceivable that the FBI had reason to believe something was going to happen on January 6th. And a cell within the FBI gave some information, maybe not enough. And like 9-11, I forgot the name of the FBI agent. Uh, There was a woman FBI agent who knew 9-11 was going to happen and nobody connected the dots. Colleen Rowley in in Minneapolis. I think her name was I think her name was Colleen Rowley. I think she was from Minnesota. I'm going to say Minneapolis. (laughs) (laughs) With a big forehead like this, it's just hard to keep it from escaping. (laughs) I'm going to re-edit this. So I I got but, you know, she connected the dots and she, you know, as I remember the testimony, she nobody was keeping it secret. It just it's incompetence. Well, and and David, I will close with this, that we cannot uh, prejudge or pre-guess about the FBI on January 6th, because there are two clear possibilities. One was that they were working to support Trump in this last ditch effort to use January 6th to keep him in power. The other possibility is that they were scheming to further uh, embarrass him and to uh, just slam the door on any possibility that he could hold on to power. Right. The motives, the motives are something that I'm not uh, addressing at all at this point. Right. And the FBI I, isn't some monolithic entity. They have cells within it that are, pro- as we saw with uh, the Comey, there are people mm-hmm. who were pro-Trump and the FBI. And uh, why can't they all be good men like Mark Felt? He was a great <laughs> FBI agent, wasn't he? The, he was as clean as they come, right? <laughs> I'm being I'm joking around. He was. Yes, you are. I, I, I get your irony. Tell, I, he, I, tell, my daily adult minimum supplement. He, Mark Felt, who was deep throat, was a horrible. He was supposed to replace uh, J. Edgar Hoover, but he. Uh, Violated was it? Is it the Fourth Amendment? What, what, illegal search and seizure. He was breaking yes. in, breaking in, or the Eighth Amendment. I can't. Fourth, fourth. number four. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was kicking open the doors of Weatherman, and mm-hmm. and he he got fined for for that. That is the impunity that they all uh, operate under. And one questions why Bob Woodward knew him so well. <laughs> was he in, was Bob Woodward in naval intelligence? I have heard that that he I might have been. Yeah. I don't know that I've ever seen evidence. Yeah, let's next week. This is great. Thank Peter B. Collins. How do people contact you, especially if they work for the FBI? How can the FBI? <laughs> well, they already know. How can the FBI uh, follow you? How do people contact you? 
Well, my email is peter at peterbcollins.com. Uh, I'm on Facebook, and I accept friends, except the girls with the uh, selfie shots that include their boobs. Yes, we have a song about that, as a matter of fact. Thank you, Peter B. Collins. I'll talk to you next week. Great. So great. Thank you. All right. Thank you, David. I believe we have Tom Weber, who uh, orchestrated this honeypot to get uh, Peter. You wanted to talk about something right, really. Are you there? Oh, I got it. I got it. I'm sorry. I just well, screwed up. And, and Professor Marianne, I believe, is up next. We're, we're, I'm running. Well, I just know if you would rather uh, we do this a different day. Well, very, or... very quickly, because you wanted to. I, I, you wanted to talk about something, and uh, let me bring Professor Marianne in just so we don't keep her waiting. Professor Marianne Cummings. Hello, Professor Marianne Cummings, who uh, was at the Medicare for All march. Uh, but, uh, Tom, you, you wanted to talk about another issue. I'll tell you what. Now I want to talk about something even different. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> I heard your uh, discussion with, uh, what's his name, David Cobbs, is that right? David Cobb, yes. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to make a few, or make a couple of corrections and some things that you said there, David, so forgive me for correcting you. But you've had a theme here that has been going in terms of fatalism, and which I appreciate, but I... Like Am I misusing the word? It's about blaming everything on religion here because, uh, well, right. I mean, that's, that's where I come from right, right. there. Uh, well, first of all, you talk about the Great Awakening and somehow tied that in here. The Great Awakening was what brought about abolition and women's suffrage. The, those people came from that. But there have been they several were, Great Awakenings, right? Weren't there like two or three? There were two, yes. Right. I'm there talking about the Bad Awakening. The Bad Awakening. Well, I think that came later. Let's put it that way. Okay. And a lot of times people will conflate modern-day fundamentalism and born-again Christianity, what's called that today, with that. Superficially, it looks the same in as much as a lot of your externals uh, look a lot like that. But in terms of politics, we're talking about something very, very different right there. And um, Well, let know, me ask you a question, because this is what I said, and, I, and uh, I want you to correct me. My limited knowledge of like the Millerites and the belief that the world is coming to an end because of the the forest fires in western New York that were, I think, the early 19th century. The skies were dark and the conclusion was he's coming. This is it. And from that came a very specific type of American uh, apocalyptic. He's coming Christianity, unlike anything we've seen around the world. Is that fair? Is that a fair? Uh, there have been strains that throughout our American history and predating that. And, and, know, and the Millerites, is, is it the, were the Millerites the, the, the group that, you know, repent, the end is near? Well, that's always been around, but 
And from yeah, that, that, I can invent that. Uh, I mean, there there has been periodically throughout history there have been apocalyptic groups and and and, yeah. and, and almost apolitical, a, a type of religion that's apolitical, uh, the the kind of religion that uh, Gail Norton or uh, the Coors family or. Um, where it's the the world is coming to an end. This is temporary. Uh, don't worry about the environment. Don't worry about politics. Right? Isn't that a product of that burnt district of Western New York? Um, you're naming names. I'm, I must admit, I am not. I make with. them up. <laughs> I'm just making I, shit up. No, uh, I don't. I don't know how to address that, but. I don't want to uh, overplay my card and say that there has not been any of this kind of stuff. And there is a danger. And I could go through a whole history of how, uh, you know, just taking Christianity by itself, how different groups, including within my own Catholic tradition, have watered down different aspects of this teaching. And one of the ways in which that happened has been through... Uh, well, kind of the opposite of apocalypticism in, in the case of the Catholic Church, but there have been different ways in which that has been done. But my big point is I think we've got to be very, very clear about uh, blaming everything on religion. And it, it, from my vantage point, and I really mean this, I think that uh, we have to take religion seriously for two big reasons. One is 85%, 86% of the world's population uh, identify as religious. So, uh, you know, you're not going to get anything done in this world without taking that uh, that serious. Right. You know, so we, and the, the other reason is, is because I think that we need, and you've heard me say this over and over again, so I would, forgive me for repeating myself, but I think that what religion brings to the table are a set of disciplines and some wisdom that can help people to affect change positively. Okay. Yeah, I think that we lack that. Why don't we do but, this? Because uh, uh, Grace Jackson has a segment, but it's not going to air tonight because I don't have the the tape. It, it didn't get delivered, which means mm -hmm. we can carry this conversation on. Do you have time later? That would be up to you. I'm, I was offering if you want to do it a different time completely, that's where, where I'm happy to do that. But anyway, that's up to you. Definitely. Yeah, I would love that. I, I, I would love because I did make some statements that uh, about people turning to my fear is that I fear people are going to turn yeah, to religion, turning to religion. I just think that's a generalization. I, I, I keep wanting to say, let me just close this segment, at least with this. Right. Please let us make a differentiation in our mind between Christianity and those who self-identify as Christians who are fundamentalists. That kind of binary thinking is what uh, leads us to some very dark places. Well, and it's not, you know, it's not Christianity in general, nor is it religion in general. And certainly, what are you I saying? Let me. This guy doesn't represent all religion. 
God's about to bring the whole house down, ladies and gentlemen. These bunch of sex trafficking mongrels are about to be exposed. These bunch of pedophiles in Hollywood are going to be exposed for who they are. I don't care what you think about fraudulent Sleepy Joe. He's a sex trafficking, demon-possessed mongrel. He's of the left. He ain't no better than the Pope and Oprah Winfrey and Tom Hanks and the rest of that wicked crowd. God is going to bring the whole house down. I said he's going to bring the whole house down. He's going to burn the whole thing to the ground. He's going to expose all these bunch of pedophiles. I'm telling you, he's going to expose Kamala Harris for the Jezebel demon that she is. Oh, that part is right. The, uh, <laughs> you know, you Lord God, that man is filled with the Holy Ghost. I'm telling you. Here's the thing. And yeah. then, then we're going to bring it. You know, if you told me 40 years ago that there would be a guy like Greg Locke, a, a preacher who was attacking Oprah, Tom Hanks, and the Pope, I the, the Pope. It is pretty funny though to go after the Pope. And Tom put Tom Hanks, the Pope, and Oprah in the same category of deplorables. I'd say that's never going to happen. This is this is this is end times. He's right. Oh, uh, this is end well, time. I could, I could have shown you that kind of thinking when I was a young man down south in the Bible Belt. So there's nothing new with anything that guy's saying right there. If only he was for Medicare for all. Why can't we have one of these crazies taking the stage and championing Medicare for all? Let's continue this in a little while. Okay, so later on. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you. Peter, thank you. Thank you, Peter. We'll talk to you next week. Great. Uh, fantastic, fantastic. Uh, Professor Marianne uh, Cummings is a physicist. She is also a parks commissioner in Aurora, Illinois. And, you know, I'm not on the same page as you all the time politically. Here's the difference between you and me. You put your money where your mouth is. You marched for Medicare for all. I'm going to, I'm going to, Peter, I'm going to, just turn your video off. I don't mean to be rude. Thank you. Uh, you know, I'm busy arguing with you about I don't argue, but I, you're, you and I don't agree on everything. But I saw on Facebook you pictures of you at marching for Medicare for all. You're a physicist. You ran for Parks Commissioner. I see during uh, a community billboard, Dan is showing me the parks you're building. You uh, you're the worst type of liberal le leftist. You stand on the corner, stand off to the side, sniping, and then you actually do something about it. So it, it's it's very hard to argue with you because, you know, I can't say, well, you know, all you do is you have this purity test and go try to do something. You'll see how difficult it is. Well, you're doing something. So uh, uh, you purity are. Purity test. I was against the purity testers, you know, the vote blue no matter who crowd. <laughs> that know? park is pretty amazing. Which I mean, that it's amazing, and I have to say that I, I'm very proud of it because I really pushed that, and we got uh, Oslad grant money to make it nice. That uh, community. What, what, what kind of grant money? 
It was basically, there's a program called Open Spaces and Land Acquisition and Development. It's run through the Interior Department and it gets divvied out to the states. I don't know, I, I think they got him drunk one night, but one, uh, he doesn't drink, but one, one of the very few things that Trump did right uh, was sign some legislation that made that program permanent. So what it does is it takes, it's designed to take, to reclaim open spaces, to uh, uh, encourage more green spaces, particularly in areas that have been neglected, like my neighborhood. Like that's on the end of a old Copley Hospital site and people can go Copley Hospital, Aurora, Illinois on YouTube if you want to see some really creepy videos. But that was an abandoned site for 20 years where I took the picture behind me. Those people were just looking at, uh, you know, broken glass, cracked cement, you know, weedy field places where, you know, gangbangers would hang out. and Or podcasters like me. Oh, well, like myself, (laughs) like a couple of years ago, looking the place over. But uh, this splash pad is solar power operated. And when you go to one of these uh, big conventions, like they have the Illinois uh, Parks and Recreation uh, Industry um, boondoggle down in, (laughs) well, they had it like, uh, they didn't have it last year, but every year they have this big convention and you go through and i mean it makes the international particle accelerator conference conferences look really paltry i mean there are like technical displays that are like 10 times as vast with all the latest gizmos that you can do to make parks to make playgrounds all of it you know environmentally conscious it's it's really a lot of fun Hmm. so we kind of uh, i had a budget but we put together i even like uh did the color schemes for the kids playground equipment so that's all fun and um it wasn't you know it's not the most elaborate thing but it's uh it's great when those trees grow in it's going to be beautiful and the back of it hasn't been quite developed yet we're going that's going to be like a sensory park and that's going to be butterfly there's going to be pollinator gardens and things like that in there so it's going to be it's going to be very nice you're doing something as opposed Mm -hmm. to just complaining and you marched in chicago for medicare for all rodrigo at office hours warned that some of the medicare for all marches had been infiltrated by neo-nazis i looked it up and i went rodrigo's right there have been so there was one in uh indiana where one of the speakers you know, these are all locally organized. I actually, it turns out I know one of the local organizers of the uh, Chicago rally. I had no idea she was doing it until I saw her on the Hill Rising. <laughs> she, she was on with Tara Reid. So uh, anyway, yeah. Who were the, or- let, let me make sure, uh, because at office hours, I was halfway asleep, uh, <laughs> as I always am. And I was told that, Perhaps this had been that this was being run by people who may not really be for Medicare for all. Is there any truth to that? Well, certainly not in the Chicago, certainly not to Chicago Medicare for all rally, because it turned out I knew quite a few of the people that were behind this. And uh, one of the people that promoted it, there's a group called Hard Lens Media, and they were podcasters, but uh, we, my group, Progressives of Kane County, got uh, to know them because they promoted a lot of our candidates. We were kind of one of the first 
Bernie groups that were recruiting people to run for local office. And four of our members ran for the state central committee, and one of them actually got got in. So they were very good to us. And it turns out they were, Kit Cabello in particular, was one of the MCs of the crowd. Uh, Joy Bunton was one of the organizers, and she's been she's just been involved in local activism forever. But um, it was brutally hot day. Actually, I was a little concerned because we did take over Michigan Avenue and march down Michigan Avenue, but it was like it was in the '90s, and that heat. I mean, there were people in wheelchairs like behind me and people and walkers and I was beginning to watch there were some kids running cold water to everybody so that was that who were the Chicago politicians I would assume Michelle and Barack came out to support oh, Medicare for damn, all you know they must have uh, they must have left before I got there I'm hmm. sure they there was actually quite a few there was uh, Rahm Emanuel must have been there right oh damn I missed him too you know you know who was there Mayor Lightfoot Danny Danny Davis Danny did the congressman the congressman yeah yeah I was a little stunned <laughs> there right. were several aldermen we have like several aldermen now who identify themselves as democratic socialists and, and that's an interesting position because traditionally, as a Chicago alderman, you can have as much power as like a congressman. I mean, these are very powerful positions. So uh, the only people in, in, uh, in the Chicago area who were Bernie delegates turned out to be the aldermen. And there were some uh, there were some advocates, too. But uh, as Carlos Rosa said that, like, there were a lot more Bernie supporters uh, among the ranks of the Hillary delegates, but they said if they were to have uh, accepted being a Bernie delegate, they would have no future in Chicago politics. However, if you get your own power base and are able to be elected uh, the, uh, to the city council, then you have your own position of power. You know, Chewy Garcia was a Chicago alderman, so he and also big Bernie guy as was Carl. So a lot of those guys actually showed up. What struck me, and I think I mentioned this, office hours kind of went on more than 24 hours anyway. I couldn't believe that people (laughs) were still on late Saturday afternoon when I got back. But um, I'm blaming my daughter for that. Oh, okay. Well, it was interesting. I mean, uh, Dave from PA had some footage from uh, some of the marches in Pennsylvania, somebody was showing a march in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, or a rally. That that would kind of surprise me. Um, Graham Elwood covered it uh, in Hawaii. Graham Elwood covered it in Hawaii. Oh, okay. It was kind of interesting. Yeah, I didn't see that, but there was a there was a lot of different ones. Uh, they there was a big one in Washington D.C. There was a big one in in New York. The one thing that did strike me, and I told people yesterday about, uh, or Saturday about this, was that um, in previous political rallies that I've been involved with, I was thinking of two big anti, anti-Iraq anti war rallies back in 2000, back in 2003, before the Iraq war. And way back in 1991, I was marching down Michigan Avenue protesting the first Iraq war invasion. And uh, but what I noticed uh, back in 2003 was that there weren't many people of color out protesting. I mean, there was a big crowd protesting the war, but mostly white. 
Well, what's the biggest anti, I believe, worldwide, the march worldwide, against yes. was the largest yeah. in the history of, uh, it, of the world. Yeah, I'm looking at uh, the uh, the news media here. I do a Google search on the Medicare for all march and the Washington Post has analysis by Dave Weigel. Weigel. Oh, oh, dear. Whatever happened to Medicare for all? That's his uh, okay. coverage. That's the Washington Post coverage of the march. It wasn't covered, yeah. was it? Well, somebody said that not even Democracy Now! covered it, which I'm surprised. Why is that? Chicago, the... the the Chicago uh, WGN did have a van out there, and they did cover it. And they did, an, they did apparently, um, according to one of my local guys uh, here, who was uh, one of the organizers, that they did a really good job. But there were some tremendous speakers. Usually, you know, I, I usually just like marching, because when we were marching down Michigan Avenue, I mean, the people... And we went marched right past the Art Institute. And there were people honking their horns on the other side of Michigan Avenue, like throwing peace signs and thumbs up. And we were getting an overwhelmingly positive like reaction from the crowds, from the people walking. It's downtown Chicago. It's a Saturday. It's crowded. And we get we were there were some people that joined us marching to uh, to Federal Plaza. And, um, but here's the but, thing that's interesting, and and uh, Rodrigo kind of touched on this. One would think that Bernie, AOC, Pramila Jayapal would have spoken at one of those rallies. I'm not saying that. Maybe I'm wrong. But why didn't Bernie? I'm wondering if they haven't been even mentioning Medicare for all. I don't know. I mean, it's like they're probably focused on getting this uh, this uh, infrastructure reconciliation bill passed. That's a whole other discussion. So um, you're you're in politics. What is the thinking for the? Am I wrong? Was the squad silent on this march? There was one. I saw later yesterday that Cori Bush showed up for the uh, Washington, D.C. Medicare for All March. She, okay. uh, the new know, congresswoman she, from Missouri. Huh? The new congresswoman from Missouri. New. That's right. Yeah. And uh, Lacey, she defeated Lacey Clay. He and his dad combined, you know, had been in Congress for hold the held that seat for about 52 years. So that was the one little bright spot for progressives. Last so year. where wh- wh- where was the squad? Where was Bernie? I think they this. <clears throat> I think the squad has gotten rather timid, and maybe they're a little, maybe they're a little intimidated by the whole process of Washington, D.C., I, uh, I don't know. I don't read minds, but... Uh, Bernie? Where was I, Bernie? I feel that it's, Bernie is like a one-man show in the Senate right now trying to, you know, navigate a minefield to get something passed this year. Um, and that's like... Um, that's iffy. But... You know, I think that they haven't, in the, not just this rally, they haven't mentioned it. But, as people have pointed out repeatedly, you know, politicians need to have pressure from outside. 
Even AOC was chiding us all. Now you've got to get on the streets and you've got to march. Well, a lot of people answered, hey, well, you're in Congress. You do your job. But here we are marching. You know, here we are marching. And the nice thing about this march, uh, I was going to say earlier, um, was that there was a very diverse crowd. There was a, a there, there was maybe about half white and half people of color. And that was impressive. There was at least half of the speakers were people of color. And that was where it got kind of interesting because usually for these things, you know, I'm on the same page as these speakers. You know, I'm there usually just to be polite. But I got a real education listening to these speakers. And it was very good of Kit Cabela and, and Joy Button that they, came, they, they made everybody say things in a very short period of time. You know, nobody went on for 15, 20 minutes. Everybody went on for a few minutes. And it was wonderful. And they were, it was just opening my eyes to how much, you know, you think of Medicare for all as just a progressive kind of thing. The, the people getting more, most crushed by our healthcare system are people of color. Poor people of all kinds, but people of color in particular. And for people not even poor, but in the middle class, there is a sizable black middle class but their grip on the middle class is so damn tenuous. You know, just one, one job loss, you know, one medical catastrophe, even though insured. And so you heard case after case, you had that there was a black rabbi who got out and speak that I had never known, that I'd never heard of before. But he was very big in, in community, community activism. Joy Bunton herself told her story. I mean, you had all these people telling their stories and then you realize, and you know, it just made me feel like, you know, I'm not going to waste any more energy like swatting flies on YouTube or, or Twitter or Facebook. Well, I'm going to do that occasionally. Right. But now I'm just more determined than ever to do anything I can to get Medicare for all passed. And I don't care how many people call me names. You can put your white privilege to some good use if right. you could have any kind of influence at all. So, right. but at the end, I have to tell you, you, you you've heard me speak of um, Janaid uh, Ahmad, who is running in the eighth congressional. Hold district that thought for one. Hold that thought for one second. Do you think the reason the squad and Bernie were missing from the Medicare for All march? was because if this now it's going back up to four trillion four point five trillion infrastructure bill it includes medicare expansion it's offering dental old people need dental i mm -hmm. free hearing aids would it be unseemly for the squad and bernie to be screaming for medicare for all if they felt Medicare expansion was in the cards. If they felt that Medicare uh, expansion was sufficient, I mean, that would be, you know, a shame. I, I don't know how uh, getting people out on the streets and if, you know, Bernie had gotten out and if the squad had gotten out, I mean, like AOC has 12 million Twitter followers. Right. I mean, that would have even push them further it would have they would have said hey look we got a mob out here demanding better care for all you know here's the compromise and you know this is 
the, the idea that people pushing for a righteous cause, taking to the streets peacefully and, you know, making their voices heard, like ever does damage to a cause is it's got to be some weird D.C. brain infection. Or let me just play the optimist. We'll know by Labor Day if the infrastructure bill is doomed before that, we'll probably know. Is it, conce- is it conceivable that AOC, the squad, and Bernie are holding back because they've threatened, I'm just throwing this out there, they've threatened Schumer and Pelosi. We have the Twitter followers. We have a base that will turn on you if you don't get us a multi-trillion dollar infrastructure deal that includes Medicare expansion. If you don't do it through reconciliation, if you don't make this happen, come October, you're going to have a really angry progressive base. Do you think that Pelosi and Schumer and Biden are spooked by Bernie and AOC? Not at all. I mean, you know, when they saw those rallies for Bernie, you know, 13,000, 12 more, bigger than the anti-war rallies. I mean, Bernie had over 13,000 people show up on Navy Pier on a cold, like, February in 2019. Uh, no, they're not. If they're not worried about that, they're not worried. And I, I think they're so in the D.C. bubble that they don't even care what happens. But you got to give so Bernie. Know. Here's the thing. Yeah. Bernie is Hillary in 2009. Obama had to placate Hillary. He made her secretary of state. You, you, she, she wanted foreign policy. She got foreign policy and the people oh. in Libya are very grateful for that. I'm <laughs> joking around. Uh, he's uh, Biden has to make good on some backroom deal that he made with Bernie. And I'm just thinking, I'm just trying to be optimistic. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, I understand. That if Bernie, you know, Bernie's no fool. So, so this is the deal he made. Wouldn't you agree? Chairman of the banking committee, reconciliation, infrastructure it's all lining up this had to have been the deal that he made with the democrats it has to be he didn't take he's he's not in the cabinet he didn't take a cabinet level position he's got power in the senate which is what he wants if he doesn't get a multi-trillion dollar infrastructure deal by september Uh, he's going to have a pistol. Bernie is going to have to answer to his base. Right. Well, he's like disappointed his base repeatedly. So I don't know if he I think he's just doing what he thinks he can get done in the Senate. That's, you know, he realizes, you know, he, he doesn't want to be as he told Chris Hedges many years ago. He doesn't want to be like a ralph nader figure he doesn't want to be on the outside he wants to be on the inside and he's probably the best person in that swamp to navigate you know things as they are i think 
you know, whatever they're doing, I can't read their minds. And it's, you know, it's just like I have no power over it. So it's just like my the only thing I can do an activist can do is to be pressuring on the outside consistently. And something like what happened in Chicago was actually that actually was energizing to me, but instructive to me. It was like this can't stand and I have to take it on myself to, you know, like really internalize this. This is not just, you know, Team Red or Team Blue winning. I mean, this is a moral travesty. If it, you know, if, if I was, if there was only five of us protesting the Iraq war, I would have gone out and protested. And I'm feeling now the same way for Medicare for All, whether there's a crowd of 500 or 5,000 or five. I'm, right. going to be, I'm going to continue to do this. And right. that's the only thing we can do. But as, as I was just saying before, the last guy to speak was uh, Junaid Ahmad, who was running for the 8th, whatever the 8th uh, congressional district is going to be, and he was on fire. That tells me, you know, for, for a candidate to show up to an event like this, this is where all the hardcore activists are. You know, the people that are kind of, you know, they're careerists and they want to behave and they don't want to piss anybody off, they'll stay home. Uh, but this was, this was the crowd for activists, and that Junaid got up there and gave, I never, and I was curious because I'd never heard him give a speech before. You know, he had spoke to us, he had, he had spoke on our meetings, he, we were talking policy, but this guy is just one serious dude. He reminded me of Shervin, the guy that you had on for a couple of, and I, yeah. he, Shervin also spoke at uh, some Medicare for All rally this weekend, too. I'm sure but he's still maybe, speaking. Yeah. He's like me. But anyway, anyway, the point is, is that, uh, I mean, this guy has basically, uh, you know, let it be known, he is committed. You know, he can't back down because, you know, it's on YouTube forever, right? All these speeches right. you can go right. to Hardlands Media to see all the speeches. They're quite wonderful. But um, he's so when somebody like that shows up to an event like that, that's who you can tell. That's who you can trust to be somebody that, you know, will do what they say. So it's got to be this next round, you know, uh, we're gearing up for 2022, whatever they manage to get done or not get done in the House. We've got to get more people like Shervin and Junaid elected to the Congress. And we also, there's people, there are some people in our group, I know people, you know, the um, COVID is raging again in Illinois. It's back. It's uh, back. So uh, I can see why people wouldn't want to go out and about, even if it was in the sunshine in right. the open. But there, uh, there's, there was a group uh, making phone calls for uh, Nina Turner. Let me do this. Let me do this. I don't want to keep. Uh, let me just explain what the schedule is like, because I'm, I'm now keeping. Yeah. I'm ten minutes behind. Uh, Professor Adnan Hussein is here, and then. I'm wide open. Uh, Grace Jackson's interview hasn't arrived. And I have an interview, a great interview that Henry has, but I can play that. So let me if if everybody wants to stick around, but I don't want to be rude to anybody. So if if you don't mind, can you stick around, Professor Marianne? Yeah. Okay. And uh, let me but I. I want to be respectful of Professor Hussein's time, so in case he has to leave, and uh, and I know Tom. I, I was I, I'm enjoying this conversation, and I think we've got an impromptu, you know, Professors and Marianne potentially going on here. So I, I think this is uh, interesting. Well, we also have. Aunt, can I bring Professor Ann Lee in if she wants to join us? 
I was actually thinking of uh, making professors and Mary adding Professor Ann. I don't know if you guys have 90 minutes, but I was thinking doing 90 minutes with, and adding Professor Ann Lee. Uh, but I was actually anyway, but I guess we should talk about that privately, not Professor Ann Lee. You're welcome to, to join us uh, if you want. Uh, but first off, nice. let me be respect of your time in case what is on your mind? I had some questions I wanted to ask you, and I know Texas Tom. Good. Thank you, Professor Ann Lee. Great. Uh, well, I had a question actually for for Marianne. Um, about, uh, you know, we're seeing something happen with continuing to organize and pressure around Medicare for all. Uh, but David, you posed the issue of this big infrastructure bill. And I wonder if um, we're really, well, it's a really a, just a question. How would you assess what is the most progressive avenue or outcome right at this moment politically? on what can be achieved, you know, um, because I sometimes am wondering if Medicare for all has kind of become a kind of a culture war of the left in its own way, partly because of what happened with um, the force, the vote and the growing disenchantment uh, with the squad and the divide between what one might say is the the base in the grassroots and the representatives in Congress. There's been this sort of tension. And if now pushing on Medicare for all, whether or not there is the political opportunity, whether that's the most advantageous um, avenue to take um, right now, you know, just wondering what is this, what is your sense of the strategy? Is this more because this is the way to show the defiant disappointment that we have with the failures of our representatives who we put in this position to lead the charge to really do so? Or is this really what is intended as the best way to achieve some big gain out of this, uh, you know, kind of period, uh, politically speaking. Well, you know, you're talking two really different things, you know, that kind of strategy in terms of the, the current politics right now is you know, somewhat out of my hands. I mean, I have no control over what's going on in Congress. And I don't think activists on the ground should be, you know, placing all their bets on or, or even like taking direction for what they think in their most optimistic moods might happen. OK, all of these none of these big things that ever happened in our culture came from, you know, the Congress. They were always movements, persistent movements. And you were there. We don't know when the right time to strike, you know, when, when the ire, when to strike in, in Washington. So you just have to be ready all the time. And for a lot of people who spoke at the rally, this wasn't about politics or putting a line in the sand or Twitter wars or anything else. I mean, this were their, these were their lives. I mean, this is what people are facing. And it's, you know, just a very harsh reality. Oh, I, that's right. Oh, you, you work at you do you live up in Canada or mm -hmm. just commute there? So you have 
healthcare. <laughs> it's like, it's a done well, deal for yeah, you guys. Exactly. I mean, and it'll never uh, be taken away because people love to have their yeah. health care. This is why there's such adamant opposition is because no country where you have received universal health care coverage of some of any kind is willing to give that up. So even the conservatives and the right wingers have to pretend that they actually support the health care system, even as they might try and undermine it by you know, trying to privatize kind of, you know, aspects and undermine the coverage or whatever. So I do think that it's one of those transformative kinds of universal policies. Um, I wonder, though, if there are others that might have a bigger political effect at this moment that we could get. You know, there's so many things we're asking for. We're asking for some action on the climate crisis. And that seems to me one that you can also build a lot of political consensus around and the positions that democratic leadership has taken it's just so entirely inadequate to you know we've been listening to you know ian faluna telling us um, you know weekly with updates about how disastrous the situation is so i just wonder i mean we can't we can fight on all fronts and like you i mean if there's a medicare for all protest i would be for that i would come out for that if there's an iraq you know if there's an anti-war protest even if you're alone you got to come out and 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 show for it i just am wondering um because of david's question about this relationship with the with the um with the representatives how one connects best the grassroots movement to political representation and leadership to actually make some change happen that's just my well, question you certainly, like, where well, you do you certainly don't let the pilot light go out on something as important as medicare for all indeed you don't yeah. you keep it and you know there's a lot of people that you are reaching out to when you have marches like that and we had speakers from the physicians for a national health care program we had nurses. We had, we had nurses organizations represent represented there. We had we, we we had preachers. We had Chicago aldermen. I mean, we had a lot. Of, we had a broad representation of, of people there. But you know, as I said, you can't if you care about a certain topic, you can't let it slide just because you think your Congress people lack the incentive to do something. You have to be there. I mean, you have, they're all in, they're all in DC. They get affected. They only hear what the, what's going on in the bubble of DC. So you have to be on the outside, but what our group is also doing is, is hosting a, 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 a local Illinois green new deal coalition and we, there is a particular piece of legislation down in Springfield, Illinois. It's called the Clean Energy Jobs Act. And even though with an overwhelmingly Democratic uh, legislature and a Democratic government, they couldn't get the votes to pass it in the last session. So we're going to have to try again. Um, but, you know, again, it's, it's like, we, yeah, you're right. There's things to be doing on all fronts. And... Ultimately, it's the money. And it's ultimately a few people in the Democratic leadership who cares about the Republicans. They're just back crap crazy howlers at this point. The Democrats are in charge if they want to be. And it's a few people in Democratic leadership who are getting paid. And, you know, the statement, these things can never happen, 
Well, that's only if you finish the sentence. As I say, these things can never happen, and I stay in power. <laughs> it's like, that's very simple. So you even have the lefty pundits like uh, Mike Fiorello, Fiorello and, um, and Sam Cedar, you know, just kind of being very down, like we're not going to get Medicare for all for maybe 20 years. Well, that's kind of self-revealing prophecy. That's, if that's what you accept, that's what you'll probably get. There's a lot of people not accepting that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And more than one thing can go on at a time. Right. A big right. Place. They've got staff. But in terms of just what the Democrats can run on, Medicaid, Medicare expansion, it's not enough. I'm just holding out hope that we'll, you know, we'll get Medicare expansion through this infrastructure bill and go, that's not good enough and keep fighting. But it'll be something. As a, I, I, I'm worried we're going to get Come Labor Day, Professor Ann Lee, do you what do you think the chances are that we're going to end up with nothing on la- by Labor Day? Nothing. Well, I, I think we we won't. Uh, I don't mean to be a pessimist about it. I just think that the framing is just not there. I mean, we have a lot of other things that unfortunately come first. Um and even after Labor Day, it's going to be problematic. And, and you will have a very small window to, to move this, because once you get to January 22, we're on to other matters. It's going to get, uh, you know, uh, where I see this as problematic is that, that no one is really carrying the torch for this in mainstream media. And, and it seems pretty clear that it's constrained right now until the big infrastructure bill, et cetera, gets gets thrown in there. So I, I, I hate to be an incrementalist, but I think expansion is what is the best you can do. Uh, yeah, well, but we're frankly, not going to get that. Do you think we're going mean, to I want what do you think mansion and yeah. cinema? Now, I think we'll get it. I think it'll slide in there because we'll be distracted by all kinds of other, uh, unfortunately, more important bells and whistles. Um, and uh, hopefully the all of these all of these policy proposals including the budget implications etc have certain structural implications in mind and if we can win the 22 election we'll be in a much better shape it is about majorities i i mean i hate to be a party politician but uh, everything should be put in place to not lose congress to the gop I mean, it's just to make it very clear that that, you know, none of the, none of these things are going to happen, partially because we have a very bad sign coming at the state level with all of these uh, voter suppression bills in GOP controlled legislatures. Uh, on the other hand, if I wanted to be optimistic, I would say certain states like California, et cetera, are leveraging their own institutional power to change things in that direction. So at some moment. It's going to force everything forward. I mean, it, it, it's just it, there is going to be a certain institutional weight from large states and locally no of, or federally. Well, at the state level, which which is really where it's going to be important anyway. You're going to see, you're going to see this. Uh, uh, I think once 
once Newsom gets past this recall election, et cetera, I, I, I think things will, you know, there's a lot of moving parts here. It's unfortunate there are a lot of moving parts. And with all due respect to the Medicare for all demonstrations, uh, at least as far as I saw it on the weekends, uh, uh, the, the wackiness in L.A. Uh, still managed to uh, uh, push off a lot of the Medicare for all activity. What do you mean by that? What 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 happened? Well, you know, there was a, I guess a, a health clinic being protested by, uh, and and even within uh, uh, the, the Feldo universe, we were fighting about whether how real was was the demonstration. You know, the same one that you had cops uh, starting to to actually use non-lethal non-lethal devices against demonstrators it it was getting a little stupid uh and a couple and of people it, and is that because the demonstrators were misbehaving or the cops were accelerating well, the misbehavior <laughs> i think in la i think uh, unfortunately both right is gavin newsom the governor of california the recall is in september is that correct no, I think so. Right. Is he moving to the left or just staying put? What is he I offering? Hmm? I don't know. Not my state uh, anymore. But uh, I, I I think he's he's just got a lot to do. And it's just noise. I, I think, you know, we, we just have all of these competing competing interests. I mean, he's going to beat back the, the recall. But I, I just think it's uh, it's just complicating i think a lot of different political elements and and i think the biggest thing that he has to cope with is whether there's going to be a, a pandemic shutdown again pandemic is 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 actually trumping everything and and the messaging is not including a medicare for all message there right. should be a medicare for all message built into all all pandemic or anti or pro pandemic uh, activity it, I don't understand why it hasn't been framed that way. And with all due respect to the Medicare for all people, that should be at the front end. Well, Anne, I will I'll tell you that. Um, and, and it's the speakers, not a critique of, of the demos. What was, I'm saying is that one of the speakers at the rally in Chicago explicitly brought up the, uh, the rollout of the vaccine. And he said, you know, you uh, unlike what a lot of people experience going to the doctors, at least when they when Illinois got its act together, you walked into a place, you showed them in your ID, you got the vaccine, you stayed for 15 minutes to make sure you had it, you didn't have any reaction. Uh, you got a new the date for your second vaccine if it was your first, and then you went off and you saw people, and particularly Kane County. Illinois had a sort of a dicey rollout at the beginning, but in Kane County, I it was it went very well, and people saw what a government organized healthcare effort could do. You could actually solve a problem with it. And so they made a very big point of that. And that was one of the things, you know, uh, that people were going to take home because we ain't near, we ain't anywhere near done with this pandemic, I am sad to say. And already tomorrow I'm on another board meeting and we are going to discuss how the park district can help the East, uh, uh, East Aurora school system open up at the end of next month safely and it might be using our facilities it might be they're preparing for in-class instruction 
But if this new Lambda variant is hitting kids, and we haven't had, I think they've just now uh, okayed both the three major vaccines for kids as, as so young as 12, and they're really trying to make a push for that. So we got to try to vac- vaccinate as many kids as possible. So that's going to be an effort. Professor Hussein, uh, David, Dave Cyrus was on earlier. He said something really interesting about the the right wing propaganda machine. He said they're feeding a beast that they have to make the audience happy, that part of what you're hearing from Tucker Carlson and AM on AM radio are positions that don't necessarily reflect what the ruling oligarchs want, but instead what the audience wants to hear. And that kind of blew me away. I always think that people like Sean Hannity and Levin and Ann Coulter and uh, Tucker Carlson are moving in the direction of their marching orders from the ruling class. You know, Rupert Murdoch is trying to placate his friends, the billionaires. And Dave Cyrus is saying partly, but there's also this audience out there that wants to hear exactly what they're saying. And I thought, really? I mean, what? like the anti-vaxxers, the, the lab leak theory, to me, that all serves the jingoistic, warmongering narrative that benefits the military-industrial complex and uh, the Trump apologists who want to get them back in there so they can lower taxes. I never thought that that was something millions of people wanted to hear, giving the people what they want. Is that do you do you? Get that? Did you understand that? Uh, I mean, I think uh, I didn't hear it, but that sounds like a pretty canny suggestion that gets at the classic question of media analysis, you know, as media propaganda, you know, brainwashing people and affecting people's attitudes or in a kind of capitalist uh, sort of media corporate system. Are they identifying audiences that they need to satisfy in order to expand their you know, market share? You know, and so I guess what in a way it comes down to is something that was also hotly debated in some left circles earlier this uh, year, maybe this winter. Um, is there such a thing or is it just a contradiction in terms that is impossible? Is there such a thing as genuine right wing populism? Right. And what are the parameters of it and how do you identify what makes it distinguishable from the right wing kind of corporatism and what's the relationship to the right wing corporatism? I think in some ways we've seen people grow so alienated from uh kind of conventional orthodox politics, from institutions, um, from the media, you know, that there is a lot of uh, anger and, and, and almost a, a willful sort of disregard, like sort of joy in, um, you know, just um, rejecting 
what you're hearing from any authority figures. It's kind of a left, you know, right wing version of the counterculture of the left in the 60s, which mm -hmm. was like anybody in authority was to be mocked uh, because they were lying to you. And, um, you know, that that was the source of your oppression. And I feel like there's some kind of cultural symmetry that's that's happening. And so perhaps if there really is such a thing as right wing populism, it's a consequence of the decay of these institutions to actually be convincing because the gap between um, you know, what they've said in terms of rhetoric about how this is for the good of the country uh, is belied by the neoliberal enrichment of a certain class of people. And um, now I think the real danger for us is that on the left, we've missed the boat on being able to communicate effectively. You know, now you have people thinking that Tucker Carlson, you know, really does speak for the common person, even though he would never agree that, you know, genuine economic populism, like forming a union and actually democratizing the workplace is a solution to any of the uh, problems of capitalism that he identifies and criticizes so effectively for this audience that seems very interested in hearing about this. Um, so it's an interesting observation. I'm wondering what others. Um, yeah, I would like, Professor, you're kind of an expert on this topic. It kind of blew me away to to think that it that you can explain away AM talk radio and Fox News and Trump just feeding a beast that wants to hear what it wants to hear. As remember, David, that was that was Roger Ailes business model. Roger Ailes big idea was that, you know, there was an audience not for people who wanted to be informed with, you know, straight out news, but who wanted their beliefs vindicated by hearing somebody on the TV regurgitate them. That was the whole business model of Fox News. And sadly, it was successful. Um, one of the things that I found interesting was Rachel Maddow years ago talked about how she regarded Roger Ailes as a mentor, which at the time I thought was a very odd thing for her to say. I thought, well, maybe in some kind of abstract you know, professional context. But then, you know, she was feeding her audience Russiagate stories for like, you know, three or four years. And that brought her ratings up to, <laughs> to start close to Sean Hannity, who she was across. And, you know, when uh, the Mueller, when the Mueller wrapped up, her audience went down, you know, it was a big deflation. So, you know, there's a siloing of information. You know, there's the MSNBC crowd and then there's the Fox News crowd. So uh, I get this is so, Professor Lee, there's a business model that Fox has. It, they're not serving the oil industry or partly serving the oil industry. But they, Rupert Murdoch doesn't care about the pharmaceutical industry. He doesn't care about the health insurance companies. He doesn't care about keeping Exxon in business. He cares about catering to a specific audience that wants to hear climate change isn't man-made climate change isn't real the communists are coming 
he's not serving a, a larger agenda other than feeding this beast of an audience he's created or recognized. Well, it's it's just reinforcement, you know. Ed, you can you could call it brainwashing, although that's a little anachronistic. But it's essentially taking the same audience that he's always had, a certain conservative audience, a certain reactionary audience, and that the message is very unitary. It's unfortunate. It's not very smart. <clears throat> and uh, it has a lot of idiots. But the fact is they've built, they've constructed the audience. They managed to keep it despite losing people like O'Reilly, etc. And... Even even when you see who advertises on um, Hannity, et cetera, that seems to be even less of an interest. It is just simply about keeping that audience together. It is profitable. Fact, Fox News is very, very profitable. Well, it's profitable partially because it, it's turned itself into a kind of message monopoly. You know, in other words, where it's... It's the well, it tends to be the only thing seen in certain markets. I mean, and in certain places, you know, in waiting rooms and military bases. I mean, the audience is is bizarrely constructed, but it's it's a consistent audience. Unfortunately, it's been cut into in certain regions. Fortunately, they're not that powerful by OAN and and Newsmax, et cetera. But, you know, that's all fake. That's all fakery as well. And and, and essentially, they're not battling for a, a, a share. They're just mutually reinforcing each other. Right. Technically, just technically, Fox is amazing. I mean, if you oh, go. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Your eyes just there's it's like a slot machine. You're just glued to that. <laughs> Uh, Tom Weber, Texas Tom Weber, let's ask uh, Professor Adnan Hussein to weigh in on fatalism and what I had said earlier about how people, you didn't like my saying that they turned to religion, but the, the Great Awakening and my fear that if climate change continues to just be a the catastrophe that we're experiencing right now. My fear is that maybe turning to religion uh, was a clumsy, that they're going to turn away from politics and look for something deeper and more meaningful. And then we're, I feel then we're screwed. The, 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 I said earlier that the great one of the great awakenings came from the, the forest fires in Western New York in the what the 1820s 1830s and that it created uh, an apocalyptic version of christianity that focused mostly on john is there any my misreading what i read 20 years ago professor hussein I'm not fully aware of that argument, perhaps. Uh, in that case, it's the gospel, and we'll move on from there. <laughs> <laughs> Which gospel? Mine. <laughs> yeah. The gospel of David. Yes. Yeah, but I mean, I think, uh, you know, there, there's sometimes where, uh, you know, these uh, conditions, as scholars think, conditions produce extreme conditions, produce these new 
cultural forms that are in response to it. Um, I think also it's the gap between um, expectation and reality, that sort of disappointment that creates these sort of religions of pessimistic hope uh as kind of negative hope and renewal like you know and i think in some ways we have in a kind of apocalyptic politics to connect those two things together is that there is a sort of desire that we heard we you know by these trump supporters who you know didn't necessarily think that trump was some messiah or uh, weren't true believers in him but they had a kind of desire to see the system just collapse be torn down so that who knows maybe something new but in any case any of these attempts at reform they feel had failed and so you wanted some grand apocalyptic new chapter in history you know it's just this desire for let's start again you know out with the old let's let's do something new and i think um you know, we do have this is a very apocalyptic moment in the discourses that we have about uh, climate change and environmental uh, disaster. But one thing that's interesting um, and people have started studying this is that some people are turning towards um, spiritual indigenous traditions and other ways of framing their relationship to nature that you know go out of the androcentric model of a lot of these monotheistic religions that posit the world as a creation of a divine being that is then granted for humankind's domination right and you see that in the beginning of genesis you know given dominion um and so there's a kind of critique or a kind of eco-spirituality that is emerging eco-feminism eco-spirituality that is trying to revalue the relationship to the earth and some people feel that really without a kind of religious awakening or spiritual awakening maybe it's not religious in the sense of organized doctrine but in terms of practices that revalue how you relate to nature and revalue the natural world and see human beings as part of the natural world rather than masters over it that that's the only way we will have the kind of will to really affect changes in a sustainable way in a long-term relationship so it's interesting to think about you know, this kind of apocalyptic, there could be a kind of counter apocalyptic renewal of more ancient, um, you know, relationships that have to be rethought in terms of modern life, but trying to figure out what we've lost, you know, people like, um, I think of some of these anarchist historians, uh, political scientists, somebody like James Scott, who very famously wrote weapons of the weak and understood resistance and agrarian societies in new and exciting and interesting ways one of his main areas of interest has been in two books seeing like a state and against the grain were these kind of global histories of where does the oppressive state emerge from and he really thought that it comes with the agricultural revolution that it changed people's relationship to nature you had hunter-gatherer societies that were in harmony with nature and part of this kind of system and they had beliefs and practices and various things that connected them in, in, in to the natural world and saw themselves as stewards of it whereas once you started sort of fixing territory crops you had to stay in one place to cultivate these crops and once you have people stuck in one place to cultivate grain they're easy to tax 
right? You know where to find these people and you know when the harvest comes. So you know where to go send your, you know, thugs to go extract the the share of, you know, the more powerful and this is what he was saying is how states were created. So I think in some ways, much of what we think of as civilization and of culture and history stems from this era of the agricultural revolution 10,000 years, you know, before Christ kind of situation. And um, that's a big break in in human history. And maybe we're going to have to reconnect with certain aspects of these indigenous and older, earlier traditions that reimagine social forms and culture and beliefs in a different way. I want to bring uh, Texas time in. I just have one final question that I that I need answered. We are sitting on something like 50,000 nuclear warheads. We also consume, you know, 25 percent of the world's oil. We we are we we have the potential capability to destroy the planet, either through nuclear warheads or through continuing to ignore climate change. Did apocalyptic Christianity come to fruition in America in the early 20th century, like the rapture? These are ideas that, as I understand it, come from from American preachers and, and teachers. Is Texas Tom, is, is there a severe apocalyptic strain of Christianity going on in America, a doomsday version of the Bible that, that, I mean, the country that's consuming the most greenhouse gases and has the most nuclear weapons. And then you have people who believe the end is near. I mean, what do you, what well, do you uh, first of all, let's just say there are a lot of people who aren't religious that are talking about the end is near if we don't right. do something. Right. So, that, you know, we have to realize that there's a lot of apocalyptic thinking that might not be religious per se that is going on in this kind of uh, climax, you know, of the things that we've been doing since the Industrial Revolution began that that have brought us to this point so that you know you've got a spectrum of different kinds of responses but there's a lot of resemblance in many different ways and some of this plays out in a very spiritual way but but uh, let, let me just say this i what i am not trying to do is deny in any way shape or form the reality that there are people who have this kind of apocalyptic outlook within Christianity and some other religious traditions, by the way, who are looking at this in a way that, you know, according to Marx's worst criticism of religion, it, it uh, they then proceed to not do anything because they're waiting for something to happen, you know, because God's going to do it and take care of them, uh, you know, some would view it even as a sin for us to try to kind of save ourselves and so on and so forth. So, you know, uh, I don't want to dispute that. I'm just simply saying, let's not paint religion with a broad brush. 
as being all the same. Let's realize, too, that there uh, I, I like the fact that uh, Adnan is bringing in here the idea that, you know, the indigenous religions now for some decades have been getting a second look by a lot of thinkers. You know, going back to Black Elk Speaks and uh, the issuing of his book, I think a lot of people have begun to look at the indigenous religions in a new way. And, you know, I think that we can, as a human family, begin to relook at our ancestors, and we don't have to buy into the same worldview as they did in terms of, you know, a two-tiered or more universe, but we can appreciate the underlying truths of the mythology that is there and reappropriate it in a way that makes sense within our own intellectual context. And I see that that's happening in some very sophisticated ways, and it's being brought together with a lot of different kinds of streams of thought. So, for instance, I wonder if Adnan uh, might be familiar with uh, Pilar de Chardin. I bet you anything probably is, right? Uh, Adnan? L less familiar than you, Tom. Okay, but... But he was a Jesuit uh, priest uh, who is a paleontologist. Anyway, what he is most known for is his cosmological view, an evolutionary view that, that I don't want to bring in a lot of theology. But, it was, but anyway, it's been appropriated by a lot of people, especially within the, quote, so-called New Age movement and beyond in ways that are is very creative, his theology, and it's almost been secularized in the way in which it's been appropriated. Uh, and so there's a lot of wonderful things that are happening on that front. Um, anyway, I don't know what else to add. Okay. Uh, well, should we, I think we should wrap it up. I have uh, Professor Marianne, would you like to weigh in on this? Oh. I mean, you know, we have to, we've got a, we've got a struggle with power right now. You know, I've, I've been interested in listening to what you guys have had to say, but, um, you know, there is just, it's not a, the belief system that's under assault is the belief in like reality itself. You know, the fact that, we're having a punditry uh, debate over the origin of uh, or, or the the origin of a of, of a virus. I mean, that's what the epidemiologists are for. You know? No, no, and, that's what sportscasters and comedians are for. <laughs> yes. Every, why are you gonna? Why would you talk to any epidemiologists? They're biased. I'm kidding. I mean, they only give you. I don't understand. What is explained yeah, to me? I'm sorry, I interrupted you. What? Oh, you're not. <laughs> what? What is the motivation? I'm sorry. Just facts. I mean, what's the? Where's the sport in just facts and the preponderance of data? Somebody yeah. sent me a, a listener who I really respect and sends me interesting articles. Sent me an entire uh, essay refuting the vaccine. Uh, supporting the the lab leak theory 
And it was well written and it was filled with nothing but circumstantial evidence written by somebody with an MBA. Yeah. I'm reading, I'm going, this is all over the map. This person, the, the writer has obviously studied the lab leak theory and it produces uh, nothing but circumstantial evidence. He's making a case that this needs to be studied more and gives the age old tropes about the financial interests of the, the, the pharmaceutical industry and Dr. Fauci. But there's no there are no facts. It's just why we need to look into this. Well, you were talking earlier about, you know, um, Fox News feeding the beast, feeding a market. I can see why people want to latch on to the lab leak theory. Why? Because it's actually kind of simple. If it was just a lab leak, then, okay, we've got the cause. We can prevent this. What happens if it's just, you know, our entire, all, all the countries, our entire food chain that we, we've been, you know, uh, destroying natural habitats for wildlife, that we've been commoditizing food, that we've been factory farming. We are, you know, creating a Petri dish for all kinds of zoonotic, I think that is the correct term, Zoon, yeah. uh, jumps of these viruses, which would have been, been happily just sequestered in jungles, in remote areas, you know, maybe occasionally jumping onto a goat herder or something. But now you've just got all of this stuff, you know, boiled together. That's a much more complicated problem to solve. There's the video of the bears taking a dip in Lake Tahoe. And, you know, the, the fires are raging around Lake Tahoe and these bears and, and the cubs and it's a, and they need to take a dip in, in Lake Tahoe and everybody's taking pictures. They, they have never cursed that the mama bear and I don't mean Pelosi is going to maul them if they get too close. Climate change is bringing us closer, as you say, to animals, and it makes us vulnerable to zoonotic leaks. And, le we're not, and, and the, the inaction of our leaders, of our leaders on the Democratic side, is just basically a, a silent repudiation of like the preponderance of all the scientific, you know, all the scientific consensus on what's happening to the planet and we, what we absolutely must do. So why would somebody spend time on the internet researching the lab leak theory or researching people who th say vaccines don't work? What, to seem smart, to, you know, why, they, I understand not trusting scientists and doctors, but, when 98% of people in science say climate change is man-made, you believe that. Mm -hmm. If 99.9% .9 of doctors say the vaccine is safe, and the only ones who are saying it's not safe are Ms. Tenpenny, who couldn't even become James Bond's, uh, I was gonna do a Miss Money punt. I'm too tired, Miss Money Penny. There's a Miss Ten Penny, who's a doctor, but you know, if ninety nine thousand doctors say the vaccines are safe, what more do you need to know? But that's not that's not a fun story. 
it's much more fun to like pursue a conspiracy theory, and then you get a whole bunch of likes on your Twitter feed, and that's a little you know adrenaline rush. Ooh, like I got two hundred likes because that, of course, is the only thing that matters: how many likes you get right. on your Twitter comments, and not the preponderance of evidence. I don't know; it's more fun. The Institute of Digital Hate in Great Britain did a study. Like 60% of all the anti-vaxxing information is coming from 14 people who are all selling something. It's like a multi-million dollar a year industry to get you not to take vaccines, to have them buy your supplement. It's, it's selling these supplements. Tom Weber, you have your hand raised. Well, I... I uh I want to give a little bit of more of a charitable way of looking at this. I think that you're right in as much as you see this. Uh, there is on the, the far right and the far left, there is a an undercurrent of skepticism that tends to be the normal mode of people. And sometimes people cannot turn it off. And... Uh, the thing that I worry about is not just a matter of credibility, but let us look at just this situation right here with the vaccine and whatnot. The continual asking of these kinds of questions leads to some kind of inertia and not doing anything. That's what happens with a lot of people then. They don't want to move. And so a lot of people are turned off from uh, getting the vaccine, and I don't think that that's necessarily the intention of some people who are raising these kinds of questions. I don't think that they're trying to sabotage necessarily the whole vaccine, uh, the process of getting vaccinations out. But in raising the questions, the the final effect of it all is then just that. There are a lot of people then who uh, are are turned off from getting it. And that's a big danger. And I can't personally stand by and uh, watch that happen. I uh, love people too much, and I know too many people who are at risk. And I just don't want to see that. And I'd like people to think through that. Yeah. But it's that default uh, stance of just always questioning. You know, I live by a typical skeptical, skeptical stance uh, with respect to, you know, government and with respect to lots of uh, authority and things like that. But I tried to do it in a measured way and not just without thinking. And that's what I think we have to be very, very cautious about. You know, Joe Biden made a mistake when he asked the intelligence agency to look into the lab leak theory. When Hillary Clinton was very smart, when the Whitewater prosecutor, I think it was before Starr, wanted her Rose Law billing records because they were on a fishing expedition, she said, do not give my billing records to the the prosecutor and Bill Clinton said, no, no, honey, this, this will solve it. We'll just placate them and it'll stop. And Hillary Clinton was very wise. She said, you give them my Rose Law, Rose Law firm billing records. They will not stop. And remember 
President Obama released the birth certificate. He found it. He released it. And Trump was silent for a week. And then, you know, what was it? The long form birth certificate? It wasn't good enough. And somebody advised foolishly Joe Biden to say, we're going to get to the bottom of this. I'm going to have this. Our intelligence agencies look into the Wuhan whether or not it came from a lab. And now they're off to the races. The fact that there's an investigation, you then they're going to come out and say there's nothing there. And now we investigate the investigation and it goes on and on and on. Same thing with the Capitol Hill Select Committee on the riot. I think it's foolish for Nancy Pelosi to be holding hearings it's a crime scene. That is a crime scene. People who have been victimized should not be looking into what happened to their house. And especially when it was probably an inside job. This is a job for Homeland Security and the Justice Department to start locking people up. But of course, you know, you hear the argument, well, the FBI and Homeland Security, it's a slippery slope. We can't start arresting people. Yes, you can. <laughs> we know we know who the fascists are. And uh, but let's have this long drawn out hearing that will be politicized and every fact will be challenged that comes out of this House Select Committee. Sometimes you just need a, a prosecutor and, and a jury and uh, a jail cell. That's what I say. Professor Bick, before we wrap this up. Uh, sorry, David, just got back uh, just for the last few minutes. Um, yeah, no, I agree. Uh, the thing is, we, we, we need to... Uh, I can't see the, you're being eclipsed by a a cat where where did you go bella it's it's an, ecl an eclipse of the sun yes she um my god that's the largest cat i've ever seen in my life um <laughs> that's a den of cats that can't just be one cat no it's just one it's not a oh my god you're holding that cat yeah. you must be the strongest man in the world <laughs> It has a high density. Uh, yeah, I, I just uh, agree with you. We, we need to go arrest the fascists. Um, you know, I, we've got to look at the, the police forces, of course, and make sure that they're interested in doing that. Um, yeah, well, they haven't exactly been neutral in the past. Yeah. I, I didn't notice anybody from Antifa uh, who I, I don't know. I notice the only cops who are on the side of Antifa are undercover cops infiltrating Antifa. But you don't see any cops or DEA agents marching with Antifa. They all seem to be uh, siding with uh, the fascists. And uh, anyway. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Jonathan Bick. Tom Weber, did, did we cover everything you wanted to discuss? Was there, there was something else you wanted to discuss? We can do it another time. No, bring it up now, because 
uh, I want to make sure you were very generous last wow. Thursday. Well, all right. Well, um, you know, I don't know if you guys did this, but back in the, when I was in junior high, I did a science fair project, and it was on hydroponics. Now, I have, I have to tell you, I'm going to confess right off that I didn't come up with this science fair project. My dad did. My dad was a chemical engineer for Phillips 66 and a brilliant man. And uh, you know what? He was always... Was he Murph? What's that mean? Murph? No, well, well, Murph, Murph isn't Phillips 76, is he? Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> Just... Anyway, I didn't even uh, get that right. And not only and not only ruined the show, I didn't even get it right. Murph 76, right? I think. Go ahead. I know what you're talking about. I can't even laugh at what you're trying to make me laugh at. Join the club. OK. All right. Well, anyway. Um, so my dad was a really, really smart guy who was always on the cutting edge of things. So actually in 1960, he went before Congress and was speaking out against nuclear uh, nuclear energy because his argument was was that it would never be able to be uh, financially stable by itself, that it would always have to be endlessly subsidized. Right. And he was saying that in 1960. And lo and behold, that's what it's been all along. But anyway, so he... Uh, we designed this, uh, or I really should say he designed, and I executed this science fair project. And it was on hydroponics. And I don't know if any of you know what that is. I bet you Ann Lee knows. Yeah, I, we, yeah. But hydroponics is uh, basically the idea is that um, you suspend plants in a uh, solution of, with water and nutrients, and without the use of soil and whatnot, you are, are able to grow food at a rate uh, that vastly exceeds your t typical kinds of farming. So you can get a yield of between 100 to 300 times the amount of uh, vegetation and fruit through this kind of process than you would in the same amount of space uh, using traditional methods, you know, with soil and whatnot. And um, so in my, the particular uh, science fair project that I ended up doing, uh, what I basically did was I took, uh, as I recall, three of the nutrients and that was, uh, what was it? Uh, nitrogen, potassium, and uh, phosphorus and for each of them I had uh, you know I controlled the amount of each of the nutrients that you had in the different uh, jars that I was growing them in and some of them were without one or more of the ingredients and at different rates and so on and so forth so anyway that was my experiment but uh, there was a New York Times article and I wonder if you might have read, David, about hydroponics that just came out. And uh, I heard about it. I did not read it because I'm not a subscriber, but uh, 
it got me thinking that I was so happy that they're beginning to bring this up again. Uh, you know, right now, the United Nations says that um, we have 957 million people across 93 countries that don't have enough to eat right now. And when I was born in 1954, there was 2.7 billion people. And it took 200 million years for us to uh, get to the point where we had a population of just 100 million people on the earth. I'm sorry, 1 billion, sorry. And then um, since I was born in 1954, we went from uh, 2.7 billion to our present of almost 8 billion people. So it's jumped that much just in a few decades. And you look at what's going to be happening in the future. So uh, the uh, we've got right now 957 million across 93 countries without enough to, uh, food to eat. And that's a frightening thing. So I'd like us to begin to, as progressives, think about the possibility of examining hydroponics and trying to uh, promote this uh, because it uses as a process much, much less water than you would use in traditional uh, farming. Uh, it avoids the problems of soil erosion and these big sprawling farms that we have. And uh, it's a technology that is movable to drought-ridden countries and where you have uh, lands without topsoil all of these different places you can utilize this technology and it's way way cheaper and it's eco-friendly and the cops uh, and the cat the cops can't kick open your door and so, that's how i remember hydroponics that's what my yeah, i'll remember that they they had their uh, heat sensors to right. infrared sensors to be able to you're talking about <laughs> growing yeah. marijuana yeah well yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, let me just uh, conclude by saying that there was um, the New York Times article, as I read a summary about it, uh, I also want to caution against what I heard uh, being laid out in that art article, which is that uh, the New York Times article is kind of not surprisingly, pushing a corporate line about how hydroponics might be utilized. And of course, what they want to do is commodify this uh, technology, and uh, especially through trying to control any innovations in the uh, technology uh, under the rubrics of intellectual property and proprietary software so that poorer countries will not be able to have the benefits of these kinds of uh, developments and everything that they're going to end up have to pay out their nose in order to get access to it, if at all. Right. So you know, this, this is a big caution I want to bring to the table here. So uh, I think that we're going to be hearing more and more about this kind of thing going forward just by necessity. And I think that we have to, as uh, progressives, we have to fight 
against the uh, the tendency that's going to be uh, clearly emerging of how uh, Wall Street's going to want to control this and misuse it. Uh, but it holds a lot of promise. Great. So that's basically it. I don't know if any of you want to add any comments. The only, the only thing that I understand is we may have hit peak population. I think when you were born, people saw baby Tom Weber and everybody around the world said, I want a baby just like Tom Weber. And everybody started reproducing. But from what I've been reading, we're hitting peak population that that countries, including America, are where we have a population implosion. That's my understanding that they're going to be population is not our only problem, David. We have uh, uh, we not only have all these fires that are going, but we've uh, it's said that within 50 years, our topsoil is going to be gone, gone. And we have to come up with a different way of uh, approaching the earth uh, to, you know, there's a lot of things that I think that we need to be doing in tandem. This is just one piece of the puzzle. You know, I I think that we have to, as human beings, um, consolidate our footprint on the earth to where uh, we can't have suburbs with big you know, people living in large pieces of land anymore. We can't afford that. I think that we really have to uh, pony up and begin to be willing to live in uh, high risers. uh, And we need to hand over as much as we can. uh, uh, we We need to let go of our control of the land and leave it to nature uh, so that it can recoup. I don't know if any of you guys saw this, but uh, forgive me, I think I'm repeating myself, but about a year ago or so, I saw this very dramatic, could have been National Geographic, I think it was, but anyway, they were talking about a portion of Africa that was on the brink of complete disaster to where uh, the, the, the uh, animal population was, was uh, collapsing. Uh, and um, they had been trying to control this by uh, introducing these predators into there. Or I'm sorry, I take that back. They were controlling it by reducing the population of certain predators. And they found out once they let nature do its own thing with 10 years, and they had aerial photographs of the area, within 10 years, it went from this point of collapse to flourishing. And the population of the animals within that area were just, it was astounding how they had bounced back. And I think that we've got a lot of hope if we do things like that. Uh, if we begin to allow nature to do its own thing and we have to, uh, we have to bring some real wisdom to how we use technology. Uh, you know, again, going back to what Edmond had said earlier, you know, 
what if we began to use the kind of moral rule of thumb that you found that was uh, common among the uh, indigenous people of the Americas where they said, you know, you need to not you need to not do anything that's going to farm up to seven generations forward. We don't think like that. We can't even think three seconds ahead. Right. Because the only thing we're concerned about is profit. You know, we have to do an about face. And this is, uh, you know, this is mandatory. Right. Thank you, Texas Tom Weber. Thank you, Professor Marianne Cummings. Thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein, Professor Ann Lee, and Professor Jonathan Bick. Really great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Dan, you've had your hand up since uh, the show started. I just looked. Do you want to say something? Okay. We're going to play uh, Henry. Uh, we're going to talk about big vape. Vaping. Is it safe? We'll find out. We're going to go to Henry Huckamacki in a moment. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. And eight days until Election Day for Nina Turner. Go to ninaturner.com and donate money right now. $5, $10, $50. If you're an American citizen or I think if you have a green card, you can donate to Nina Turner for Congress. She's up against the Democratic establishment, and we want to send her to Washington. So if you we don't ask you for much on this show, Howie Klein mentioned this earlier today. Uh, give money to Nina Turner if you want Medicare for all. OK, let us now talk about Big Vape and Jewel. Let us now go to Germany, where the brilliant Henry Huckamacki has a guest. Hello, David. We've got a great interview for you today with the author of a brand new book. And as you might have noticed, I have a co-interviewer today. Uh, so listeners are well aware of me by this point. But uh, would you like to introduce yourself just briefly, briefly say your name and uh, yeah, say what we're going to be reading or talking about today? Yeah, sure. So uh my name is Sophie, and uh, I'm a linguistics student, um, and we're going to be interviewing the author of Big Vape, uh, Jamie Ducharme. Yes, and we have the book right here. It was just put out, what, about a month ago, Jamie, from Henry Holt Publishers. Is that correct? Yeah, almost two months now. It came out in, in late May. Okay, so uh, again, as, as Sophie mentioned, we're interviewing Jamie Ducharme. Jamie, welcome to the David Feldman Show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So we just finished reading this book together, which is why we're doing this interview together. And I just want to preface this conversation by saying that many of the listeners are going to have strong feelings one way or another on the vaping industry, be it uh, vaping is great. It's a great idea for getting current cigarette smokers to quit smoking combustible tobacco products. And other people will have very strong negative feelings about the vaping industry. This book is not taking a position on that debate. So this book is really meant for anybody because it's really an examination of Juul as a, as a company. And a lot of the missteps, let's say, that they took along the way. Uh, anything that you want to say about the book before we ask the first question? Um, yeah, I'd say that this book completely changed my, my perception of Jewel as a company. Uh, before I read Big Vape, uh, I mean, I sure did know that e-cigarettes were 
very popular among teenagers and um, yeah. But I was very unaware of the fact that um, I was unaware of its major contribution uh, to to the youth vaping crisis. Yeah, so I guess let's just jump right into the interview now and I'll, I'll get us kicked off. So Jamie, why don't we start by having you briefly tell us about how Juul's predecessor was was conceived because Juul, of course, was is the company's name at this point and it was originally named after one of the products in their line, but it had several predecessors before that. So can you tell us about how that pre- those predecessors were conceived, where they came from and who some of the major players in that story as well as the book more generally are? Sure. So two men met at Stanford in their product design school for, for graduate students. James Monsies and Adam Bowen are their names. Um, both had been smokers, both kind of wanted to quit, but also sort of enjoyed smoking and, and weren't terribly inclined to just quit cold turkey. Um, so they started talking about alternative products that they could invent that might be a better, uh, a better option than cigarettes. And what they came up with was a device called Plume, um, which kind of looked like a little pen that you would put pods of um, tobacco into and it would heat those instead of burning them and create an, an aerosol that you could inhale. And the idea was that this would be hopefully um, less dangerous than a cigarette that you actually light on fire and smoke. Um, so they thought of this idea at Stanford, waited a couple of years after they graduated and then started to get or try to get investment money for it and actually, you know, make a go of it and, and create a company. Um, that didn't go super well for them. They found out that a lot of people don't want to invest in, in tobacco or don't want to invest in kind of vice products as a whole, as they're called. Um, so they did launch a product called Plume. It wasn't super successful, didn't sell very well. Um, and they they kept going, they kept innovating and created a new product called Pax, um, which looks, it's always compared to, to an iPhone or an Apple product, like very sleek. Um, you know, if you, if you know what Apple products look like, you probably have a fairly good idea of, of what this was like. Um, and Pax was pretty expensive. It was a, more of a luxury product and that did begin to sell well. Um, people actually started using it for marijuana as well as tobacco. Um, and that was really where, where it became popular. Um, and yeah, so off the success of Pax is kind of where Jewel comes into the picture. So I guess the next place to take this conversation then is that the Plume, the company that ended up becoming a Jewel eventually, faced a lot of major setbacks, both early on and then, of course, over the course of the company. This whole book is basically a comedy of errors of this company in many ways. But early on, particularly, they were facing a lot of problems in finding a niche in the market. Uh, as you mentioned, this the uh, original plume device didn't really fit in particularly well with any of the already existing e-cigarette uh, market in terms of people looking for that. Pax was a luxury item that ended up becoming more popular in the marijuana market. Can you talk about how they were trying to find a place in the e-cigarette niche and then also some of the problems that they faced in terms of just trying to get the products to work because you laid out a lot of the issues that they had just in terms of the products not working very well. Yeah. So particularly with that first plume device, um, the function was a huge issue. As you said, it wasn't, um, reliable. I mean, it, it sometimes didn't give people the nicotine that they were looking for, which is kind of the, 
first priority with an e-cigarette product. So that was a huge issue. Um, it was, the fuel source was butane. So, um, it's a liquid that's often used in like camping stoves. So people who are used to electronic or battery operated products for the most part did not want to be walking around with, with the butane that they would need to refill their device. Um, so plume was not terribly successful for those reasons, but PAX, I think struggled, um, because it was a luxury item, or I shouldn't say struggled because it was quite popular um, with marijuana users, but I think people just maybe weren't quite willing to buy a $250 nicotine device when a pack of cigarettes is far, far less expensive than that. Um, so when the two founders really started to you know, iterate and try to develop what became the Juul product, they were trying to thread this needle of giving people a product that was user-friendly and convenient um, and discreet but also, you know, on the lower end of the price scale and that would deliver nicotine in the same way as a cigarette so that it would keep people satisfied um, who were trying to to switch away from cigarettes. Um, so it was a tall order because prior to that, e-cigarettes had not been seen as a particularly cool product. I mean, if you remember sort of the, the early 2000s, like people would get made fun of for vaping and for using these products. So a big part of Jules challenge was developing, developing something that worked well, but also that people I mean, wouldn't be embarrassed to use in public and would actually um, want to buy. Yeah. I know that when, I, when I was growing up, I remember a lot of the, uh, the mockery that was surrounding e-cigarette usage and that changed pretty dramatically because of some marketing. Uh, Safi, do you want to talk about that or ask that question? Yeah, so as Juul was trying to get its brand new product off the ground, uh, they came up with this great um, vaporize campaign. And for the listeners, can you talk about uh, what was this campaign, how successful was it, and what were the major criticisms of it? Because there certainly were a lot of criticisms. <laughs> Yeah, sure. So for anyone who has not seen a Juul device, I'll just start by kind of describing what it looked like, because I think that's important when we talk about their marketing. Um, it looks very, very similar to a flash drive or a USB drive um, to the point that, I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but to the point that later in schools, like teachers would actually mix up a Juul and a flash drive because they look so similar. So you've got this very sleek kind of tech forward product. Um, and as the company was trying to figure out how to sell it, um, they brought on a creative director who was really experienced in selling, you know, trendy consumer products. And that's basically how they tried to sell Juul because, you know, it, it looked really cool and it looked sleek. Um, so this vaporized campaign that, that we're talking about, um, it was colorful. It was bright. I mean, there were model like young, early twenties or all throughout their 20s, but 20-something models holding jewels and like dancing around in front of neon colored backgrounds and, you know, flirting with the camera, wearing trendy clothes. And when this campaign came out, a lot of people in the tobacco control community took a second and said, wait, this looks an awful lot like what cigarette companies used to do. Um, I feel like I've seen these ads before, right down to the way the models were posing and the clothes that they were wearing. There were kind of clear overlaps with old cigarette ads. Um, and even beyond that, I mean, if, if you're not a person who knows what old cigarette advertising looked like um, and you see these ads, they're, I mean, 
they make the product look just really cool and less like something that could be a public health tool and more like something that you'd see it on Instagram and you'd say, oh, wow, those models look really look really cool. Maybe I should try that. Um, so that's where a huge amount of criticism for Juul came into the pictures. People saw this ad campaign and just said, oh, that they're marketing towards kids and teenagers. Um, they're trying to make this look like a trendy product that young people will want to try. Um, and obviously when you're selling an age restricted nicotine product, that is not, um, not the reputation you want. And that set Juul off on, a, I think, a pretty rocky path from the very beginning. And you mentioned that students were being marketed to, whether that was uh, intentional or unintentional. Again, you don't take a clear position on it in the book. You just lay out the facts as, as a journalist here. But undoubtedly, this was something that was happening. Children were being uh, advertised to. You mentioned in the book that in early 2016, the CDC released a report that found that 70% of middle and high school students regularly saw e-cigarette ads. And of course, chief among those would be Juul ads. Uh, 70% of middle school and high school students. This is around the same time that we saw an explosion of youth e-cigarette usage. So in 2013, a survey, the National Youth Tobacco Survey found that 4.5% of students uh, had used e-cigarettes in the past 30 days. Within one year, it jumped up to 13% from 4.5%. And by 2018, uh, they, the survey found that 21% of high school students had vaped within the past 30 days. So what I'm kind of driving us to now is that Juul became by far the market leader in e-cigarettes. They, they didn't used to be. The, the, as you mentioned in the book, uh, a lot of the products that were backed by big tobacco companies were originally the market share leaders with these independent companies uh, finding their own niche underneath in terms of market share. But as time went on, Juul became far and away the most popular e-cigarette product at the same time that all of these reports about this youth vaping epidemic were coming out. So my question is, was Juul's rapid growth because of the youth vaping crisis? There was a lot of publicity around that. It was in every newspaper. Hey, youth vaping crisis. Look at Juul's. Look at how they're marketing. Look at how many students are using e-cigarette products. It was in all of the newspapers with that name, Juul. So was the rise of Juul partially because of the youth vaping product or was it in spite of it? Because of course, you know, now there's a lot of negative publicity. So um, I guess what I'm trying to ask here is, do you think that this is a case of any publicity is good publicity or do you think that the publicity that about Juul being responsible for the youth vaping epidemic was actually holding them back in some way? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, and first I do want to just say that, everyone I've talked to at Juul has denied that marketing to teenagers was, was done purposely. They've all said that, you know, the purpose of those ads was to make Juul look like something that again, smokers wouldn't have to be embarrassed about using. Um, so I just think it's important to lay that out. But at the same time, um, what you said is correct. Like whether they did it on purpose or not, it, it very quickly became clear that young people were attracted to these ads. Um, and you could see that on social media. I mean, people were talking about using jewels in high schools and middle schools very quickly. Um, so with all that said, um, I think it's, it's a little hard to parse out how the publicity affected Juul. 
I think they started to get popular before most people were aware that there was a youth vaping crisis or epidemic or whatever you want to call it. Um, and I think that's in part because the product did work very well. I mean, a lot of e-cigarettes on the market before Juul just didn't deliver enough nicotine. They didn't taste good. People didn't like them. Um, and Juul, by all accounts, delivered a lot of nicotine, had flavors that a lot of people found appealing. So I think there genuinely was a piece of it that was just that this was a well-designed product that did what it set out to do. But I think around 2017, the mainstream media did start covering youth vaping pretty heavily. And I think undoubtedly, to some extent, just the number of headlines about Juul did contribute to its popularity because surely there were some people who hadn't heard of it or hadn't seen it at school. And then you're reading headlines about it and that makes you curious. Um, so it's a little difficult to say for sure whether the growth was because of or in spite of those headlines. Um, but I do think um, they they had they played a part for sure, just in sort of public consciousness of this company. Yeah, so speaking of uh, Jewel and, and school kids, um, Jewel devised this uh, youth vaping uh, prevention campaign. And one of their, well, quite questionable strategies was to um, to visit schools and uh, yeah, and make presentations. Um, and some critics claimed that they were actually targeting kids, school kids, um, during this prevention campaign. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, this uh, this chapter of the book, I think, is one that a lot of people found the most shocking or striking because it is just it's a little hard to wrap your head around how the company let this happen. Um, so to set the scene a little towards the end of 2017, when it had already become clear and quite well publicized that teenagers were vaping in, in large numbers, Juul decides that it wants to do something both to fix the problem and to fix its image related to the problem. And their solution was to create an anti-vaping curriculum that they could you know, pay schools to offer and it would teach students about how nicotine affects the young brain and sort of why you shouldn't be using an addictive substance when you're in high school um, and all of these sorts of topics, which, you know, on its own is not, is not a bad thing to teach in high schools. The problem is that when you are the company selling that product, it's a clear conflict of interest to, you know, to be the ones funding those lessons in schools. And what makes this whole thing perhaps even more noteworthy is that the tobacco company, Philip Morris actually ran a very similar program um, in the early two thousands. So, one could assume, or I guess reasonably assume, that Juul might have come across that in their research and, and known that a tobacco company had done this um, and gotten a lot of bad press for it. And actually, some studies came out and found that kids who had seen materials from Philip Morris's campaign looked more favorably upon the tobacco industry than kids who had it. So there was pretty clear evidence that this was not a good idea if anyone at Jewel had looked for it and taken it seriously. Um, but they either didn't do that research or, you know, didn't think that research was important or I don't know exactly what happened within the company, but they went forward with this, with this program and actually did in a few cases pay, um, pay schools to offer their curriculum. So as you lay out in the book, though, and I'm sorry to Jamie, but in Jamie, but as you lay out in the book, they had actually been warned before they in implemented this program that it was a terrible idea. So even if they didn't 
directly know of the Philip Morris campaign in the schools. They were being told by smoking cessation activists. Uh, they had been told by experts that were looking at harm reduction strategies. They were being told from people that they were using as consultants from across the board that this was a really bad idea and they still went ahead with it anyway. Anyway, I just wanted to make that point. Yeah, no, that's that's important. I'm glad you brought that up because that's another theme I would say throughout the book is that you can debate what Jules' intentions were at so many different junctures, but the truth is that they did have advisors who who kind of told them at several key points that what they were doing was not a good idea. And in almost every instance, they did not take that advice seriously. Um, so again, their intentions are up for debate, but I think what is very clear is that there was quite a bit of mismanagement or um, I guess you could say negligence going on. Yeah, and as you lay out, lay out in the book, um, the school outreach wasn't the only solution that they uh, that they proposed. Uh, another one, another one was this Tobacco Twenty One, uh, which well, Kevin Burns, uh, Jules' previous CEO, uh, was really pushing for. Do you think it it would be effective, or whether it was effective? Uh, if it was implemented. Yeah, so Tobacco 21, for anyone who's not familiar, um, is basically the idea of raising the tobacco purchase age from 18 to 21, which at this point has been done in the US. Um, the, the administration did that in early 2020. And I actually think, I don't think that's a bad policy. I think um, it has pretty widespread support, both in the tobacco world and in the public health world, which it's rare that you'll find overlap in those two camps, but they do actually both support this policy. Um, I think where Juul ran into trouble a little bit from what I learned from people who worked at the company is that there was almost a single-minded focus on Tobacco 21 as the solution to Juul's problems, when in fact, you know, there are probably a number of things that the company needed to do to actually prevent teenagers from using its products. Um, so, you know, things like limiting access to flavored products or making it harder to buy products online, like there's, it was a multifaceted issue. And it seemed as though people at the upper levels of the company were just focusing so strongly on Tobacco 21 and expecting that that would solve the entire problem when, in fact, probably a more nuanced solution was needed. So the next thing that I'm going to talk about or ask you about, I guess, is something that I think that a lot of the listeners will be interested in. So Jewel, again, previously Plume, but now Jewel, was founded with the purpose, and I'm putting that in air quotes because, again, it's up to the readers and listeners to decide for themselves, but with the purpose of helping current cigarette smokers transition away from combustible cigarettes. And throughout the company's run, the founders of the company, as well as the various CEOs that they eventually ended up going through, always upheld that this was their strategy. They're here to fight big tobacco. And yet they had a 35% share bought by Altria, which is what the biggest tobacco company in the world in terms of uh, conglomerates. So Altria buys a 35% share for $12.8 billion dollars. So the company's valuation is huge at this point. Uh, and I'm going to have you talk about that for a second and then what happened afterwards, what the valuation is like now. But I also want to just point out, and again, feel free to speak to this, that Altria bought uh, the 35% share for $12.8 billion. 
but only $300 million of that $12.8 billion purchase actually went into the company. The rest of the $12.5 billion was paid out in bonuses to uh, the chief executives uh, to basically thank investors in the product. I mean, that's, that's pretty obscene. Is it not like 12.5 billion out of the $12.8 billion influx of cash that they had went directly into payouts for high level people at the company and investors in the company. So I guess feel free to take those two threads, however you want in terms of the buyout by big tobacco, as well as this uh, allocation of, of incoming money. Yeah, the, that is, I found that totally wild that only about 300 million made it into the company. Um, kind of couldn't believe that that was true. But at the time, I mean, maybe you remember there were headlines that the average payout for a Juul employee was $1.3 million because everybody, you know, at all levels of the company got a bonus from this, um, which again, mathematically, like if the average is that many people, of course, got much less than that. But I just remember like people were rushing to apply to work at Jewel because of these headlines. And it was just seen as, you know, a great way to get rich. Um, Jim, but sorry anyway. to butt in for one second. Oh, just, sure. I believe that you put out a, or you put in a story in this book of somebody who hadn't even had a single day at the company yet. He had been hired by the time the, the buyout had taken place, but he hadn't actually started working yet. And even he got, I think a $125,000 uh, payout from this, from this acquisition without ever having worked a day at the company. Yeah. It, like truly people young 20 and 30 somethings were just getting rich overnight from this investment. It was, I mean, if you work in Silicon Valley, it's kind of the dream that, you, that you'll get a huge buyout like this or uh, investment like this. But I guess to tackle it from more of the like ideological side, and if this was a good idea for the company, critics, of course, immediately jumped all over them for doing this, because as you said, their mission, their stated mission had always been to make cigarettes obsolete. And yet here they are taking all this money from a tobacco company. So it looked really suspicious. Um, Jewel defended it by saying that Altria has, um, you know, has contact with smokers who were, were their intended market. So in their view, they could use Altria's connections to smokers to advertise the product to people who feasibly would want it. That was kind of their justification. But I think this was another case where people told them or, or suggested that this was probably not a good idea and that all anybody was going to do was criticize them for this and that they would just get raked over the coals in the press. Um, and they went ahead with it anyway. And I mean, that's exactly what happened. I don't think they ever recovered. Their reputation wasn't amazing to begin with. And I think taking all this money from a tobacco company just sort of was the nail in the coffin a little bit. So we've got time for just about one more question. We've got about five minutes to go. So Sophie, why don't you open up this question and maybe I'll add in a little bit at the end. Yeah, sure. So based on everything that you learned while making this book, what do you think was the main driving force of, behind, uh, yeah, behind the creation of Jewel? Yeah, because of course, when we're talking about what was the driving force, of course, it's not going to be just one thing. I, I'm not doubting that there was some public health justification for the creation of Jewel. I don't doubt that uh, James and Adam, the founders of Jewel, 
did have at least some in some way uh, in the back of their mind that they were trying to create a product for current cigarette smokers like themselves to have an off ramp off of smoking combustible tobacco. But I also have no doubts that a big portion of this was profit incentive. Surely. I mean, they knew that the market was out there for such a product. They knew that the audience for that product was out there. So I I guess the way that I want to kind of tie this together is it's going to be a combination of both, right? It's going to be, yes, they, they had at least some, uh, you know, public health incentive there. And they also had a profit incentive, but based on everything that you found, how would you, say that that really breaks down into those two categories. Cause we were just having this discussion last night and we were having an argument about it. Uh, not a very mean one, but uh, uh, an argument nonetheless. I mean, well, we I kind of opposite sides of the, of the, uh, of the argument. Well, I want to hear, I want to hear your takes, but I'll give you mine first. Um, I genuinely do think, I mean, both founders were smokers and I think they kind of created this product because they wanted to use it. Um, I think they clearly saw that this was needed, you know, both had kind of dabbled with trying to quit smoking before and didn't have luck. So I think they truly saw that this was something that people like them would want to use and would find value in using. But what I always say when I'm asked this question is that they were in a product design program. They were not in a public health or medical program. I think the health benefits were on their mind. I mean, obviously, you know, they were two smart guys who who knew that smoking was going to kill them if they kept doing it forever. And I think they wanted to avoid that and help other people avoid that. But at the end of the day, they were, you know, they were designing a product that they hoped would be successful and profitable. So I think the health piece was certainly part of it, but I think, you know, you can't separate, you can't, you can't describe the jewel story without seeing that it was supposed to be, you know, a hugely successful business, which it did become. And I think in the later years, they, you know, for obvious reasons, tried to play up the health angle because that was the only way to make the company look good. Um, and I don't think that was a lie, but I think it's also, as you suggested, only a piece of, of what they were trying to accomplish. You want me to go first? Sure. Okay. So yeah, I, I think that I'm uh, more in the camp with you, Jamie, that I think that the profit, if I read your uh, answer correctly, is that I think that the profit incentive was the bigger component than the public health. I I do think that the public health there was there, as you said, they were both cigarette smokers. And I do think that that played a a major role in it, but I do think that the over uh, overriding reason for the creation of jewel and kind of making this big investment and time and money into this company was to reap massive profits off of it. And the one piece of evidence that I would point out, Uh, or I guess the two things is that even back when they were in their course, this product design program uh, that you mentioned one, they had studied big tobacco advertising ad nauseum in this program. You don't need to know big tobacco advertising to know how to make something that's good for public health. That's, that's a method for figuring out how to make profits. And two, they did no research as to whether or not e-cigarettes were actually healthier for people than combustible cigarettes. I mean, there wasn't much research out there available, but they did none of that themselves. So they had no idea whether it was healthier or not. They were just operating under the assumption that it was. But to me, that reads as, well, we can make a lot of money at this and it's probably better for you, but we're going to focus on the money aspect of it, but you disagree with me. Uh, well, I did, but <laughs> 20 pages into the book, um, 
I was strongly convinced that they wanted to start a, like a public health revolution. But the more I read, the more I realized that like how much Juul and Big Tobacco had in common. Um, and the other aspect that I wanted to, to point out is that the long-term effects of e-cigarettes long-term health effects for e-cigarettes are still unclear. So they didn't do any research, any health research at the beginning. So yeah, I'm leaning towards your camp at this point. Well, I'm glad that we won you over. (laughs) I think, I mean, honestly, this is what keeps me so interested in this topic is that I think it's so there's valid arguments for both. And I think, I mean, even for people within the company, I think most people's answer is a mix of both. Um, so I just think it's a really interesting study of kind of what was potentially a really good idea that kind of spun off the tracks. Yeah. And we're completely out of time. I just want to briefly mention once more that again, this book that we're talking about big vape, the incendiary rise of jewel is not a diatribe against the e-cigarette industry. And it's not a, um, uh, something saying that this is the way that we're going to help save people's lives that are current smokers. This, this is not that. This is a story of the company Jewel and all of the mistakes that they made along their way from being a super promising company to something that basically blew up over one single month, um, you know, just what, a year and a half ago or two years ago at this point. So, like I said, we're out of time, but our guest was Jamie Ducharme, author of Big Vape, The Incendiary Rise of Jewel, brand new out from Henry Holt Publishers. Thanks again, Jamie, for coming on the show. Can you briefly tell the listeners how they can find you on social media or anything that you want to direct them to? Yeah, thank thank you so much again for having me. This was fun. Um, If you want to find me online, my website is very easy. It's my name, jamiedusharm.com. My socials on there, information about the book is on there. And also um, my articles from Time Magazine, where I'm a health correspondent, are on there as well. Excellent. And I'll hope to uh, bring you back in the future to talk about some of the health issues because I'm an immunobiology researcher myself. So this is something that, you know, it's always nice to talk about. Uh, (laughs) In any case, David, back to you. You are listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Henry Huckamacki has a Patreon account. Subscribe to his newsletter. Go to patreon.com forward slash Huck1995. Thank you, Henry, for another great contribution to this show. I'm going to see Henry in New York in the middle of August. I'm really looking forward to that he's coming to New York. I don't know why, but... We will uh, mask up and get together outdoors. In honor of Henry, I'm going to show you what the New York Times is reporting tonight. I want to just we're going to wrap it up, but I want to go over the uh, COVID cases because I don't know if we're paying enough attention to how bad it is. getting and going to get. We used to do this a lot on the show, and it bears repeating, especially since the the surge is about to start. So if you look, in April of 2020, new cases in America, you know, about 20,000. This is the seven-day average. And then around, you know, it 
it starts going up in December of 2020, and it peaks, new cases peak around January, right after Christmas and New Year's, about 250,000 new cases. That would be the seven-day rolling average. And then the vaccine starts, and we see a precipitous drop. It plummets in February. There's a little bump in April, but... You know, we're going maskless. The vaccine is working. We're, we're something like, what was it, a million vaccines a day? Wasn't it something like that around April? And then look at June. It's going away, right? It's going away. But then people stop getting vaccinated and people stop wearing their masks. And the Delta variant arrives, we were told, in April that the Delta variant would be the COVID that we get. And Americans stop getting vaccinated, stop wearing masks, and it just is going up. This is the New York Times. It has gone up 144% in the past 14 days. 33,000 Americans are hospitalized each day hospitalizations are up 68% from two weeks ago. 49% of Americans are fully vaccinated. So where where's the problem? Where's the problem? The problem is, I hate to say it, Trump country. The governor of Alabama, a Republican, Kay Ivey, said last week that You need to stop dragging your feet on getting vaccinated. Folks are supposed to have common sense, Governor Kay Ivey said, but it's time to start blaming the unvaccinated folks, not the regular folks. It's the unvaccinated folks that are letting us down. This is the governor, Republican governor of Alabama. These folks are choosing a horrible lifestyle of self-inflicted pain. I want people to get vaccinated. That's the cure. Only 39% of the people in Alabama are fully vaccinated. Actually, only 34. She said 39%. She's not good with numbers. It's 34% of Alabama is fully vaccinated. So the 14-day change, 185% increase in cases of COVID. You look at the states where COVID has more than doubled. Louisiana, 177% increase over the past two weeks, only 37% fully vaccinated. Arkansas, 92% increase in two weeks, 36% fully vaccinated. And Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who's running for president based on how he handled the COVID crisis, 14-day change, 208% in Florida. It is spiking in Florida, 208%. That's the worst of any state in America. 48% fully vaccinated in Florida, but he's uh, encouraging people to fight Fauci, not 
COVID. He's opening up the businesses. Don't wear a mask. Florida is doing the worst in America. And uh, so wear a mask, get vaccinated. Thank you, Henry. By the way, there was a transcript. We transcribed that interview. We had time. Some of the interviews and segments on this show are being transcribed for the hard of hearing on our YouTube channel. So that's beginning to start. Uh, Please subscribe to our YouTube channel and please subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts. Rate it and review it, please. And the only way the show can spread is if you spread it for me. That's what he said. Uh, Spread the word about this show. Copy and paste the link into your email and share this with uh, people who you think would enjoy this show. We have a limited audience. This is not for everybody. There are people around the world who would enjoy these interviews and conversations. So share them with people who are seeking the truth and want to laugh along the way. Thank you, Jackie, the joke man, Martling. Yes, I'm working off a list tonight. Thank you, Jackie, the joke man, Martling, Dave Cyrus, Professor Jonathan Bick, Howie Klein, David Cobb, Dr. Harriet Fraud, Peter B. Collins, Texas Tom Weber, Professor Marianne Cummings, Professor Ann Lee, Professor Adnan Hussein, and uh, Henry Huckamaki, I think. And of course, Dan Frankenberger. I, I think I left somebody out. I apologize. Uh, thank you, Dan Frankenberger. Nothing gets done here without Dan Frankenberger. Please subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would like to sit in the Zoom room, we do a live stream of this show every Monday and Thursday. We start at 5 and finish up around 11 o'clock. If you would like to sit in the Zoom room, go to davidfeldmanshow.com and hit the Attend a Live Taping menu. I'll send you an invite. We have an amazing Discord channel. You have to come to office hours to find out about that. We do office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. Go to my website for an invitation. I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. Now tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way Thank you.